Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Hellas, your host. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on December 27th, 2019, our final show for 2019. Right now, the time is around 9.08 p.m., and we are going to have a free roll. In fact, it started eight minutes ago, and it's a very unusual free roll in the way the prize pool is structured, which I'll get to shortly. But believe it or not, I turned down an additional $200 for the prize pool. The free roll, which started, I think, eight minutes ago or nine minutes ago at 9 p.m. Pacific time. You can still get in until 9.25 Pacific time with a full stack. It's an $82 free roll plus a $67 bounty. You heard right. Main prize pool is $82. Bounty is $67. Isn't that weird? First place is $35. Second place is $22. Third place is $15. And fourth place is $10. The bounties are as follows. Ballhawk Net, he's playing tonight, and if you knock him out, you get $42, but only if it's before the final table. If it's on the final table and you knock out Ballhawk Net, then you get the very large sum of money, a very, very large sum of money known as 0.0. And if you knock out Gordman, who's also playing tonight, same terms. If you knock him out before the final table, you get 25 bucks. If you knock him out during the final table, you get... 0.0. First time we've ever had a bounty like this. This is Ballhawk Nets idea, by the way. But it's an interesting one. So overall, the total prize money given away here is just a dollar short of 150 bucks, which is pretty good. Now, we had $200 offered by Eric Benzamokin, which I actually said, no, it's too much. It's actually too much. I, I don't want my listeners to gain this much money. I don't think they deserve it. I don't, I don't think you guys deserve it. I don't think you guys deserve that type of money to be given away. No, actually, it's not the reason. It's because it's the end of the year. I figured that we're not going to have a large audience. People are away. and I said, let's table the extra $200 since we already have a nice free roll this week. Let's table the 200 for 2020, use it a different week when we don't have as much, and we'll have a bigger audience. But uh, we do have a very big free roll coming up, thanks to Eric Benzamokin. And I have to say, I really appreciate all he's done for the show. He's, he's so generous, just on the fly, he just keeps adding money to free rolls. And uh, I talked to him off of the show, obviously, and... I've uh, met up with him a number of times, and yeah, he's become a real friend, and and also a very, very good friend of the show, and and I appreciate his generosity very much. I know he really likes the show. He really enjoys the show. He likes the long episodes, even though initially the long episodes were off-putting to him <laughs> the first time. He actually found this show through Adam Schwartz, when Adam mentioned it on the 2 Plus 2 PokerCast, and... He went to go download Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and he's like, oh, my God, six hours. I can't listen to this. But then he, he kind of forced himself to listen to six hours. Or he, he was only going to listen to some of it, and then as, as he kept listening, he's like, oh, you know what? This is interesting. I, th- I think I can keep listening. And then he gets through the six hours. He's like, oh, you know what? This is actually cool. I like having this long thing. I can just keep stopping and playing during the week, and it like never runs out till the next week. So he's a big fan of the show, and he's really – been generous with us, and I appreciate this so much. Here's a message that he wanted me to read 
to everybody who's listening. He said, wishing the entire PFA community a happy, healthy, and prosperous 2020. Then he also wanted me to read, in honor of the last radio of the year, add $200 to a nice free roll. And I said, well, I don't think we should do that because there's just there's not enough notice and not enough people playing. But uh, definitely we'll table that for the next year. And we already had a $300 free roll minimum, which was going to be put on by him for the first show of 2020, which should be next week, by the way. So be prepared. Be around next week. You will have a big free roll. A big free roll. I'll, I'll post more information as we get closer to it. But that'll be the first free roll of the 2020s of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. How many other shows do this? I don't think any of them do. I don't think any other poker podcast or radio shows have a free roll directly associated with the show. If there is, you can tell me which one, but I've never heard of one that does it. And I think that's really cool that we have this. And I think it's even cooler that the listeners donate the money so I don't have to reach into my Jew wallet to do it. But I thank everybody, especially Eric, who's been donating to us. Uh, in addition to uh, Eric, of course, we we don't have any of his money tonight because I turned it down. But uh, here's the money we did get this week. I decided to add some unclaimed prize money to the free roll. Actually, I probably wouldn't have added this unclaimed prize money if Eric's offer had come in sooner. But uh, that's the way things work out. But don't you'll, you guys will get the 200 eventually. It just won't be this week. Side Effect won $30 more than six months ago. SJM, whoever that is, I don't even know who that is, won $22 more than six months ago. By our rules, by our rules and bylaws, any free roll money unclaimed within the first six months may be repurposed for future free rolls. And that has been done here. So those 30 and 22 from Side Effect and SJM are going to the free roll, as is $30 from Yup, who just sent it today. He didn't have it forfeited. He just donated. I thank him for that. Then, of course, we have the $42 and $25 bounties from Ballhawknet and Gordman, and I thank them for that. So five different people contributed, three voluntarily this week, and we have a nice free roll to end out the year. You still have time to get in. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll all lowercase, to get the information on the free roll and understand how you qualify for the free money. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. It's on an old 70s rotary telephone on top of Mount Charleston, you know what? That was unreachable earlier this week because Mount Charleston got snow and it closed all of the roads into Mount Charleston. So there's no way to get to the phone to check on it. It's apparently still okay because it works. But yeah, Mount Charleston was completely isolated from the rest of the world because of snow. There is snow there right now, of course. So if you want to ski there, you can ski there. You can just go to the snow. It's something people sometimes don't think about when they come to Vegas. In fact, most people in Vegas don't even know what Mount Charleston is or that it exists. They don't know that 40 minutes away there are mountains with snow on it or mountains that are 30 degrees cooler during the summer. If you want to chat in the chat room, you can do so during the live show only. Just click the chat button near the top of the screen. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads. 
You also need a form account in good standing in order to get in there. If you want to listen to the show, there's various ways to do so. You can just go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com and it may just play for you without you doing anything. If it doesn't, if it doesn't auto-play, then something you can do is just click on the link that says for iPhones and iPads. There's a little link to click there. Whether you have an iPhone or iPad or not, just click on that link. It'll probably just play live. If you have an Android device, then you need to get what's known as the VLC player and then play from the URL that I give you there. A little bit more complicated, but that's uh, the fault of the Android device is not mine. And the TuneIn app. If you download the TuneIn app, you can play the live show through that. Amazon Alexa used to have the ability to play this show live, but it seems to have gone away. No idea why. I was not paying for that, in case you're wondering. It was just something that they were doing, and they've stopped doing it. So no more listening to the live show on Amazon Alexa, but it can be used for the streaming reruns, or not the streaming reruns, for the archives, which I'll get to you, get to shortly. Then there's the call to listen line. The call to listen line can be used to listen to the live show at any time. And when we're not live, you can call it and hear our streaming reruns. It just picks random reruns and just runs them as if they're live. And when that's over, it picks another and another and another until we come back live on the air. The number for the call to listen line is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. There's also an alternate number, 641-741-1095. If you forget either of these numbers or any of the numbers I've given out, just go to the radio tab. They are all listed there. And let me tell you, if you use that call to listen line, there will never be any buffering, never be any freezing. It's such an easy listening experience. It does not require a smartphone or an iPad or a computer, or the internet. And if you have data, you're not going to use any of your data. It will use zero bytes of your data. And you only need like zero bars of service. You just need the ability to complete a phone call. And you can listen to the show. Even an old 70s rotary telephone can listen to the show on the call to listen line. And I'm proud of that. We've had that for over four years now. I remember when I first proposed it, People laughed at me. They said, this is nonsense. Nobody's going to use this. This is your 80s obsession with telephones coming through. And here we are today, and we have about a million minutes that have been listened to on it. I'm not exaggerating. We've really had about a million minutes listened to total on the call to listen line. And if you just want to leave it on all the time, if you want to leave it while you sleep or leave it while you grind poker or you're at work, don't worry about it. You can do it. You're not going to cost me any money. I'm not paying per minute for you to listen. Otherwise, with a million minutes listened, I'd probably be broke by now. But I'm not. I'm not paying per minute. So listen ahead. You're, you're, you're not even going to busy it out. It has many, many lines coming in, far more lines than I would ever need. So it's virtually unlimited lines into it. It's a lovely invention, the call to listen line. Okay, here's the agenda. Then we're going to get Trader Ruski on here, and then we will get going. High stakes cash pro. Actually, you know what? That's not going to be our first. We're going to cover that topic, but I want to do it in order. I was reading an old agenda. I'm going to read a new agenda now. Oklahoma Johnny Hale passes away at age 92, but that is not the main story. On a Poker Fraud Alert exclusive, 
something you will read or hear nowhere else but Poker Fraud Alert, I'm going to tell you the true story of his mostly unknown grudge with the World Series of Poker that he carried until he died. It was a difficult story to understand and decipher, but I have done so. I put in the work. It was actually more work than I imagined it would be. But I think I pretty much have the whole story, and I'm going to tell you guys the whole story now that Oklahoma Johnny Hale has passed away. I actually meant to cover this a while ago. I've known about this for a number of months. I just kind of forgot, and then when I heard he died, I'm like, oh, you know what? I think Oklahoma Johnny would have wanted this told, so I'm going to tell it. High-stakes cash pro Kim Lim folded quads, quad queens she folded. She had pocket queens. There were two queens on the board. Twitter has gone crazy as to whether or not that was a reasonable fold. I will go over the the hand with you guys and give my opinion. I'm going to give you an update, a quick update on Ignition and my situation with them skimming from my cash out or their processor skimming from my cash out. Cliff Notes... Not much has changed, but I want to read you some funny emails back and forth, just how stupid their support is. Alex Foxen is under fire after he won the WPT5 Diamond, after he bought in six different times. And finally, that sixth buy-in caught fire, and now he's under fire, because people are saying, this is exactly what we don't like about poker tournaments these days. So we'll talk about Alex Foxen's Six tries to win the five diamond at 10K each, which was finally successful and he made a ton of money, but should this be allowed? We'll talk about that and the controversy that's going on right now. Olivier Bousquet, a guy with almost $9 million in tournament caches. If you've heard of him, there's probably times you've been jealous of him before and just the large caches that just seem to be just kept coming down on him effortlessly. He must have figured this young guy just is swimming in money. Well, you're going to find out the truth that he's not because he just released a new podcast. And in that podcast, he admitted the shocking fact that he's close to broke. Speaking of being broke, an addicted gambler is suing Caesars Windsor in Ontario, Canada after losing $342,000 there, claiming that they should not have let him play in the first place. We'll discuss this lawsuit and the similarity to the situation with Terrence Watanabe, the biggest casino whale of all time 12 years ago, also involving a Caesars property. The Canada Revenue Agency, the Canadian version of the IRS, is going after high-stakes poker pros in Canada for possible tax dodging. A Toyota 4Runner and its driver got stuck in the remote Black Rock Desert. If if that sounds familiar to you, the Black Rock Desert, that's because that's where Burning Man takes place. But nobody's really there outside of Burning Man. It's a very remote place. So what do you do if you get stuck in the mud in Black Rock Desert and nobody else is around? Well, Facebook found out about it, and they tried to help. I'll tell you the result of that. The Venetian is installing, or maybe already has installed, triple zero video roulette. I will tell you why that's so bad and why it's so outrageous. This already goes along with their existing triple zero live roulette game they've had in their casino for some time. 
You might be going to Las Vegas for New Year's. It's just five days away. In fact, perhaps you're already there. Perhaps you're going to drive there tomorrow or on the 29th. I'm going to give you my tips as somebody who spent many, many New Year's in Las Vegas. In fact, between 2004's New Year's and uh, I guess the one through 05, not the four New Year's. The, the New Year's 2005, January 1st, 2005, through January 1st, 2019, which is a period of 15 different New Year's, I spent almost all of them in Vegas. A few no, but most of them yes. Most of that period of time, including when I didn't live in Vegas anymore, I was in Vegas for New Year's. I'm going to give you tips on how to get the most out of New Year's in Vegas and to avoid certain things that might make your trip unnecessarily expensive or miserable. And yes, this is stuff you can still use at this point in time. This isn't something for next year. This is something you can use right now. I'm going to play you a sound towards the end of the show, and I'm going to ask you if you can hear it. Most of the listeners of this show are over 35. I am well over 35. There is a sound that was invented in 2006, but I just found out about recently, which can only be heard, for the most part, by people who are under 30. And those over 30 either can't hear it or can only hear a very soft or distorted version of it. I'm going to play you the sound, and I'm going to instruct you on what to do with the volume to test yourself And then I suggest you bring your kids over and see what they can hear. This will be one part of the show which is okay for kids. Most of the show is not recommended to be listened to in front of your kids because we'll talk about adult topics. I'll sometimes use profanity, though not that often. I'll sometimes talk about dirty stuff. I I just don't want to restrict myself. I want to be able to say what I want among other adults. But this part of the show, towards the end, that will be one segment that your your kids can listen to, and I want them to listen, and you'll see how much they can hear versus you. Finally, something nothing having to do with poker or gambling for the most part, I guess a little bit, payday loans. Are they predatory, or are they a safety net for poor people? There's been a debate about this on Twitter, and Andrew Yang actually brought the subject up. He's very against them. Donald Trump removed some restrictions that were on the payday loans. So he's apparently not very against them. So which side am I on? Am I on Andrew Yang's side? Or am I on Donald Trump's side regarding payday loans? I will tell you my opinion of payday loans and an experience that I had not receiving them myself, but one of my friends, I'm sure you can guess who it is, had an experience with them, and I had to advise him on how to get out of the entire situation. That is our show for tonight. We should have a show next week. See, I told you we're not going to miss during the holidays. We missed one show in December because I had a sore throat, but we didn't miss anything during the holidays. We did a show during Thanksgiving. We did a show during the Christmas week. We're doing a show during the New Year's week, and we're not missing. So there you go. You have something to listen to during the holiday season. I'm going to find Trader Ruski. Then we're going to get going. If you want to play the free roll, it's too late. That's it. You're not going to win the prize or the bounty. You're out of luck. By the way, if you win the bounty, let me know in some way. What's happening, Jeff? Hello, Trader Ruski. Welcome to the show, the final show of 2019. I'm glad you've been with me for just about every episode this year. 
Absolutely. It's good to close out the year this way. And happy Hanukkah. Yeah, thank and Merry you. Christmas. You, you too. <laughs> and yeah, Hanukkah's almost over, but not quite yet. We've got a little bit left. Okay, so I want to start with the Oklahoma Johnny topic. Oklahoma Johnny Hale. This is probably a name you've heard if you've been following poker for some years. Probably think of him as some old guy who's played poker for a long, long time and who's part of the old, old poker scene. You probably don't know much about him beyond that. Is, would, would that describe what you know about him, Trader Ruski? Heard the name once or twice from way, way, right. I think he played when they had those 10 table World Series. Wasn't he usually one of them? I don't know about that, but he goes way, way back and he was born in 1927. So even if you go back 30 or 40 years, which is still considered like the older days of poker, he's still one of the older guys back then, if you think about it. He was, he just died at the age of 92. He turned 92 on September 30th. He just died a few days ago. So if you, you go back 40 years, go back to 1979, which you definitely consider the old days of poker, he was 52 then, which isn't really old, but he was still one of the older players back then. We were talking about 40 years ago, he was 52. So he's been one of the older players for a long time. You go back to 1989, he was 62. So he's been known for a long time in poker as one of the old guys. And for that reason, he was a big advocate for older poker players. It came to bother him as he got older himself. And he claimed he'd been playing poker since uh, he came back from serving in the Korean War. So he claimed he was playing poker since the 50s. But as he got older, and he was one of the older guys at the table, he started to notice that there was kind of just some... Uh, disrespect shown to the older players or their ability was doubted. And you still see a lot of that today where you see someone older sit down at the table and you just assume they're not as good. In fact, someone in their 20s sees me sit down at the table and they assume I'm not as good because I'm I'm not young. I'm not one of the old guys, but I'm not one of the young guys. So there is a stereotype about older poker players that they're not as good. And the really older poker players, there's a stereotype that they're already senile or sl- slow or they don't, they're very passive and they don't know what they're doing. I'll admit that even I fall into that, uh, I, I shouldn't say trap, but I, I fall into doing that. Like when a really old guy comes and sits down at the table, I think, oh, good, he's probably a fish. And if like a guy sits down who's 25 years old, then I, I think, oh, crap, he's probably good. And sometimes I'm wrong both ways. But that's what I think. And of course... People learn this from actually playing poker and from noticing this, that this this is true of a lot of players. But what bothered Oklahoma Johnny Hale is that there were still a lot of good players who were over 50 and over 60 that uh, didn't deserve to be stereotyped that way. And he, he wanted to recognize them. He also felt they just weren't getting much respect. So he was a very big advocate of seniors in poker. And that's actually what he's best known for, if you look into his life. Now, what about him at the table? Oklahoma Johnny Hale never won a bracelet at the table. That may sound like a weird thing that I'm saying here, but he never won a bracelet at the table in that he never just sat down at a World Series of Poker bracelet event and won. In 1980, he made three final tables and finished second, third, and third. Pretty tough to get a second and two-thirds, but no first. So they actually gave him an honorary bracelet. Actually, it wasn't an honorary bracelet. They gave him a bracelet for best all around, 
which I, I should say it's not honorary. It was a real bracelet awarded in 1980 for, quote, best all around, which they don't give anymore. Now they have player of the year, but they, they don't give a bracelet for that. But this was an actual bracelet given to him in 1980 by Benny Binion, who was running it at the time, for being, quote, best all around. Of course, the series was much, much smaller in 1980. The fields were smaller. But he did get a second and two-thirds. They gave him a, a bracelet for best all around. He also has made a number of final tables, uh, none of which were after 1989, but he made uh, seven final tables, finishing the second and two-thirds, as I mentioned, then third again in 1982, seventh in 1984, third in 1985, and third in 1989. So, as you can see, he came very close. Uh, This was a guy who had... Five third-place finishes, one second-place finish, and a seventh-place finish. That's kind of unfortunate for him. He never quite got there. So that that was his poker history. He didn't play all that much in his later years at tournaments. And uh, he still played, but he wasn't playing as much. He was playing the seniors event every year, to my knowledge. But his time at the table is not really what people are going to remember about Oklahoma Johnny Hale. If you look into his life, the thing that he contributed most to poker was his seniors' advocacy. And this has been reported somewhat in poker media since he died. But what isn't being reported is something that's a much bigger story that I think needs to be known. And... To find out this story, I had to delve through his Facebook, which is very difficult to decipher. If if you want to picture what an old person's Facebook would look like, a really old person's Facebook, uh, it's probably what his looks like. It's he posted the same message over and over and over and over again, but it wasn't like he did it like ten times in a row trying to make it go through. He would do this like every few days, post the identical message with the identical typos. I I don't even know what he was doing or how that even happened, but. Uh, there's a lot of that, a lot of like right-wing political propaganda, some of which you can tell is written by someone from a different generation. Um, a lot of weird stuff on his Facebook, and you have to go through all of that to get to the good stuff about his unfinished beef with the World Series of Poker. And he wasn't the best writer, and he definitely wasn't the best at using social media, as many old people aren't. So it was really hard to decipher all of this, but I put in the time today, and I figured everything out. I may have a few small details wrong, but I'm very close to what is the full story here, and I'm going to tell it to you guys. And this isn't to speak ill of the dead. This isn't to kick him after he's gone. In fact, I'm sure he would be happy that I'm doing this, because he tried for years to get this story out, and it seemed like just nobody paid attention to it. And he didn't really have a way to get it out because he didn't understand social media very well. He had Facebook. That was pretty much it. And he didn't really understand how to really get the word out. So I'm going to tell his story. And I already tweeted out a written version of it. But I'm going to tell the story on the show here. And I think this is important to do also whenever someone well-known in poker passes away. Not to find minutia to criticize them about. But if there's something major that was going on with them then go ahead and say it. In fact, they're not going to be around to hear it. It's much worse to say it when they're going to hear it and feel bad. When someone's gone, 
um, you shouldn't just put out a very milk toast or falsely positive narrative of them. You should put out a real narrative. So like when Devilfish died, uh, everyone's saying, oh, he was so wonderful for poker, so great on TV, blah, blah, blah. I go, no. He was a well-known sexual harasser of women to his dying day, including married women. Just really, really inappropriate things. And also had a pretty bad criminal history prior to getting to poker. When Gavin Smith died, people were saying what a great guy he was, how fun he was, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well... I personally didn't like him. He didn't treat me well. And he was obnoxious sometimes, and he drank all day and all night. The guy was a drunk. So along with the positives of what can be said about certain people when they die, there are some negatives, which are, if they're major elements of their lives, need to be said. Now, Oklahoma Johnny Hale's a little bit different. I'm not really bringing out a negative. As I said, what I'm going to be putting out here is something that he would actually have wanted me to put out. I had read this story somewhere on Facebook a number of months ago, and I thought, oh, I should bring this to Poker Fraud Alert and have him come on the show. And then I kind of forgot about it. But we would have done pretty much the same segment when he was alive. And I have a feeling he would have been part of it, which I kind of regret now, but it's too late. But I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to tell you it from a very unbiased standpoint. This is Oklahoma Johnny Hale versus the World Series of Poker. And it would be easy for me to take one side or the other. But I'm not going to take any side. I'm going to report what I believe to be the honest situation. And then you guys can go from there. I'll even give you guys the ability to look all this up yourself. And you won't find this anywhere else. No other show is going to cover it this way. No no other forum is going to cover it this way unless they copy it from us. Go, go ahead and look. You won't find it. You'll only find it here. And that's why you should listen to this show. That's why you should read Poker Fraud Alert, because we put out the truth. Our show is real. We don't hold things back. I tell you the way things really were. Not, not the way you wish they were, not the way that would sound the best, but the way things actually are. And that's what I'm going to do here about Oklahoma Johnny Hale. So he was best known for two things, starting the... Seniors Poker Hall of Fame, which hasn't really had much action in recent years, and the Seniors World Championship of Poker. Now, the latter, the Seniors World Championship of Poker, is what eventually led to an unfortunate misunderstanding, which in turn led to bad blood between him and the World Series of Poker, and this ended up never resolved. It was first resolved, then another problem occurred, which was never resolved, and that's the way it will always remain since Oklahoma Johnny is no longer with us. In 2013, he released a marketing book about the Seniors World Championship of Poker, which he calls the WCOP. And you can still see this marketing book. It's online. If you go to the Poker Fraud Alert forum in the Poker Community Discussion subforum and read the thread about Oklahoma Johnny Hale's death, and you'll see a link to this uh, little book he put out. That gives a lot of the history, if you want to read about it, of the Seniors World Championship of Poker. Now, you may say, who cares? Who who cares about the Seniors World Championship of Poker? What is that? Well, it's actually very relevant to this story, and it becomes a very interesting story once you delve into it. In this book, you can see that the Seniors World Championship of Poker was created in 1994 when Johnny Hale was 66. 
And it first ran at the Oceanside Card Club in Oceanside, California, near San Diego. Trader Risky, have you heard of the Oceanside Card Club? I'm assuming that's not Ocean's Eleven. It's not. That's what I thought when I first read it too. I had not heard of it, and I and I thought maybe that's what Ocean's Eleven is called now. No, it's not. Ocean's Eleven is different. It, it is an Oceanside, but no, the Ocean's the Oceanside Card Club. I had not heard of because it closed before I started playing poker. It closed in 1997, so that was the end of the seniors WCOP because the club that was carrying it went away, and Johnny. Noticed it was pretty popular, and seniors were enjoying it, and uh, it was giving him some notoriety than the poker world, which, to be honest, uh, wasn't that large, because it was way before the poker boom in uh, 97. But he wanted to continue this. So he had to move it. He had to find a place to move uh, the Seniors World Championship of Poker. And he was having a hard time finding a casino he could come to terms with to run this to his satisfaction. And finally, he found one. Yep, he moved to Compton, would you believe? Or he didn't, but the tournament did. Yes, that Compton. I mean, this is not a play on words. This is not a different Compton. That Compton. The Crystal Park Casino in Compton which had just opened in the late 90s, was the new home of the Seniors World Championship of Poker. <laughs> I bet Wait, you... my young child was listening to that. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to give a warning. No, no parental warning on this one. Anyway, uh, it moved to the Crystal Park Casino in Compton, which, which by the way, I played at once. There was a, a friend of mine running a tournament there, and... It it was uh, a twenty dollar buy in or something. I forgot what it was. Something thirty dollar buy in, twenty dollar buy in. You rebuys. didn't you win that or something? Yes, I won it. I, I won it. And, I won it, and uh, it was in two thousand seven. And I was playing like a maniac because I didn't care. It was such a small tournament. I was just playing super aggressive. I just kept going all in. And every time I got my money in bad, I, I would two out them. <laughs> so um, I, I just skated right through that thing. Won it for like twenty one hundred bucks. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's nice. And then on the way out, like the second I walk out, a guy goes, "Hey man, can you loan me some money?" And I go, oh, "Shit!" They're they're all waiting there to see who wins this, and then they're going to start hassling him. So I politely told this person no, and then I said, "Okay, I got to get back to my car somehow without getting mugged." <laughs> so so uh, I said, "I got to come up with a plan here." And I saw there's a long hallway, which may have been intentional between uh, the poker room and the door. So I said, good. I'm going to go down this long hallway when everyone clears away and kind of keep watching without looking like I'm watching that no one's following me. And if nobody is, then I'm like way ahead of them already because the hallway's so long. So the second I got out of there, I walked very briskly to my car. And I figured if I walk at a fast pace that... It would be hard for someone to catch up with me. So I walked very briskly to my car and got in there and drove home safely with my 2100. That was my story from the Crystal Park in Compton. So I moved there. It was there for three years, from 98 through 2000. In 2001, he created a partnership with the World Series of Poker. So it moved out of Compton. It moved straight out of Compton and straight into the Horseshoe, Binion's Horseshoe in Las Vegas. 
what they did at that point is they no longer were going to call it the Seniors World Championship of Poker anymore. It was going to be called the World Series of Poker uh, Seniors event. But it was a combination venture between the World Series of Poker and Oklahoma Johnny Hale. So he he was the creator of the Seniors event. This is where I'm going. The Seniors event that Trader Ruski's played in, the one that had almost 6,000 entrants in 2019, that was the creation of Oklahoma Johnny Hale. He created a similar Seniors tournament in the 90s and then brought it to the World Series in 01. This is before the poker boom. The poker boom came in 03. So in 01, Johnny Hale brought this to the World Series and it ran at Binion's as part of the World Series. They awarded a bracelet. They also had a trophy prior to it coming to the World Series, which was brought to the World Series, called the Golden Eagle World Championship of Online Poker Trophy. And it was actually a trophy that looked like a Golden Eagle. And the trophy was uh, it was something that they would put each person's name on a uh, plaque on the trophy who won that event every year. So it wasn't a trophy you take home. It was a trophy that would stay at uh, Binion's on display with the names of the winners of this senior's event. And this goes back to when he had this at uh, the Oceanside Card Club, and he brought that over to Compton, where fortunately it didn't get stolen. And then he brought this over to uh, Harris, or not to, to Binion's, Binion's Horseshoe. Well, in 2004, speaking of Harris, my mind is a bit ahead of myself, in 2004, Harris bought the World Series of Poker and Binion's. And that's why it's currently property of Caesars, because Caesars and Harris merged the following year. So that's why the World Series of Poker is now owned by Caesars. And Harris owned it since 2004, when they bought Binion's in a very, very smart purchase, because they bought Binion's, which was in big financial trouble at that time in 04, for only $50 million, and then just took the World Series and then resold it for almost the same $50 million. They basically got the World Series for free. Genius move on the part of Harris. But anyway, what wasn't so much of a genius move was that uh, even though the Golden Eagle made it safely in and out of Compton, it did not make it safely in and out of Binion's. It got lost somehow. <laughs> I don't know if it got stolen or what the hell happened, but wa- somehow between the time that it was bought and when they went to go look for it next, it was just gone. Someone took the Golden Eagle. So Johnny Hale was in discussions with Harris, which is now the owner of the World Series, of what was going to continue with the Seniors event. And so they came to terms that, number one, the Seniors event will continue. Number two, the Seniors event will continue to award a gold bracelet, just like the other events. Number three, that they will either find or replace the Golden Eagle trophy and also put a plaque on the trophy with the names of the past and future winners. So they agreed. I don't know if the trophy's still around, I actually don't recall ever seeing it around the World Series, but at least back in, uh, as of 04, 05, it was still there, and Harris did keep up to their agreement. They did make a new one because they actually lost it, or someone lost it. It definitely got lost, like, right after the purchase. I'm not sure why, but that's around the time it's thought to have disappeared. But Harris did create a new one. Now, at that time, the World Series of Poker and Johnny Hale had a good relationship. In fact, for the 2005 World Series of Poker Seniors event at the Rio, he did the Shuffle Up and Deal presentation. 
And there's a picture on the thread on Poker Fraud Alert of Oklahoma Johnny standing with the Golden Eagle, if you'd like to see the Golden Eagle, uh, at the Rio in 2005 when he did the shuffle up and deal speech. At the time, he was in his late 70s. So everything up to this point was good. Now, it's important to understand that Johnny was not an employee of the World Series at any point. This was some partnership he had with uh, Benny Binion, maybe even been like unofficial, where they had this seniors world championship of poker as as part of the World Series, and he got paid something for it, but he wasn't an owner of it. He he didn't actually have ownership of it anymore. He had ownership up until the World Series took it, or until he kind of merged it with the World Series. But after that, I'm not sure of the exact agreement, but uh, he wasn't an owner of it anymore, and that's important to know. So then when Harris bought the World Series, they were the owner of the seniors event. And Johnny knew that, and as far as I know, he wasn't objecting to it. He was just saying, hey, now that you own it, can you please treat it the same way Benny Binion did and, and also replace the Eagle? And they did. So he was happy. And he even did that shuffle up and deal presentation in 05. But then not too long after that, things went sour. In 2008, the World Series of Poker made a change to the way they named their events. They would take the highest buy-in of every form of poker they were offering and calling that the World Championship event. So, for example, there were several Limit Hold'em events, but the highest buy-in one, which was 10K, was called the 10K World Championship Limit Hold'em event. For events where there was only one type, like the Casino Employees event, it would just be called the World Championship Casino Employees event. And that's the way it worked that year and in 2009. I noticed at some point after that, not too long after they introduced it, the World Championship designation disappeared. I never knew why. Now, keep in mind, there was nothing special about the World Championship designation. This was something they just called it for a while for marketing purposes. They say, well, it's a 10K buy-in, so we'll, we'll just call it the World Championship. And then that went away. And I just thought, okay, it was just a change they made. Maybe they didn't like it. Well, no, it had to do with Oklahoma Johnny Hale. In 2010, Oklahoma Johnny became aware of this World Championship designation, and he was especially upset because the Seniors event was called the Seniors World Championship, and it was very close to the name of his tournament, the Seniors World Championship of Poker. So he really felt that they had stolen his intellectual property. I I think Oklahoma Johnny really believed that they stole this from him. He really believed that they just appropriated that name for themselves and didn't compensate him. I don't think that's what happened. I think they really just picked that name out because it's, you know, it's a generic world championship. They wanted to make the 10K event sound cooler and get a bigger field because they weren't getting very big fields in these events. They were getting 100-something people. They wanted to get more, so they're trying to pump it up, make you sound like a like the world championship, you know, better than – of course, all the bracelets are supposed to be like world championship bracelets, but they're trying to say this is like above just a regular bracelet. This is a world championship bracelet. So sometime in January 2010, Oklahoma Johnny sent an email to Ty Stewart, who's still with the World Series now, but back then he was the vice president of the World Series working below Jeffrey Pollock. I don't have a copy of that email, but I do have a copy of the response that Johnny received from Ty Stewart. How do I have a copy of this? Because he posted it on Facebook. However, he posted this on Facebook very poorly, and it was very hard to read, and I I cleaned it up. I I left the exact email as is, but I cleaned up so you can read it as Ty Stewart actually had sent it and posted it on Poker Fraud Alert in that same thread. So here's the email I'm going to read to you from Ty Stewart 
on February 9, 2010. Oklahoma Johnny, hope all is well with you. Carla has been asking me to follow up with you. Know you were expecting some resolution to your complaints. I'm not sure who Carla is, but it doesn't matter. I hope the following is acceptable. Number one, we in no way seek to use any intellectual property outside of our own. We referred to our seniors championship and every one of our highest buy-in events per discipline as world championships only because they were recognized as such by players and media. We had zero idea of your history with the Binion family when we made this decision to add the world championship designation to these 10 events played annually. Number two, therefore, if you feel confident in your registration of the seniors and world championship and seek to stage it elsewhere, you will not receive any pushback from us. In fact, as professional courtesy, I'm more than happy to socialize the opportunity to run an Oklahoma Johnny poker tournament at all our casinos. If you want to put together a proposal, I will share it with markets in Atlantic City, Tahoe, etc. So that's, that's a pretty good offer, saying that uh, not only have we dropped that name World Championship, but we're actually going to open an offer to you that you are allowed to run a Oklahoma Johnny Seniors Championship, Seniors World Championship, and in fact, we'll run it at our properties and, and give you some piece of it. That's that's a pretty good offer. Number three, we do, however, recognize your importance as the, quote, elder statesman of poker and feel honored if you continue to come to the World Series. I am happy for you to participate with an official welcome to the players immediately before the World Series of Poker Seniors Championship event each year you choose to come out to Vegas. You will be introduced by the tournament director and given the microphone for some brief comments. We think this will be a great way to continue to highlight what a great ambassador you are for poker and seniors poker in particular. I am also very happy to pick up your hotel room for two nights at the tournament each year you can attend. I'm happy to make reservations for you personally. Why only two nights? <laughs> they can't give him three? What if he makes the final table of the seniors? He's got to pay his own way the third night? And as the last part of the deal, I'm hoping that we can make having steak and lobster dinner together my treat an annual tradition one of the nights around the series. I love hearing the stories about the pioneers of the game, and I know you have a bunch. I know it's been several years now that you feel you got your you haven't gotten your due. Definitely want that to change and feel proud to have Oklahoma Johnny front and center, maybe side by side with future bracelet winner Oklahoma Sarah. That's his daughter, by the way. Best Ty Stewart, Vice President, World Series of Poker. That's a pretty good letter. I think Ty Stewart was being generous here. Yeah, Ty could have just said, F you, we own it, we can call it what we want. World championship is a designation that's generic enough to where you could never claim that uh, you have any kind of claim to it and you definitely don't have a trademark to world championship so you don't agree take us to court f off he could have said he could have said that but uh in a polite way instead he's like look 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 you know let's compromise here we won't call it that anymore we'll let you run your seniors world championship of poker at one of our properties uh, that's separate from the world series and you'll get a piece of it and i want to have a steak dinner with you like this this is a, a pretty good letter that i think oklahoma johnny should have been satisfied with well was he yes he actually was this this actually smoothed over the situation for a little while and oklahoma johnny hale took them up on their offer and they created a seniors world championship of poker version, and I'll call, tell you in a second what it really ended up being, at Caesars starting in 2011. However, it was not called what it was called before. In 2011 was the creation of 
the Super Seniors event. Now you may say, the Super Seniors, I know that. That's the event that you have to be 60 or older to play at the World Series. But that's not what this was in 2011. That did not make it to the World Series until 2015. In 2011, it was actually considered to be run by Oklahoma Johnny. He was called Oklahoma Johnny Hale Presents. So he didn't physically run it, but he was, he was the, uh, the kind of the uh, executive producer of that tournament. And it was called the Super Seniors, and it was for seniors who were 65 and older. And this ran at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas starting in 2011. Uh, I found a remnant of the 2012 version because they had this uh, commemorative coin or something they gave out, or a commemorative chip that I found a copy of on the web from the 2012 version. And this chip says, Oklahoma Johnny Hale presents the Super Seniors June 16th to 18th, 2012. So it is. it was during the World Series, too. Not part of the World Series, but it was something that was going on during the World Series. At Caesar's Palace, not in uh, the Rio. And you can see a copy of that little commemorative chip if you go to the same page that I posted all this stuff on in Poker Fraud Alert. Well, that was the end of the good relations between the World Series of Poker and Oklahoma Johnny Hale. And where it all fell apart was in 2015. See, prior to this, there was some kind of charity element to this. I'm not sure which charity, but... This was important to Oklahoma Johnny to raise money for certain charities through these senior events. And they were doing that, and they were doing that at Caesars. And then in 2015, they made the decision, hey, you know, this is actually a good idea, super seniors. We have the seniors for 50 and above, but let's face it, 50 isn't really kind of a real senior. And I can verify that. I'm only a little more than two years away from being 50, and I don't feel like a senior. Troy Daruski here. He's past 50. Do you feel like a senior, Trader Risky? Absolutely not. Okay. So we, we don't feel like seniors. And I, I don't think we're in denial. I don't think people would look at us and say, oh, these guys are senior citizens. Maybe teenagers would, but most people wouldn't. So they said, hey, you know, there's some real seniors that are 65 and up that would like to play an event only with other real seniors. So the 50 seniors event, that's kind of just a, it's more of a get away from the young people event. That's not a real seniors event. But, but let's have a real seniors event called the Super Seniors. That's a great idea Johnny came up with. Let's forget having it at Caesars where no one is during the World Series. Let's move it and have it be a real part of the World Series. And in 2015, that's what they did. And it still is to this day. So starting 2015, it became an event of the World Series. You'd think Johnny would have been happy with that, but he was not. Why? Because the charity element to it was gone. And why is that? Well, because they already had a charity involved in the World Series of Poker. And that is the One Drop, which is still the World Series of Poker charity that they're doing at the moment. So they did not want to have two charity events. They, they felt it was going to confuse the matter. They didn't want to have people think, well, which one should I play? Which charity event? Should it be the Super Seniors charity event or the One Drop charity event? I mean, yes, the Super Seniors, only a small percentage of the players can play because of the age restri- restriction. But still, uh, they didn't want to make it complicated where there's two different charities involved. They, they just wanted one charity involved with the World Series of Poker. So they told Johnny, sorry, uh, the charity element's going to have to go away. Now it's just part of the regular World Series. And that's the way it's going to be. Well, Johnny was not happy about that. He said, this is my event. You can't just change this on me. The the Super Seniors was conceived to be a charity event. It always has been. And 
you can't just change that. And they said, well, we're sorry, but yes, we can. We own it. See, Oklahoma Johnny did not own the Super Seniors. He was like a consultant. I don't know what his exact arrangement was with them, but he was like a consultant who helped them create this and helped them promote it. But he did not own it. From the very moment it came to exist in 2011, it was owned by Caesars. So whatever Caesars chooses to do with it, they can, and he has no legal recourse. Well, to an older man who may have already been starting to lose some of his uh, sharpness mentally, uh, this is kind of hard to get his head around. This is a guy who thinks of it, look, this is my tournament. I created it. They said, hey, Johnny, you know, come come to one of our properties. We'll create a tournament around you. And, and so I create the Super Seniors, and then they take it away and say, we're changing the terms on it, and too bad you have no control. It's ours now? To him, it looked like a bait and switch. To him, it looked like he was cheated. It looked like he was tricked. And they, they tried to reason with him. They tried to say, look, you, you don't understand. You, we created it with you, but it's ultimately ours, and we've, we're going to continue it. But And we'll continue to honor you. We'll continue to associate you with it. But we can't have it to where we have two charities. We, we like the tournament enough to we want it to be part of the main World Series. But we can't do it if it's going to be a charity tournament. But we really want to have it over there so that we just have to drop the charity part. Sorry. Well, he was furious about this. And he and Ty Stewart really went back and forth about this. And... There is no calming Oklahoma Johnny down. Here's something he wrote earlier this year about uh, his beef with Ty Stewart, which remained until the day he died. He said, I was made a member of the Benny, referring to Benny Binion, World Series of Poker Hall of Fame when I merged my brand. And I have won the Seniors World Championship of Poker at the poker table. He's saying that he won the Seniors event before as part of the World Series. And Ty will not let it be recognized. I did win the 1980 World Series of Poker Gold Bracelet on the poker table, best all-around poker player in the world, and Ty will not recognize that. So when Ty stole my two brands, referring to the Seniors event and the Super Seniors, but said he wanted only one charity in his World Series of Poker, yes, he told me he owned it, one drop of water for Africa, etc., so what, what he's saying here is it looks pretty obvious that uh, not only did they steal his two brands, in his opinion, but they also were not recognizing him as the bracelet winner that he was and the seniors event champion that he was. He's claiming that uh, they don't list him that way because when they – it wasn't part of the World Series when he won it. I'm talking about the seniors event. And that uh, they won't recognize his gold bracelet, he says. They won't recognize him as a bracelet winner since he didn't actually win an event. So if you go to check him out, it doesn't say Oklahoma Johnny Hale uh, bracelet, one bracelet. It says zero bracelets. That's what he meant by Ty does not recognize that. And on top of that, he feels that they stole his two brands, the seniors and super seniors. What further really pissed him off as the years went on was how quickly the seniors events were growing. And as I said, last year, the seniors event, the 150 and up, had like 5,900 players. And next year, it's going to have even more. It's just every year it grows because more and more poker players age into it, as I will in two years. If you go to Johnny Hale's profile on WSP.com, he's correct. It says bracelets zero. 
and that really got his goat. He he didn't like that it said bracelet zero. He didn't like that he was wasn't listed as a bracelet winner. He didn't like that he wasn't considered a seniors event winner by the World Series, and and he especially didn't like the fact that they were running these two events each year, and that they were growing in popularity, especially the seniors, and that they were raking one hundred dollars from each entry which he referred to all the time on his Facebook, especially this year. He posted over and over and over about how they're raking $100 per chair. And he calculated they, they collected about $870,000 worth of rake this year from the two events combined, which I didn't bother to look it up, but it's probably close to accurate. So he's furious about that. Now, yes, the 870000 not all of that goes to them. They also have to give some of that to the staff as the auto tip. And, of course, they have expenses to run the whole thing. But but did they make a lot of money from these two events? Yes, they did. They definitely did. Then they made all the associated money from these events, of uh, from these seniors who came to town to play that event and spent other money at their properties, either losing gambling or spending money at the hotel or in restaurants or whatever. So they, they, they did make good money this year and other years that they've been running the seniors' event which he felt they stole from him. And it was infuriating him to watch that these were only getting bigger and they were making more and more money. And he probably noticed that, thanks to him, that in 2019 they probably made an extra... One million dollars. So with that, I can understand how he feels. Now, am I saying he's legally in the right? No, he's not. He, he ha- Legally, he has no power. Am I saying morally he's in the right? Well, that one's a little tougher. Definitely legally, he has no foot to stand on. Morally, I can see both sides. I can see where he may have felt that this was going to be like his tournament. Because remember, the whole thing started because he was complaining about them calling it a seniors championship and using the word world championship for other events, and he didn't like that. So he complained, and they said, sorry, 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 we didn't realize that. Not only are we going to stop doing that, but we're going to give you your own tournament at one of our properties, and, and you can run it every year, blah, blah, blah. So And they did. So he thinks it's his, and then five years later, they're like, oh, actually, no, we're, we're taking that and moving into the World Series, not yours anymore. So I can see how that kind of pisses him off. Now, it doesn't look like they were erasing him from being part of it. It looks like he probably erased himself from being part of it because he was pissed they weren't going to continue the charity portion of it. So it was. It was – I'd like to classify this as a misunderstanding. This is an old guy who probably doesn't understand uh, the, the whole situation with, with corporate ownership of intellectual property and all of that. He probably only has a very limited understanding of it. Probably never had a big understanding of it, but especially once he was over 80 and he wasn't as sharp anymore, he probably had especially a limited understanding of it. So to him, he just kind of thought this was Ty giving his word that this is his tournament. And then Ty was kind of left in a bad spot because they're like, you know you know what? The Super Seniors is a good thing. We really want to be part of the World Series, but we can't have it be a charity thing. So their choice at the World Series was to either just not move it and lose out on an opportunity or to move it and take away the charity. They, they really couldn't have two charities running. I understand how that would have been confusing, and it may have also pissed off uh, Guy Liberté, who is – had these huge one-drop events every year, and it's a huge thing they have there. They can't disrupt that. So I, I understand the World Series' dilemma with this, and I can understand how when you try to reason with a very old, cantankerous, and stubborn person about it, 
that that person's like, nope, nope, I, I think you're not keeping your word. You ain't keeping your word, son. Uh, it's like I can see how this was happening. And it's sad. It, it really is. And that's basically the way it ended. It's too bad they never came to terms. It's too bad that Oklahoma Johnny couldn't have been the ambassador for the seniors event every year, that he couldn't have introduced it every year, that he couldn't have uh, been a major figure associated with that World Series of Poker Seniors event. They could, they could have even called it the Oklahoma Johnny Seniors event. I mean, there, there's a lot they could have done with it that ended up not happening because of these various disputes he had. Now, Kev Math, who always brings the hits, he always brings the good information, and Kev Math works for the World Series of Poker during the summer as someone who disseminates information, very useful information. In fact, he operates the WSOP account on Twitter during the World Series, and very, very good hire on the part of the World Series to bring in Kev Math. He listens to this show also, by the way. But he posted today on Poker Fraud Alert, if you dare go through his Facebook, he had a series of other grudges and complaints, such as against Nolan Dalla. And he said before the start of the seniors event, uh, Johnny Hale would ask players to stand and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And I guess Nolan Dalla didn't like that and argued with him about it. Jim McManus, I, I believe Jim McManus, he, he didn't describe this here, but I, I'm just saying from what I saw on his Facebook, Jim McManus was disagreeing with Oklahoma Johnny's take on the World Series of Poker and Ty Stewart, and they argued about that. And then Matt Savage, apparently about a penalty that Matt Savage gave to Oklahoma Johnny way back in uh, the early 2000s. That's a long grudge to hold. So apparently he also hated Matt Savage, which I noticed as well. I didn't quite understand what it was about, but he really also disliked Matt Savage. And he also got his Twitter suspended for ranting about all this stuff over and over again, and somehow he got suspended. I don't know for specifically what rule he violated. According to Kev Math, he also was known to go on extended monologues at the start of this World Series of Senior, the World Series of Poker Seniors event, and most didn't really want to listen to it. He would try to lecture everybody about different things there. <laughs> he still played the seniors event, apparently. I don't know if it's the super seniors or the seniors, probably both, but that uh, he was known to go on these uh, long monologues and be able to like, you know, Johnny, just sit down and play. So it sounds to me that he was kind of like the difficult old person, the stereotypical difficult old person who's stubborn and just very set in their ways. He just won't really understand the reality of some things that are frustrating to them. And and that's part of life, that there are certain things which suck, which are unfair, which you think are unfair, but you realize there's nothing you can do to change them. And also sometimes you have to understand how the world works. Like with when dealing with corporate entities, if you create anything while employed by them, or if you create anything as a consultant working for them, they own it. And then if they do something with it you don't like afterwards, it's tough luck. And this can suck, this can be personally frustrating, but this is something that an adult should know when they do it. And if you don't like that, then you shouldn't be working there as a consultant or as an employee. You should be working on your own, and then nobody can take your stuff. The and, you know, and, and the reason to work for a, a place like Caesars with something like this is that then you have guaranteed uh, income from it. You don't have to worry about how the tournament does. You don't have to worry about the expenses to put on the venue. There's a lot you don't have to worry about if you're an employee or a consultant, but then, of course, you lack control. 
But sometimes old people with things like this, it just seems very black and white to them. Well, I, I created the, the the seniors and the super seniors, so it's mine. It's it's mine. Uh, they 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 can't they can't mess with it because it's mine. They they tricked me. They tricked me. So I, I see how it happened, and I'm not saying this to make fun of him. I had uh, a grandmother. The three of my grandparents died by the time I was nine, and uh, the only grandparent I had that I got to know very well because she lived until I was 27. Uh, at the very end, she got very senile at the very end she didn't know what was going on it actually happened very quickly like two years before she died she was fine and then by the day she died she didn't even know who my mom was who was her daughter so that shows you the deterioration that occurred uh i had a great-grandmother who died when i was like seven so i didn't get to know her but she went senile in her later days and she died at age 91 so i'm not making fun of old people who go senile and uh, basically their mind goes in later years. My grandmother, who went senile, my mom had problems with her in the final two years where she would just be crazy and irrational about things because her mind didn't work the same way. And truthfully, even before that, when she was sharp, she just kind of became a typical old person and was also unreasonable about things. Even though she could fully understand them, she just was stubborn and uh, didn't really want to think about it, you know, the, the, the way things really were. And that's that's a very old person sort of thing. It's it's kind of hard for me to picture myself that way when I'm that age, if I make it that long. But maybe maybe I will be. I I found out last year how much uh, changes in my brain can change me from what I went through last year. So I'm I'm sure it could happen to me too, even if I don't have. Uh, true senility come in just just a loss of sharpness a loss of ability to think critically and this type of thing happens to older people so i'm not even trying to give johnny a hard time here uh he was just kind of a a typical old person in his last uh say at least 15 years probably on on this planet because he was pretty old let's face it he just died at 92 I don't think the World Series of Poker ripped him off at all. I don't know how much they could have done. It looked like they were trying to be uh, cordial with him. They looked like they were trying to be respectful. It looked like they were trying to be reasonable and went above and beyond to offer him some opportunities that they didn't have to do. Now, I don't think this was all out of uh, generosity. He was a known name in poker especially among seniors' events. And they probably figured if they associate him with seniors' events, it'll probably do better, and that he's a good ambassador to have. It's just kind of a good look for the company to have. It would have been something mutually beneficial, to be honest. For them to associate the seniors' events with him, they probably would have made more money, and then he would have made money from having a part in the whole thing. And it's too bad that they couldn't have done this until the very end. It's too bad that these disputes arose, but the, but I see how it all happened. And aside from just not having super seniors, I can't see how the World Series of Poker could have avoided what occurred in 2015. So I don't think they ripped him off. I don't think they hoodwinked him, as he liked to say on his Facebook a lot of times. I don't think he was cheated or tricked. But at the same time... Uh, 
I can see where that where he came to that conclusion, and I can see how frustrating it was when he thought he was creating something with them under his own terms, and they just snatch it and say, "Nope, it's going to be part of the main World Series and no charity element anymore." And he's like, "What?" But that was the whole point of this. I understand how he felt that way, and to be honest, if forgetting the whole seniors element, let's say the World Series came to me and said, "Okay, we'll create a Todd Wattellis tournament." at one of our properties and then I get to specify exactly the way the tournament goes and let's say I did come up with a charity element to him to, to the whole thing and then if a few years later they grab it and move it to the World Series and, and kill the charity element I'd be pissed too I would understand it though I would understand that I was only working as a consultant and I didn't own it and unless I had an explicit agreement with them not to do this then I, I couldn't be that mad in fact, I'd mainly be mad at myself for not having that written in a contract that it can't be modified in this way, or if it moved to the World Series, it still has to have this and that. I would have made sure to protect myself, but then again, I'm not an 80-year-old man. So I don't think he protected all that much as far as what it would be once it started up at Caesars in 2011. And then they changed it, which they had every right to do, and he felt like he got ripped off. It was a complicated situation. It was a situation that you really can see both sides of it. And it's too bad it ended this way. I'm hoping that despite all the bad blood and despite the fact that he uh, would annoy some people at the seniors event with his long monologue that nobody wanted to hear, I hope that given all this history and given that he really was a very big figure in seniors poker and that seniors poker is becoming such a big thing at the World Series... That's the fastest-growing event. I keep saying it, but it is. This is the fastest-growing event. It's a huge thing now. It's going to get bigger every year. And since Oklahoma Johnny Hale really was behind the whole concept, and he did this before anyone else did, and he brought it to the World Series, and then he brought the Super Seniors to the World Series, since he did all that, I hope they honor him in some way in 2020. And I think maybe, even though he won't be around to see it or comment on it, I think that might be a fitting end to the whole thing. But this is the this is the story. This is the only place you're going to get that story. You look on Poker News, you look on Card Player, you're going to see short articles about him and the, the final tables he made and that he brought the Seniors event to the World Series, and that's it. This is the full story. This is And he ranted on Facebook a lot about this. He was pissed. This consumed him every day. He'd wake up every day pissed that the World Series of Poker ripped him off. It's really too bad. It's really too bad that that was on his mind in like his last decade of life. Because this goes back to 2010. This didn't just happen a few months ago. So every day he's felt the World Series of Poker has ripped him off and nobody listened to him about it. And I guarantee if he were alive and I tried to explain what I just said now to him, he wouldn't agree with me. And in fact, he may think I was on the World Series side. He even went to the police and the FBI at one point about this when he had thought that they stole his intellectual property. He thought this was some sort of theft that he could report to law enforcement, not understanding this is a civil matter. He could, At best, he could sue them, which, to my knowledge, he never did. But you can't go to the FBI and say, hey, the World Series of Poker uh, stole my idea. That's not how it works. That's a, totally a civil matter. So he went to the police and the district attorney, and they dismissed it because, of course, uh, this is not a criminal matter. 
Then he went to the FBI and he claims, I don't have any verification of this, but he claims that he got arrested for criminal trespassing, which probably happened. And then he made a complaint to the national version of the FBI about that local Las Vegas field office that they arrested him for trying to make a report. So here's his claim about that, and then I'll tell you what I think really happened. He said, when I, make it, when I made an appointment with a local FBI office in Las Vegas, I was told appointments were not made. Just come on in and report the facts to them. When my daughter took me to the Las Vegas FBI, I tried to report the facts of fraud and the international crime that was committed. I was arrested for criminal trespass. I reported the in-house crime incident to the federal FBI and that they had to take care of the crime with their internal affairs. And then later on, he goes on to describe how the FBI is corrupt and they're a tool of the left. See, in recent years, because of Trump's issues with the FBI, which I, I won't get into here, that's a whole different matter, but Trump and the FBI have been at odds, as you probably know. So since he was a very, very big fan of Donald Trump, he said, oh, there we go. That's why the FBI arrested me for criminal trespass. That's why they wouldn't take my case. They're just, they're corrupt and they're a tool of the left. So that's not what happened here. I'm sure, I shouldn't say I'm sure. I think what probably happened is he went to the FBI, tried to report things. They kept saying, sir, this is a civil matter. We can't do this here. They probably just kept trying to send him away, and he was feeling like they were refusing to take his report. And maybe at some point he forced himself in and said, no, you're going to take my report now. I'm not going to leave till you do. And they're like, okay, sir, we're going to arrest you for criminal trespass. I don't care. I'm not leaving. Okay, we're arresting you. It had to be something like that. They, no matter how wacky your report is, and believe me, the FBI gets a lot of whack job reports to them every day. A lot of people come to the FBI with nonsense. In fact, they make it very difficult to even reach them. You can't call the FBI very easily. Seriously, try to look up how to call the FBI. It's not easy to find because they don't want to field a bunch of calls from crazies. So they they have a form you submit about uh, uh, any crime that's going on. And uh, uh, it's pretty hard to reach them. And that's the reason. They get a lot of crazies. So believe me, a crazy coming in and making a weird report, they're not going to arrest you for doing that. In fact, there's no crime in doing that. But there must have been something with him refusing to leave, and then they threatened they'd arrest him. And believe me, they give further leeway because they see he's old. Like this, this happened in in 2015 or later. So this was when he was in his late 80s or early 90s. And believe me, if a guy that age comes in and tries to make a report and sounds crazy, they're not going to arrest the old man unless they really, really feel they have to. They'll say, look, sir, please leave. We're going to have to arrest you if you won't leave. If, they probably have to say that to him like for half an hour before they really arrest him. Because they don't want to do that. They don't want to arrest 90-year-olds for coming down to make a weird report. So that happened to That was by his own reports on his own Facebook. I don't know if this is true, but it, it probably some form of this happened. He probably did get arrested. But he didn't – sorry, Jeff. He didn't have a trademark, right? Is he He's saying he had a, an agreement with uh, Benny Binion? He didn't say any of that. It's very, very difficult to follow the Facebook. If you look at my write-up of it on Poker Fraud Alert or you listen to my summary here and compare it to his Facebook, I mean my thing is like 100 times clearer than anything he ever wrote. I had to, I had to scrutinize this so closely to figure out what the hell's going on. And – I will tell you, I did not see any claims that he had any trademark. I did not see any kind of uh, valid legal claims that would even begin to stand up in court. I did not see any agreement he had, oral or written, with the World Series regarding what they'd be doing. The only agreement that I saw that he said that 
they had, which was through this document that was published in 2013, was when Harris bought the World Series that they'd keep the seniors event, they'd continue awarding a bracelet for it, and that they'd either find or replace that lost Golden Eagle trophy, all of which they did. But it didn't say anything about him being part of it, right? No, I, I, it didn't. Even the write-up, even this, this uh, little booklet he put out back in uh, 2013, I tried to go through that. And, and keep in mind, the booklet in 2013 was very positive. In fact, it didn't criticize the World Series at all because think of the timetable. This is when they were still running their seniors event uh, at Caesars. So he was still on good terms with them at that point. And, uh, but this whole little booklet, it, it had the whole history of the event from 1994 up until then. And uh, it, it, but it, so it didn't mention anything about any specific agreement they had to keep him part of it. I, I think it may be kind of like a gentleman's agreement, where he'll just stay part of it as like a consultant. But that's just my guess. I, I only went by what I could find on his Facebook and what I could find in this little uh, booklet he released. It looks like Colonel Sanders in that Hendon mob picture. <laughs> he does kind of look like Colonel Sanders. Uh, like, like for example, it says this uh, in, in that booklet on page 5. In 2011, we will christen a new tournament for seniors, the Super Seniors, which will debut in June at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. At press time, the details were still being worked out, but with the help and guidance of the poker, poker room manager, Andy Rich, we are expecting to unveil a new and exciting event for senior poker players. And, uh, but, and he did write regarding the way they treated his original seniors event, and from the start, Harris has been true to its word, thanks to the great leadership, which includes Howard Greenbaum, Ty Stewart, and Jeffrey Pollock. So, of course, this was before he had the final falling out in 2005. This was, this was after the complaint he wrote in the beginning of 2010, but before the 2015 complete fallout over the charity thing with the Super Seniors. So that was, that was the beginning of the end there. It's kind of too bad to see something like that happen. He has himself somewhat to blame there. And I think just kind of circumstances... To blame too. It's kind of a tough spot for the World Series. It really was. So you know, whenever poker players die, we get the we get the whole story. Remember, we did our, our episode a few months ago about that woman, uh, Erica Trank, who was a, yeah. a former poker pro that uh, had died, and I figured out what happened there and its involvement with Michael DiMichele. Like nowhere else covers this stuff. It's, it's only us. If it wasn't for us, this stuff would never come out. It would never come out. And nobody, like, nobody wants to publish this except us. But I do. I want you guys to know the truth. I want you to know what's really going on behind the curtain. And that's going to be a little bit of a theme of this show, because a little bit later I'm going to play you some clips of Olivier Bousquet's new podcast, where he kind of pulls back the curtain on his own life, and you find out some surprising details about him. And by the way, he's not someone I really care for very much. I don't really mind him from a personal standpoint. I've never had any negative interactions with him, either online or live. In fact, I played with him on World Series of Poker Main Event Day 5, and he pretty much sat there and said nothing the whole time. But uh, still, he was a successful poker player, and uh, some of the things you're going to hear are very surprising that I'm going to play you from his podcast he just released. So it's always the most interesting to me to find out the backstories to a lot of these players that you hear their name or you hear about some accomplishment they have, but you don't know about a lot of the drama behind the scenes. Okay, moving on. Let's move on to some other drama, which is not behind the scenes, front and center on Twitter, and that is the quads fold. I'm going to tell you guys the hand, and you guys can tell me if you would have folded here. 
Trotoruski, I'm going to get your opinion too. So this is involving a player named Kim Lim. That's K-Y-M-L-I-M. She's Asian, as you might guess. A high-stakes cash pro who plays No Limit Hold'em. And this was a hand that she explained herself. It is not on camera. It is not uh, anywhere that can be verified, but I believe it occurred. Also, annoyingly, uh, she deleted one of her tweets. <laughs> i got to always save these tweets. Uh, I embed these tweets in the forum, embedding meaning that it's just grabbing it from Twitter and posting through the Twitter embed module, so you can click on it and go right to Twitter. It's, it's a nice feature. only problem is if the person deletes their tweet, it's just gone. So sometimes it's better to take a screenshot of it and post the screenshots. But I like having the whole embedding of the Twitter, and it's easier, so I do it that way, and then I always regret it when tweets disappear. Well, at least four of her five tweets are still here, so I will read those to you. So this is what she tweeted on December 22nd. Here's the hand, 20, 40, 80, no limit. Uh, and this is like a, a 20, 40 game with an 80 mandatory straddle, a 20, 40, 80. It's a pretty big game, as you might guess. Uh, a regular opens early position to $200. And remember, this is cash. This is not a tournament. I flat next to act with pocket queens. Now, you may say, wait a minute. Why, why is she flatting with queens? Well, you'll, you'll understand a little bit more as we get further in the hand. A fish flats in position. Flop, ace, queen, queen, two diamonds. Obviously a monster flop for her. Flop quads. Checks around. Turn, eight of diamonds. That makes three diamonds. Of course, she's hoping someone has the flush. She still has the nuts. Checks around again. River, ten of diamonds. Well, now there's an ace, queen, eight, and ten of diamonds, meaning that jack nine of diamonds or jack king of diamonds now beats her, being straight or a royal flush, depending on which of the two they have. So the regular bets $200. Kim makes it $1,500. The fish folds. The regular makes it 6800 Kim, not believing he has one of the two hands that can beat her, makes it 21000 So as you see, they're very deep here. This is a 20-40-80 game, and she's now making it 21000 And then he shoves for 63000 I don't know how much more she had behind. She doesn't reveal that, but it sounds like she probably had to call that final 42000 So this sh- this is a very, very deep game, and this explains why she flatted with the queens initially. Similar to the World Series of Poker main event, there's a lot more flatting and passive play because people don't want to get a lot of chips in without the nuts. So so uh, she folded. She folded her quads. That's hard for some people to believe that she folded quads. Pocket queens boarded ace, queen, queen, eight, ten... And it would require a two-card straight flush or two-card royal flush to beat her. This is, it's not like it was ace-queen, jack-king, all of diamonds, and a single ten beats her. That would be much more obvious. But the, here it's ace-queen, ten-eight of diamonds. So it has to be jack-nine or jack-king of diamonds only can beat her. So the question is, was the fold correct here? Now let me go on to read you what she wrote besides that. Okay, sure you think I'm a whale for folding quads, but please don't say mean things like I have a backer who I sleep with or that I come from a rich family. It hurts my feelings. 
Also, and also, y'all realize if this was the case, I wouldn't be folding quads, right? You fucking turds. It seems like my quads hand is making its rounds on some poker forums and chats. I honestly was 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 not even that tilted making the fold, but it's tilting having to listen to all these dudes who've never played bigger than two five or five ten telling me you have quads, call the forty two k more. So you can see she's getting irritated already. Not so much with what's being said on Twitter, uh, but people who she, she's reading two plus two and she's reading Facebook groups and she's seeing all these people calling her a fish and saying, oh, this this woman must be backed. You know, this could be her own money. This is you know, she must. How, how could someone? be playing for these stakes unless they're backed or, or have a rich family. Like she was reading these things and getting pissed. So then she wrote, and no, I don't have a backer or a rich family. I play on my own dollar and have grinded my face off to get where I'm at. If you all want to say shit about that, make sure you realize that if this was the case, there would be no discussion here about me ever folding quads. K thanks. Bye. There's another tweet in this whole fray, which was deleted. I'm forgetting which one, but I don't remember. I, I don't remember anymore, but it must have been something she's, not proud of posting anymore. So what do I think of this? Well, first of all, I think she made a mistake. I'm not, I'm not a high-stakes, no-limit player. I play no-limit tournaments sometimes. Really only at the World Series, to be honest. And I play Limit Hold'em, and I play Omaha 8 or better, and I play PLO 8. I, I don't play no-limit cash very much. I hardly play it at all. And definitely not at those type of stakes. So maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but to me, there was a big mistake here with all the checking that went on. If you want to check the flop, fine, but I think even firing the flop can be useful because a lot of people won't expect you're going to fire the flop if you flop quads. If you're firing that flop, people may think you have an ace-king. They could think you have uh, just a queen. They could think maybe you have a flush draw, you're trying to run people off or make it cheaper for you to, to bet through. People aren't going to think you flopped quads, especially flatting the queens. So I Now, ace-queen's a possibility. They may be afraid of ace-queen, but then you'll really get a lot of money out of someone with aces, provided that the possibility to beat you from a royal or straight flush doesn't fall. So, Or, or quad aces, of course. Which didn't happen here. So I think checking around on the flop was already a mistake, and I think the turn check was definitely a mistake. Because the turn now, a flush has been made too, and it even opens the chance for people with like a king of diamonds to make a one-card flush. So firing something there not only builds the pot when you have the nuts at the moment, but it also gives you an idea of where people are at. The problem with the check, 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 all the way to the river is you have no idea where anyone has at that point. No idea. So she should have fired the turn and then maybe got lucky because she, she, she could have been against pocket aces, 8-8, eight, eight, queen-8, eight, ace-8, eight, any of those, or maybe even a flush. So any of those would have given her action or maybe even raised her. So like like if you're against queen-8, maybe you get raised. If you get pocket aces, you definitely get raised. The regular's probably not raising the flush. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of hands the person could have. Now, forget ace-8. I don't know why I said that. That's uh, That wouldn't help. But queen-8 would help. There's a lot of hands that could either be still drawing on the turn or, or would give you action or maybe even raise you. 
on the turn. So you you want to start putting the action on the turn for sure, but it checked around again. And then on the river, the problem is that since the pot started out small, coming into the river, the pot's small. So someone's only going to give you like really significant action if they have you beat or unless they have a really sick read on you that you're going to lay down quads. And the other problem is it's not like the guy went all in immediately. If you look at the action, he bets 200. She goes 1,500. He makes it 6,800. She makes it 21,000. The problem with the 6,800 is that she could easily just call there and he's losing if he, if he can't be quads. This is a regular. This is not the fish. The fish, you may say, well, I've got to do, I've got to call against him. But this is the regular there who I don't think is going to be pissing away money like this. Because on a board like ace, queen, queen, eight, ten, I mean, they, they've got to have something. It's hard to get people to lay it on that board. It, it can be like, let's say if ace, queen there, it, it can be hard to get someone to fold when you go over the top to 6,800 over, over 1,500. So a lot of people there are going to shut down there and, and just call. Really, the only hand that's going to re-raise you at that point that, uh, of course, you're beating if you have a straight flush or, or royal flush is the pocket queens. But he can't just assume she has pocket queens. So for this to be a move, he would have to be sure she has pocket queens and that he can just run her off that. Or that she's putting a move on him. But if he thinks she's just putting a move on him, he can just call instead of raising another 63K. Because remember, he doesn't know what she has. She flatted pre-flop. She could have the jack-nine. She could have the jack-king. This is another reason he wouldn't do that. Because he'd be shooting off 63K into her if she's got jack-king of diamonds. And we know he doesn't have the quads because she's got it. So he'd have to have a sick read that she not only has quads or worse, but that she'll lay it down. So I agree with the fold. As weird as it is, I agree with a fold of quads there. But the problem is she put herself in a spot where this can happen, where the only way you're going to get a ton of action on that river is if you beat. And that's something you always have to keep in mind when playing poker. Is that you don't want to just wait for someone to get there in a fluke way to where they're either going to give you no action on the river or very little action on the river or a ton where you're beat and not much else. That's why you put in money on other streets where they're still drawing or where uh, they may not believe you or they may try to put a move on you. And at that point, you have the nuts and you're happy to put all the money in. Now, if you put all the money in on the turn and they get there on the river, then it happens. You did the right thing. So that is something that would explain why she folded it. I think she made the correct fold. I'd be very surprised if she didn't make the correct fold. I think anyone criticizing that fold doesn't know what they're talking about. She is correct that these are probably not very good players who are telling her that she shouldn't have folded there. But I do have to say this hand was played incorrectly, in my opinion, up till that point. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing. People, too many people focusing on folding quads, not enough focusing on what led her to get to this point. So that's something to keep in mind. 
I'm sure it's annoying for her to get these comments that she's seeing in other areas, like on forums and Facebook, that uh, she's having sex with dudes to get money to play at these games, or that uh, she just comes from a rich family, and that's why she can play there. And uh, This is frustrating for women to read, because uh, if that's not true, if they really did make their own money and they did work their own way up, it kind of sucks to have that invalidated and just because you're a female under 35 that it's assumed that you, you probably slept your way into getting that money or you got it from your family. Because if, if this is a dude, this is a 33-year-old dude, no one's going to say that about him. Maybe they'll say he's from a rich family, but probably they'll say this guy's a degenerate. Like they, they're not going to, you're not going to get that many accusations like that. This, this really is the type of thing that only women tend to face, and that kind of sucks. So I see why she is frustrated getting that type of feedback, and uh, unfortunately, that's what happens on the internet. Is you get comments like that. Now, there's advantages to being female and under 35, and at least semi-attractive in poker. And you can't forget about that. There's definite advantages that you will get for being in that situation. If you do want a backer, it's a lot easier to get. It's way easier to get sponsored if you have any kind of success. Uh, You'll have people soft-playing you all the time at the table to get on your good side. So you're getting way more favors done for you if you're an attractive woman under 35 at the poker table than, for example, I would. Or any dude would. But then there's the downsides like this. Didn't have to do with the way the hand played out, but had to do with the after effects on Twitter. Trader Risky, would you have folded the queens as if you played it the same way she did? Would you have folded those on the river? I mean, I agree with you. I mean, if she was thinking that far out that she would fold to a shove, I don't know why she just doesn't call. I don't know. That's it. How much had she had invested before this? Before she had to put in the extra forty three k. It was forty two k, but yeah, she she had uh, put in twenty one k. Wow. I don't know. I mean, you got to kind of. I think you just got to trust that there's just so much more information you need to say if I'm going to fold or not. You know. I would have folded it. I, I just couldn't have done it I, because I because it's from a regular. If it's from someone who I. She didn't describe the regular, but I assume this is not someone who just goes off like, that you have to just call down because they just do weird things. This probably seems like a standard good pro who was at the table who did this, and she's just thinking, is this guy really going to invest 63K in this when, for all he knows, she could have the straighter royal flush? That's a lot for this guy to risk. Because remember, she flatted pre, so he can't even eliminate what she could be holding from the fact that uh, how she played preflop. And he wasn't the original razor, though, was he? No, he was. He was the original razor. Oh, he was the original. But, but he could he could he could have had Jack King of Diamonds very easily. Or I, mean, I don't know if he raised Jack Nine in the earlier position, but he, he definitely could have raised early position with Jack King of Diamonds. That's probably what he had. So, the fact that he put in that much more, you just have to be really sure when you're putting in that much more that your opponent doesn't have it, and, which is, and, and that she's not going to call off because if he doesn't have that, then she's calling him off and beating him. That's the other. It's not like it's not like a sure thing she's going to fold this. So the whole thing, like, but I really think firing a board like that just from the start 
confuses people a lot more. If, if you're check, 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 check the river, and then suddenly you're you're putting all the action, then that shows you either drawing to something you got there, or uh, or more likely you had something huge the whole way. Where if you just fire a board like Ace Queen Queen with two diamonds, you could have so many things, and people are going to not believe you a lot of times and, and put you to the test, and then you're going to crush them. That's that's what I think is a much better play with a board like that. I think you only let people get there with checking when it's a dry board where they probably missed it. So if you got pocket queens and the board is a king seven deuce rainbow, then you think shit. If I give too, if I bet too much on the flop, they're almost surely folding. Maybe I should check around and then hope someone hits something. I hope maybe somebody turns a set or hope somebody uh, uh, turns top pairs or turns a straight draw and then you know, then I can put more action, something like that. But uh, uh, on ace, queen, queen, two diamonds, why not fire right, right away? There's a lot of things you could have there that isn't necessarily a, a huge hand if you're firing the flop. And then you can build the pot and take something very big down. The problem is on the river. What are you going to get out of this if they if you... The only thing you're going to get a lot of out of is, is, is pocket aces, but and right. I, but the way he played it, he wouldn't. He, he, that just I think kind of eliminates aces, right? I mean, I think that's what you're saying. Well, I, I don't know. If, if he did flop aces, he definitely would have put a bad in with the flush draw coming and everything else. No, 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 no. The flush doesn't matter. He he uh, he already had the full house. Oh, right, because he had the boat. Yeah, well, yeah. He no, could it, have had aces. he could have had aces. I'm sure that's what she was a little worried about. But but still, he he knows she could have queens there. He know, and even more, he knows she could have jack nine diamonds or jack king diamonds. Right. So, um. And of course, if if he doesn't have it, then he knows she could. So that's so that's why I think he wouldn't do this. It's just too likely that she's going to put in that type of. He knows her too. She she probably doesn't go off like this for twenty one k when she's got nothing. He, I, I bet she doesn't do that. If, if she really, if she's telling the truth about her her history, and she she grinded this up from nothing to be able to play in that game. Then okay, that probably means she wasn't taking crazy chances and just slowly grinding her bankroll up. So he probably knows she's not going to make a 21K unless she's got something, and she probably would make the same 21K if she had a royal. Yeah. So then, then you stupidly put in the 42K, and she snap calls you, or, or, or and uh, you lost 63K there pointlessly. So I that I really think that she was crushed there, but I think she now he Jack King. You're probably going to have a hard time getting that off on the turn. Is it, it's already flopped a royal draw on the flop, and then on the turn it's made a uh, flush. So you'd really have to put in a lot to make them lay it down at that point. So it's just kind of unfortunate, of course, the way it came down for her. And it's possible she would have just bet and run into this on the river anyway. So I think the fold is fine. It's just I don't love the flop and turn play. And You know what, though? She doesn't have to put this hand out there. She doesn't have to put this hand out there. And that's why people bashing her have to keep that in mind, too. This wasn't on TV where you see it whether she likes it or not. She she voluntarily brought this out. Other people are going, no, this didn't happen. This is made up. This is a lie. I don't believe it. This doesn't make her look good. If she wanted to make herself look good, she would say, he shoves for 42 more. I tanked for a long time. I call. It, it, it turned out he had aces. Something like that. Not, not I fold. Then it just... It makes she lost twenty one k in the hand, <laughs> and is now subject to questions of whether there was a good fold or not. So that's not something you put out there to make yourself look good. So I believe it happened as she said. And when someone puts out something voluntarily like that, 
you should also hold back the bashing because they didn't have to. And she wasn't someone who was known to bash people as far as they know on social media. It's not like when Vanessa Selps did that meltdown with that Jack Seven hand five bet all in on the World Series of Poker main event and shot it off and then uh, people on Twitter started hassling her about it because she had been uh, condescending to others who had played below uh, her standards uh, previously. That she was one who would berate people, so now they were giving it back to her. This, this, this Kim Lim, to my knowledge, isn't like that. I don't believe she's ever been part of controversy before. I don't think she's one who gets involved in fights on social media. So these people bashing her shouldn't be. But do I think she played the hand well? No. But do people always play hands well? No. Do you flop quads all the time? No. So it's one of these things. You don't go through this situation very often. You can sometimes do the wrong thing. It's easier to do something right that you deal with frequently. When it's something unusual like flopping quads, then you can sometimes do the wrong thing. And it's human nature to be terrified to bet the flopped quads. It's funny. I remember this discussion came up at a limit hold'em game. I was playing a forty eighty limit hold'em game many years ago at Commerce, and I had pocket queens, and the board came like queen queen four. So it checked to me, and I was the, I was the preflop raiser, of course. Checked to me. I bet fold fold, and I showed the queens, and the person I was uh, one of my friends is in the game too, and he said to me. What are you doing? you got to check that. I go, I'm not going to check that. That looks super suspicious. Who raises pre-flop against like two opponents in Limit Hold'em and then checks a board like Queen, Queen, Four, Rainbow? You don't do that. You, you, you always bet that. If I don't bet it, it looks super suspicious like I'm trying to trap them. So if they completely miss the board, oh well, then I get not much out of it. So sometimes you just, you just got to bet it sometimes. In this case, you definitely had to bet it. Someone agrees in text message they wrote, uh, yeah, got a 100% fire flop. Yeah, I'll do a personal topic. Remember the ignition situation? The ignition cash out where they skimmed about $25 off of each Bitcoin? And remember I read you some of the emails that I had back and forth with them regarding the uh, situation I had? with uh, the cash-out and how they just were giving me nonsense responses? Well, I've gotten more, and I told you I'd update you. So I'm going to update you. (laughs) You're going to love this. So if you remember, they told me on the phone to email service at ignitioncasino.edu and that they would forward it to the withdrawals team and then they would take a look at my claims. That was what I was told. Okay? So I did that. I emailed service at ignitioncasino.eu. And if you remember from the last episode, what was happening was they were still telling me that it was already taken care of. So let me go, let me go back to last time, then I'll, I'll give you a little update. So I sent them the whole explanation, which I won't read to you guys again. I read it last time. They responded back, December 19th. 
Hi, Todd. Thanks for contacting the Ignition Casino customer service. It appears you've already contacted us with the same inquiry. We were able to provide assistance on a different thread. Not true. Not true. That was the first time I emailed them about it, and on the phone, it was left open that it was not solved. So I wrote back, hello, this is not true. I called Ignition about the matter, but was unable to get assistance on this and was told to send a message to service at ignitioncasino.eu with my evidence so you can give, give this to the withdrawals team and possibly credit my account. Please send my previous message to the withdrawals team as instructed and have them read it carefully. Thanks. They responded back. Hi, Todd. Thanks for contacting the Ignition Casino customer service. By the way, this is on December 20th. I do understand your concerns regarding your account. I've seen that you already contacted us about this inquiry and you were assisted. If you'd like to find out more information, you can give our toll-free number a call. Okay, I wrote back. Please read this carefully. I was not assisted regarding my Bitcoin withdrawal price error. I called in about it and I was not assisted. The rep refused to look at it and told me to send an email to this address and ask for it to be forwarded to the withdrawal team. Please do this for me. I put in all caps. Thank you. Todd would tell us. Okay. They wrote back. Hi, Todd. Thanks for contacting Ignition Casino Customer Service. I do understand your concerns regarding withdrawal with reference number blah, blah, blah. I'm seeing that the amount you withdrew was paid to your wallet as you requested. If your funds are in Bitcoin wallet for a period of time, once Bitcoin goes up or down, your funds will fluctuate. Do they really think this is about fluctuation? So I wrote back, December 21st. This is my fourth email on the matter. Please read carefully as you are not addressing any of my points or concerns. Once again, this is not about what happened to my Bitcoin after I received it. This is about the moment of, uh, uh, this is about the amount of Bitcoin sent to me at 11.17 a.m. on 12.17.19, which was erroneous as not enough was sent to be worth the amount of my withdrawal at that exact moment. Please see the original email for details. Please forward to the withdrawal team for review. Todd would tell us. Okay. What do they say back? Hi, Todd. Thanks for contacting Ignition Casino Customer Service. This is later on December 21st. Bitcoin is a fluctuating cryptocurrency. This fluctuation do not affect your funds when you have it in your Ignition account, but it may be affected once they reach your Bitcoin wallet after withdrawal gets confirmed. We recommend you sell your Bitcoin as soon as you get it on your wallet to keep the exact same amount. (laughs) I've been so clear. The first email was super clear that's not what this is about. It was about them sending me the wrong amount in the first place. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So I wrote again, later December 21st. Please read carefully. I put in all caps with asterisks around it. This is my fifth email saying the same thing. I am very aware of how Bitcoin and its fluctuation work. I do not need a lesson in Bitcoin. My complaint is that I was initially paid at the wrong rate. Is there someone here capable of addressing this, or do you need to just keep emailing me with the same meaningless nonsense over and over? Please forward my first message to the withdrawals team, as I have asked five times now and you haven't done. Is anybody home? Hello? Bueller? Bueller? I actually wrote that. (laughs) By this point, I was just, screw it. I'm going to screw around at this point. I actually wrote, hello, Bueller, Bueller. Bueller? Bueller? Bueller. <sighs> so they wrote back to me. Trader Risky, any guess as to what they wrote back to me? The issue's been resolved already or call customer service. You're not very far off. 
Hi, Todd. Thanks for contacting Ignition Casino Customer Service. It appears you've already contacted us with the same inquiry, and we're able to provide assistance on a different thread. (laughs) We're actually back to square one. That's initially what they said to me. Now we're back to square one. How many emails do you think I can trade with them about this before they'll just stop? How many? You think I can go like 20 times on this? Like, should I? At I, some point, aren't they going to say, just give them the 25 bucks? Or how many Bitcoins is it? it it's, it's, it's a matter of, uh, let's just say it's a matter of, of less than $100. Right. So, Jeff, so when you cash out on Bitcoins, like how it's, and it's, then it says it's like 24 hours to get approved or something, right? Yeah. So how do you know what your what your price is? I, I don't. What happens is I don't know what I'm going to eventually get in Bitcoin, but but I can see they send you an email the moment they actually send you the Bitcoin. So oh, you, so at that minute that you get the email saying it's approved, it's that price. Yes, because that's when okay. they send it. It's when they send it. When it's approved, it's actually when they send it. So it's it's the same thing. Approval means we're sending it right this moment. So that moment was actually. 8.17 a.m. Pacific time on December 17th, and I looked up the price, which is not an exact price, but I found all the reputable sites that keep track of this showed the price right around $6,700 per Bitcoin, and they did it at the rate of 67.28 per Bitcoin, which shorted me over 25 bucks per Bitcoin. Because remember, they're sending me Bitcoin. It's, it's, it's bad that they put it at a higher price. So it was the processor doing this just to skim Bitcoin, knowing that people will think, oh, Bitcoin fluctuates. I must have just uh, – I'm getting a little bit less just because of the price must have changed on the way here. They don't expect people to go check on the exact minute they sent it. And they admit they, – they will acknowledge that they did send it at that exact minute. There's no argument about that. They admitted that to me. So what, what's happened here – I can already tell you what's happened here. I mentioned this last time. There – Customer support has been instructed that there's going to be a lot of idiots who don't understand how Bitcoin works, that the the Bitcoin will degrade in value while in their Bitcoin wallet, and then will think they didn't get their full cash out and think they got cheated. And these people just won't get it and are going to keep questioning support about it. So they've told support, absolutely positively, do not ever give anyone money back for what they claim was a shorting in the Bitcoin cash out. Just keep explaining to them that Bitcoin fluctuates, that that's the way it works, and if you want to minimize that, you need to cash it out as soon as you get it. And they tell everyone to say that. And then if you try to argue this and try to explain, no, 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 I know that, but you sent me the wrong amount in the first place, their heads explode. They just they don't have a way to process that. The, the customer support there has not been trained on how to deal with that, and I could tell from t- from talking to them. Because they kept repeating to me these same nonsense points, and I kept destroying them all. And then they just come back with even more nonsense things, like, well, that was just the price. That was the price we sent it to you. According to what? Well, that's confidential. We can't give that out. I go, you can't give, it out. You can't give out how you're determining what the Bitcoin price is? No, but that was the price. I go, well, according to who? According to our processor. I go, okay, but that's my complaint. Your processor was lying about it. Well, but that was the price. I go, but it wasn't. I can show you the price. Can I show you the graphs that show you the price? No, you can't. We don't want to see them. Why don't you want to see them? Because that was the price. Like it, it, It's like talking with an idiot. Like I, I think that a 92-year-old Oklahoma Johnny Hale manning those support lines would have done a better job. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even kidding. Like they're, they're that irrational there. And it's because they get so many 
stupid complaints about Bitcoin cash outs being short, which really aren't. So then when they actually do short people, then they don't want to hear it from them. And I've seen this situation before when dealing with businesses. I've seen this before. In fact, I, I described uh, something not too different when I was at the Golden Nugget Steakhouse last New Year's Eve. And um, they cooked my girlfriend's steak wrong. And they were so, so resistant to doing anything about it because they probably have so many people from downtown who eat there who try to roll them. They probably have so many people downtown claiming, oh, my steak's bad. Oh, it's not cooked right. I want Take this off the bill. Give me another steak. Like, they're so sensitive to that that they immediately go into defensive mode and try to tell you why you're wrong. Where every other prime steakhouse, they don't have that issue because most clientele eating there tends to be more upscale and less likely to try to roll them. At Golden Nugget at Vic and Anthony's? Yes. I had a terrible experience there. What? Yeah. Wow, that's surprising. Now it's always been good. It was on New Year's. Maybe that has something to do with it. But, it, but Yeah, uh, I'm sure it did. But, but they were – but, I mean, I, I had a steak sitting in front of my girlfriend that was actually well done, and they were trying to insist to me as medium rare. And only when I told them uh, – and both both the waitress and manager assumed, uh, insisted this. And only when I said, I'm going to pull up my phone now, I'm going to bring up a medium rare steak, and we're going to compare it to this steak, the, the, the guy backed down. And even when he backed down, he was, like, pissed. And he was uh, – Well, it is so dark in there. It's probably hard for them to see anything. Yeah, but it was, he didn't even say that. He just said, like, oh, no, that's medium rare. I, I can tell. And that's hilarious. Like both of them were doing that. They, they, they both – they both, I could tell I, – I can just tell these things. Both the waitress and the manager were definitely, like, already operating from the mindset like we're trying to cheat them out of something. And that's a weird way to approach it in a prime steakhouse because most prime steakhouses are the opposite. They will – I've had it before in a prime steakhouse that the, the manager walks by and says, how's your steak? I go, well, it's slightly overcooked, but it's fine. I'm making do with it. No, 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 sir. Well, let's get another one. Let, let, me take some, let me take it off the bill. Like they, 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 they're over generous with what they want to do about it. Here to, to get the guy to give half the money off that one steak was really pulling teeth. He, he didn't want to do anything at first. And in fact, wanted to argue that it was a well-done steak with medium rare. It was insane. And as I said, if I, only because I was about to pull it up on my phone and show him, and then what can he say at that point? That was the only thing that made him back down. So, I, But when I walked away, I, I said that to my girlfriend. I said, it's because we're downtown. It's because the clientele they get there probably tries to roll them a lot more than like on the Strip. So they're, they're already on guard for being rolled. I think Bitcoin was on guard for people who don't understand Bitcoin claiming they got cheated when they really didn't. So now they just they just always say, no, nothing's wrong, when something really may be wrong sometimes. I'll give you another analogy. In Florida, it's said that the health care is not good. And I don't mean nowadays. I mean even 30 years ago. That you don't want to be an old person going to the doctor in Florida because old people are, always have so many complaints about this hurts, that hurts, this doesn't feel good, that doesn't feel good, that the doctors become numb to it and don't t- take old people very seriously over there because they're so used to dealing with them. That you actually want to go to a doctor who's not used to dealing with old people that often, who hasn't already uh, dismissed old people as, as not knowing what they're talking about. So if you're old, you don't want to be around other old people or otherwise you get treated like an old person, which is kind of true. So I think that's what I'm a victim of here. 
a victim of the lack of understanding by most people who cash out in Bitcoin of Bitcoin and of the fact that the Chinese processors know this and they take advantage of it and skim knowing that there will be no consequence. And indeed, there's not one. At this point, I'm kind of just doing it for comedy purposes. At this point, I don't think I'm going to get back my money. And it's not a lot of money. So I'm, just, I'm going to have to just eat it. That's just part of the cost of playing online poker these days. It just sucks. It just really sucks. But I, I may respond again. I actually gave up responding. I haven't answered them in the last six days. But I may respond see how long they'll keep doing this. I may try to write increasingly ridiculous things to see what they'll say back. This is just insane. I, I may try calling them. There's, a, there's actually a dispute resolution team that I haven't tried yet. I may try them. And someone asked me, oh, it's 50 bucks or so. Why don't you just let it go? And I go, you know what? The problem is that it's the principle. I just don't like being skimmed from my cash out. It just pisses me off. I should get the whole cash out. If, I, if Bitcoin crashes after I cash out, fine. But I don't skim from my freaking cash out. And they, their processors have done this before. And that's what really gets me angry. By the way, I see some people who uh, emailed me that wanted uh, access to tonight's free roll. You've got to do that well before the show. You can't do it like an hour before the show, even a few hours before the show. You've got to do it like days before the show. Otherwise, you may not get in. Let's move on to the next topic. We've got a lot of things to do here, and I can't go too late tonight. I have something to do tomorrow. Alex Foxen is under fire after entering the WPT five diamond event at Bellagio six times for 10K each before finally winning the event for about $1.6 million. And I want to start off by saying that Alex Foxen didn't do anything wrong here. There's people who've really given him a hard time about it. But he doesn't deserve that. It's his money, or his backer's money, whatever way he's entering. And if he thinks that the best use of that money is to enter six times to win the event and spend $60,000 on a 10K event, then fine. And hey, look, it worked. He won almost $1.7 million. He won uh, $1,694,995. So when you subtract the 60K, he still cleared over $1.6 million in profit, which is great. But what if... He didn't. What if he didn't cash? Well, then he would have lost over uh, $60,000. At least 60000 60000 or more, maybe if he entered a seventh time. But this did bring up the whole unlimited re-entry thing again. And some people are increasingly annoyed about this. Not so much at Foxen, but at the whole concept of these unlimited re-entries. They got 1,035 entries at this 10K event, which is huge if you think about it. This isn't like the main event of the World Series. This is a this is an event that uh, is much smaller than that, yet they still broke 1,000 entries. So it's a record, even far more than they got during the poker room. It's 1,035 entries, and Foxen was the winner for almost $1.7 million. But some people were saying that this is an illustration of the problem with these tournaments these days. That deep, bankrolled, high-stakes pros can just keep entering, entering, entering until finally one of their buy-ins catches fire, especially if they're willing to play a high-variance style which will either accumulate chips fast or bust. Where if you try to do that when it's a freeze-out, then usually you're going to bust, and that's the end of you. 
But if you know you can keep coming in again and again and again, and you have the bankroll to do it, or the backer is willing to give you the bankroll to do it, then you can just keep playing that style, and eventually once your luck improves on one of these buy-ins, and you run up a stack, then if you're good at playing a big stack, then you can really crush it. Norman Chad, who's been a frequent critic of this sort of thing, tweeted on December 21st, I have nothing against Alex Fox, and in fact, I once beat him in a best-of-nine arm wrestling event, but am I supposed to celebrate the fact that after running out of chips five times in the prestigious World Poker Tour 5 Diamond, he finally built a stack the sixth time en route route to winning the title? Now, the thing about arm wrestling is a joke. Alex Foxen is a former arm wrestling champion. And uh, Norman Chad obviously never beat him in arm wrestling. But uh, he was saying, look, you know, Foxen's okay, he was playing within the rules, but how much can we be giving people like that credit for winning if they could just keep entering over and over again? Some people on Twitter refer to the unlimited re-entry of the Five Diamond as, quote, a joke. Another person said that Norman Chad should do what he can do to be the one to make a change. So, what about these unlimited re-entries? Remember, they do add money to the prize pool. And you could say people could just play the same form as what they do without re-entries. And just play a high-variant style. And if they bust, they just don't get to come back in. But, there is a very, very big issue to this that people have to consider. You didn't play against one Alex Foxen if you were in this five diamond, you played against six Alex Foxes. And you played against multiples of other very good pros. Alex Foxen's not some fish who just kept rebuying over and over and got lucky. Alex Foxen is an excellent tournament player who also is deep bankrolled and kept buying in over and over until he caught fire. So with other pros doing this, the problem is you end up playing multiple versions of the same person in the same tournament, which makes it very, very difficult. And it really increases the overall difficulty of the tournament. As I said before on another episode, if you want to min-cash, then having a 1,000 entries is great. If your only goal is to min-cash the 5-diamond, then you're going to have a higher chance of doing that with a 1,000 entries there with all these re-entries than if these were not allowed. But if you're looking to win or run deep, it's much tougher And the chance of one of these pros getting very deep, one of these tough pros getting very deep, is much higher. And as you might have guessed, it was a very tough final table. Foxen ended up winning. Now, according to Matt Savage, four of the six players at the six-handed final table only entered one time. One other person entered twice. Foxen was the only one to have bought in six times. But still... There were plenty of others who didn't make the final table, I'm sure, who bought in a lot of times. I'm sure they did not have... Anywhere near 1,035 unique entries. I'm sure the number of unique entries was much, much lower than that. And that is why they got such a large number of entries. That and the event's just doing well in general. It's been growing. But the unlimited re-entries is bringing in a lot more to the prize pool. And, of course, a lot more to the Bellagio. And that's why the venues do it. The venues do it for two reasons, actually. One, because a lot of the big-name pros are happy to have it. And number two, the main reason, they make more money. Every time a rebuy occurs, they collect additional rake. So I'm hoping that Norman Chad and others who speak out against this 
can get this changed. I hope there's enough of a backlash to where these unlimited re-entries stop. They really need to. As I've said before on a previous show, one re-entry is fine. I can understand that. I can understand if people travel all the way there. Because not everybody lives in Vegas. You travel all the way to, to Vegas to play this. You run bad. You're gone. You wish you could still play, and, and you're out. Okay, I can understand. I can understand how this might dissuade people from coming if it's a freeze-out. But at the same time, you shouldn't allow deep-pocketed pros to enter 10 versions of themselves in order to try to win the title. There's got to be a sane limit to this, and I think one re-entry should be it. This allows one chance of redemption if you don't run well, you don't play well, but not so many entries to where you can just keep doing it and play a crazy style knowing that one of the times it'll catch on. If you think about it, if take somebody who doesn't care about making money in poker, okay? Take a decent but not great player who will play an aggressive style and doesn't care if he loses money in poker overall, just wants titles, wants final tables. But this guy is super rich. Let's say he's a billionaire. He will play a very aggressive style. I know this isn't Fox in here. Fox, I'm not describing Fox in, but t- take this generic person I'm describing here. He can play a very, very aggressive style and just keep buying in over and over and over again until one of those buy-ins happens to really run well. Then he'll have a big stack. Then he'll be kind of tough to deal with with a big stack because he'll be very aggressive. And then maybe he will win a title or get to the final table. And really, someone like that will have bought their way to the title. That's the truth. With an unfair advantage of a super deep bankroll. They will probably have lost money doing so. Well, not when they win, but I mean, overall, if they do this in a lot of tournaments, they'll lose money overall. But the truth is that if someone doesn't care about the money aspect of it, they just care about winning titles, then that's something they can do. And they really can semi-buy a title that way. It's just not right. It's just not the way these tournaments were supposed to be. The whole point of tournaments was supposed to be that everybody starts out on equal footing and everybody has to start with the same chip stack at the same time and work up to getting all the chips. And it's no longer like that. There's so many different ways around that. Day two entries, uh, super late entries, unlimited rebuys, It's just not good. I totally agree with Norman Chad, and I'd love to see this changed. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can text, you can call. From the uh, 310, asking me, was there a processing fee to transfer Bitcoin? No. In this ignition situation, there's no processing fee. From the 702, from uh, Shoeshine Box, who's called him before. He's a uh, poker dealer from Las Vegas who has been fighting cancer. He said, your show makes my weeks as I fight and recovery all year. Please take my third place, 15 bucks, and use it for next year. Brings me luck, baby. Well, thank you. Same with my second draft. You got second? Watch, oh, Ray Ruski just killing it. Did did uh, any bounties happen? Did uh, did Gordman or Ballhawk make the final table or no? They did not. They did. Somebody put in the chat that there was no... Uh... No, no bounties. I'm assuming that was correct. But no bounties mean they made the final table. No, right. Well, I, hey, they, somebody said there were no bounties eligible. I, I didn't. I wasn't Weird. following. I, okay, who was ma- what? Ma- what was supposed to happen? Maybe they both made the final table. Okay. All righty. Well, uh, let's move on here. 
We'll figure this out later. I want to talk about Olivier Bousquet, who has released a new podcast. And this is one you probably want to listen to. And I never thought I'd be promoting Olivier Bousquet's podcast because I don't really like the guy. I always saw Olivier Bousquet and his friend Daniel Coleman as young poker limousine liberals. And not so much from the political standpoint, though that too. But these were guys who would win a lot of money playing poker and felt guilty about it. And they kind of felt like, well, if they bash poker, if they bash the predatory nature of poker, then somehow it makes it okay that they win. As long as it's okay, that, as long as they come out and, and say it's bad, if they still do it, it's okay. As long as they put out the message, it's bad. And that's why they, they had, both of them had outspoken left-wing politics and they were wearing uh, shirts to poker events that were, they had controversial political statements on them and then they got mad at poker stars when they weren't allowed to wear them on the televised final table. I, I just saw them both as like spoiled brats who didn't understand the real world and who were kind of like guilty, like subconscious, subconsciously guilty winners of a lot of money in poker who felt that taking on these political and social views, even of poker itself, would somehow absolve them of the sin of having won all this money from people who maybe couldn't have afforded to lose it. And I, I really get irritated by poker players who are like this. You have to acknowledge that poker is a game where the best win. Now, yes, the luckiest can often beat the best, but not in long term. So the best win to where the worst lose, to where many people lose who can't afford to lose. Many times you're beating people at the table who cannot afford to lose. Many times you're taking people's rent money at the table you may not realize, but you are. Many times you're really causing a lot of heartache for people when you beat them at the poker table. They might be uh, losing their home. They might be blowing their kid's college fund. They might be uh, unable to pay rent, unable to feed their family when they're all done. So you walk away all happy you won the money, but you don't know the backstory of the money you won. And in many cases, you are beating people who really can't afford to lose it. If you're not okay with that, then don't play poker. Now, the truth is, if you're not in the game, these people are going to lose anyway. I've said before that when a good player is absent from the table, all this does is it helps the second and third best players. It doesn't really help the fish. The fish are going to lose no matter what. The worst player is going to lose no matter what. It doesn't matter if there's an excellent player at the table or a good player. He's going to lose to one of them. So in that way, you don't have to feel guilty because your absence was not going to help the person. But still, when you're winning the money off of a fish, there's a decent chance that they couldn't afford to lose it. I guarantee if you've played a lot of poker in your life, you've beaten many people who could not afford to lose it. Many people whose lives you've devastated by beating them and don't realize it. It's kind of crappy to think about, but if you have a problem with this, then don't play. And if you don't want to play and you want to criticize poker from that standpoint, I still have some issues with that, but at least I can understand it. But if you're playing and winning a lot of money in poker and then bashing poker for this reason and still playing then you're a big hypocrite. And that's what Olivier Vizquet did. That's what Daniel Coleman did. And uh, I didn't like them for it. They also seem to be uh, thinking that if they wear a, sh- a shirt at uh, a televised final table supporting uh, the Palestinians, that, that somehow absolves them of their poker-winning sins, which I think is also crap. If, if you're going to be on the political left, it should be because you really believe this stuff and really have... Uh, really understand 
the issues that you're advocating, not just that you're taking a position so you can either look cool or so you can look more compassionate because you feel guilty about the money you're winning in poker. That's that's not a good reason. So I never thought very much of him. At the same time, I didn't hate him. I've never had a bad interaction with him. I really haven't had any interaction with him, even when we played on day five of the World Series of Poker main event. Uh, I don't think he even said one word the entire time. He was short-stacked at the table, so play-wise, he was kind of a non-factor. He was kind of just waiting to get his money in, and then when he got it in, he lost, and that was that. He came to the table short. But uh, I don't have animosity towards him. I don't know of him ever having scammed anyone or ripped anyone off. So from that type of standpoint, I don't have a problem with him. I'm not saying he's a bad person. I just didn't care for his personality or some of the stuff he was saying on social media and what that stunt he tried to pull in the Poker Stars uh, final table. But he released a podcast recently, and at first I'm like, oh boy, this last thing I want to hear is some uh, another one of these young poker pros ranting about things that uh, I probably think are hypocritical. But then I listened to it and I said, oh wow, this is not what I expected. It was actually a, a, an interesting podcast. And it was eye-opening to a lot of people because of some of the things he admitted to that were not flattering. And it actually took a lot of strength to do this podcast. I think this is going to be an ongoing podcast, but uh, this is episode one of it. And he actually talked a lot about the high-stakes tournament world. He talked about his own poker play, his own bankroll situation, and a lot of surprising things about that. And in the podcast, he came off as likable, soft-spoken. He didn't seem like an arrogant jerk. Like it, that, Really, the version of him I heard on the podcast was def- definitely different from the version of him that I had heard on social media. Or not heard, but read on social media. Like Everything I read about him and read from him was very different than what I read or what I heard of him. On that podcast. It's funny how that can be different. So the podcast version of him was likable. And I think it's worth listening to. Now, I'm going to play you a part of that podcast. And it's going to be a small portion. If you want to hear the whole thing, it's called the Two Lives Podcast. And it's in reference to the fact that poker players have two lives. Uh... One that's on the poker table and one that's away from the poker table. And sometimes those can be very different. And I think it's a pretty honest... uh, I think he was honest in this podcast. I think he was open about what had been going on. In fact, he even mentions that it felt good to get some of this off his chest out loud and for people to hear it. So this is actually refreshing to hear from a poker pro who has had a lot of success. Now, how much success has he had? Well, let's look this up. I remember from looking it up myself, I'm going to look it up right now. I looked it up earlier, preparing for the show, and I saw that he had almost $9 million in total caches. Now, that's not winnings, that's caches, but still, that's a lot of caches, almost $9 million. I had always imagined that he probably had a very deep bankroll and a lot of money. Uh, in 2014, he cashed uh, over a million dollars at uh, Barcelona. 
He had many six-figure scores. Uh, he had a $589,000 third-place score at the Millionaire Maker in 2015. He had, uh, let's see here, I'm just scrolling down. He had a, a $200,000 win on a high-stakes event on Poker, Poker Night in America. And he's had a lot of other scores here, some five figures, some six figures. He had a uh, 154000 he won at uh, f- for fifth place at the six-handed 5K event at the World Series. He got uh, 340000 for a third-place finish at the Seminole Hard Rock in August. So it's all added up to almost $9 million. And he's also been known to have been a successful player online. He is the 72nd highest casher all-time in poker and the 56th all-time in uh, the U.S. So you would think this guy probably has a lot of money. Probably not $9 million, but probably he has some good money. But let's hear what he has to say about that. The reason that I try to stay away from it. Another reason is, I mean, this is probably going to surprise some people, but a lot of people think that I'm, like, quite rich because I've made a lot of money playing poker, but I'm not, <laughs> and I haven't been for a long time. Um, I haven't had any real money of my own f- for many years, actually. Really? Um, yeah, and there's a few reasons why, but I think just... Being able to say that out loud um, is like a pretty big step for me. I I think it's been quite difficult for me to deal with this kind of disconnect or misperception. I've tried to not perpetuate it, but at the same time, it's still felt like a, I guess, like a secret that I've been holding on to. So I'm, I'm glad to be able to just let it out. Um, and I'm sure it's going to relate to some of the other questions that we talk about. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's actually a few months ago I did well in a tournament in Florida, and that kind of was my first opportunity in many years to be able to actually play out on play on my own. I was I had a backer for I had a couple different backers, but for you know the majority of the last eight years, and. Um, and I'm super grateful to my backers. The the they've been, for the most part, very very close friends of mine. People who have helped me when I needed it, and um, and at the same time, giving me an opportunity to get quite good deals. Um, just so people know what a backer is. A backer is someone who gives you a certain amount of money to play poker with, and then based on whatever you negotiate, takes a certain percentage of your profits. And then if you lose a bunch of money, you have to make that money back before you get into any profit. Um, and it's a way of you not having to risk or have any of your own money. Um, and then the backer is obviously investing in what they think is a profitable asset that they can make money from. Um, and by the end, I had like quite, I think, a unique and incredible deal where I kept 90% of my profits, uh, which is, I don't think it's very common in the poker world, but you know, I had to kind of earn my way to that. And- Let's stop this for a second here. So a few things to comment on. First of all, he said he has not had much money for eight years, which is pretty amazing. I would understand if he hasn't had money for like the last 
five years or so, maybe four years. Remember, he had that million-plus score in 2014, which is now about five and a half years ago since that happened. So you can understand how one, especially who might be entering high-stakes tournaments, could could lose all of that in, in not that long of a time. And you could say, like, even two years later, could be starting to run out of funds if he's not that careful. But uh, he's going back eight years, which means even though he was hitting scores like that uh, 1.1 million in 2014 and the 589,000 in 2015 and all these other six-figure scores, another 333,000 I see in 2014, 353,000 in late 2013, he's saying eight years back into 2011 is the last time he had money, which is insane considering all these scores that he was hitting. And people would never picture that. And he said he's not trying to perpetuate that. He never tries to come off as some guy who's really rich, but that people just assume it. You can't help it. People are just going to think, okay, you've won all these big tournaments or had all these final tables where you're taking in 500,000, 300,000, 1 million, whatever. People assume you have to be rich. And he's saying, no, I haven't been for eight years. Then he talked about having backers all this time. And he talked about getting himself to the position where he was keeping 90% of the money. Now, there has to be more to that story. He did mention that it's probably unusual, but this would either have to be like a huge sucker of a backer or someone that has some relationship with him, like maybe his dad was backing him, or it could be that uh, there's more to this that we're not understanding. Keeping 90% of your winnings is insane because someone is putting up all the risk and at best is only coming away with 10%. So they're putting up 100% and at best are going to come away with 10%. So they have to be pretty damn sure that you're going to be a long-term winner. I mean, really, really, really damn sure to back you that way. And he said he had multiple backers. Well, why would he have multiple backers? I have to imagine that the reason he had multiple backers was because... Uh, he probably wasn't performing for them. Not saying he was doing anything wrong, but he just wasn't winning. And he was losing for them, and at some point the backers would cut him off. Because the the way it works with the backing deal is, uh, he was explaining some of it, that they put you in these events, and it's all of their money. You get to keep a percentage of the profits. However, when you're in the red, when you're not profiting, that you have to get back to even before you keep any money yourself. So anything you win when you're in the red goes directly to the backer until you get up and then they will uh, then then they'll start sharing that percentage with you from that point. Now, maybe he found someone stupid enough to let him do this, where he keeps ninety percent of whatever he does in the black. But that just sounds like such a bad deal for the backer, because again, there's no guarantee he's going to win. There's a lot of variance to this. Even if he is playing really really well, there's no guarantee he's going to be ahead over time. Tournament poker is very tough. It has tremendous variance. And obviously with him being broke for eight years, that, that's pretty much showing you how it is. So I don't know if that's really true. It's not that important in the context of this whole thing. The most important thing to take away here is that he's had very little money for the last eight years. Let's listen on. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's really nice to finally be able to keep all the profit I make from poker but like I'm still kind of living on the edge financially, and yeah, that's a reason. I mean, I can't even I can't even really play any tournaments right now, much less high roller tournaments. Um, but at the same time, like I'm 
pretty confident that I eventually will um, fully recover. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's why I don't play high rollers that much. Okay, um, I have a few follow up questions about sure. this, but a number of folks were interested in the the backers system yeah. and asking to what extent is that common? How many people in a given tournament are owning just a small percentage of themselves? Yeah, so I think you know first of all, that's a different subject he goes into. And uh, I'll let you go listen to that part yourself. This is where he talks about the pieces that people own of themselves and that uh, it's actually common for people in these small field events to either trade action or to uh, sell a lot of themselves off. And he said the trading action is kind of a problem because in these small field tournaments, a lot of them are going to end up at the same table and then they don't play each other the same way than if they didn't own pieces of each other, which is a good point. But um, let me skip ahead here. Again, this is called Two Lives with Olivier Bousquet. You can go find this yourself. It's on iTunes. You can just Google it if you don't have iTunes, and you can play it from there. It's only about an hour 24, so it won't take that long to listen to. Uh, Here's another point where he talks about his current financial situation. He was talking about before there about how he had a score, and it it, it got him out of it, but... uh, he was referring to in August, he won something at uh, Seminole, where he was third place for three hundred something thousand dollars, and I don't know how much he kept of that, but that got him to where he was playing for himself. But that was in August. Listen to how he's doing now. So back to the bankroll discussion and the backer discussion. Sure. At the moment, are you trying to play entirely on your own, or do you still have backers? Yeah. So I just. And in the last couple of months, just transition, just like told my backer, thank you for everything. Here's your money back. And I'm going to play on my own. So that was, yeah, that was a couple of months ago. And I kind of got crushed right after that happened. And that, that's why I felt like kind of on a, like I've been on a cliff a bit for a while. Uh, but ultimately, I think I'm profitable, very profitable in the games I play. And yeah, I'm just going to do my best to like just grind it out. Um, it's... It's been a long journey for me. Um, um, you know, I I think there are basically three main reasons why I like found myself in a big financial hole. Before we get to that, that'll be interesting to hear. Before we get to that, yeah. So, so much for the happy ending there. We thought at least that maybe that score he got in Florida back in August set him up on his own, and now he's not playing backed anymore. Now he can run up his fortune again. No, he lost all that back. So now he, he was, and you heard him say before, he can't really afford to play any tournament at the moment. I don't know if someone backing him again, but the money he made back in August to be back on his own is gone. He got crushed after that. So now he's going to tell you what happened to his money. One is just kind of... um kind of common overspending, just being a young, egotistical idiot. Um, and, I, you know, I spent a little bit of money on clothes and cars and rent and watches. I mean, God, a nice watch is really the dumbest thing ever. But How many watches do you own? Are you willing to disclose that? No, no, I, I don't <laughs> own any watches anymore. <laughs> I owned two very expensive watches, and I do. That's very common in poker, by the way. A lot of poker players, especially young poker players, as soon as they have success at the tables, they want to run out and buy a really expensive watch. And sometimes more than one. 
And then what ends up happening is exactly what happened to his watches, that once they go busto, then they go, well, I've got these expensive watches I could use for a buy-in, and then they sell them to someone, sometimes other poker players, and there goes the watches. So he, he blew the money in typical fashion. When he talked about rent, he probably rented some very, very expensive condos or other things he didn't need. Uh, he talked about clothing. You can really waste a lot of money on clothes if you just freely shop in expensive places and don't care. And cars and these guys never price shop or try to get value. They just spend, 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 spend and just expect the money to keep coming in at the rate it was. And then when it isn't, then there goes their bankroll. So that's very common to someone young. It is good that he's had the introspection to realize that he made a mistake with the way he spent his money back then, and that if he does get money again, maybe he can be more responsible, though it sounds like bankroll management-wise, he wasn't. (laughs) If he's uh, lost all the money he made from August, but I don't know how much it was. Maybe it wasn't all that much, but uh, let's listen on to the other reasons that Olivier is now broke not own them anymore i'll be very clear about that uh yeah i don't own the fancy cars anymore i used to have a couple of those um but anyway that was like a piece of the spending another piece of the spending was a combination of just like my expenses going up after black friday black friday was this kind of day in infamy in the poker world where department of justice closed down access to the main online poker sites and so someone like me who used to just play online every day from home i had to Basically get an apartment in Canada and I was paying an extra rent in Canada plus travel to get there. Plus I wasn't playing as much because I had to go back and forth. I'm glad he brought that up. I knew people who did this. I never had the option to do it because I had a family and I couldn't just up and leave and go to Canada. I had my son Benjamin who was a baby at the time in 2011 and I was not flexible to leave anymore like that. But even if I was, I would not have gone to Canada. I realized that the games were not going to be as good without the American fish there. That's not to say there wouldn't still be fish, but uh, the games were going to get tougher. And there was just so much more expense to doing it, to living in Canada. And I knew that wasn't the right thing to do. And I knew people who did it. I knew people who went and took a place in Canada and would get a nice place in Toronto or Vancouver and spend a ton of money. They, they weren't even trying to live cheaply in Canada. They didn't just go to some suburb and live as cheaply as they can. They they were living in the city in expensive places, and they were not making enough money to keep up with those expenses, or in some cases they weren't even winning at all. And they came back with their tails in between their legs. At least the ones who went to Mexico were doing it somewhat right, uh, at least from the expense standpoint. Eventually, that problem somewhat was resolved, but still, I had a place in Canada that was still a, a growing expense. I also put two two kids through college and um, was paying literally four rents at one time, which was just like ridiculous. Wow! Um, I just didn't want them to have any loans, and you know, we were a family. It was just for me, it was a natural thing to do. My ex never worked, and um, so it was like all on me, and that was just like that was a lot. You were how old when you put two kids through college and were was paying 30. 30. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I was also the, I guess, I guess the victim of a manipulation. That'll be interesting to hear about, but uh, let's talk about the kids through college. That's kind of weird. <laughs> so he put two kids through college when he was 30. When did he have them? When he was eight? 
Uh, obviously, he's talking about siblings or some other relatives. And no, I think he married an older woman that had two kids. I'm pretty sure I remember that from like. But, but, way but back. if he was 30, how could he have kids who were in college? Well, because I don't think they were his. I don't think they were his. I think they were his his through marriage. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't I know think, that. Okay. I think I remember something about. No, that, that might that would make sense. That would make sense. I'm going. It had to be like a brother and sister. I I was picturing that like his family was poor and he made it in poker and then he felt like it was his obligation to take care of his brother and sister. But but maybe it was like yeah, he married a woman. I hope were, it was because now he's saying the ex paid for her kids for college and then she bailed. Once oh the boy. Train left. I know he got a divorce. I know he was married. He's actually older than I think. He's he's. 38 now i always pictured him as a little younger than that i guess that's a credit to him that i thought he looked younger but uh i always thought he was kind of like early 30s now but uh i guess he's 38 i just looked that up but i knew he wasn't old enough to have kids in college that i knew i thought like if he's old enough to have his own kids in college then he's like uh one of the best looking guys for his age that i've ever seen but no he's 38 and he was 30 at the time when he did that but uh yeah that was I, I I think he might be right about the older woman. I, di- I didn't look into that, but I think he might be right. And fraudulent scheme, which ultimately led in led to theft, and um, that was like a pretty big part of it, which I don't really want to get into. But I'll just say I, that 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 helped me grow a lot. That experience. Um, and then the last one is just like very simply. Uh, my divorce itself. Anybody who is familiar with the kind of legal infrastructure around marriage dissolution will know that um, it's not favorable <laughs> to the man in the situation. And especially when you add the fact that um, someone without a high school diploma or any employment history um, is not, is, you know, the, the kind of law expects them to um, continue the lifestyle they're accustomed to, um, I think is the phrase. Um, and then when you yourself have variable income, um, that's not like that, that can just come back to hurt you. Yeah. And that's, that's true for poker players, especially, uh, if anybody who's going to get married here, if you are a poker player, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. I know he was speaking from the perspective of a man saying that it doesn't, uh, a lot of times the divorce courts don't rule in favor of males as generously, and, that, and that's true, but I've known the opposite. I've, I actually personally know females who've gotten really screwed because they were the ones making the money, and they had a lazy husband who had the ability to make money, in some cases even had a trade they could fall back on and just chose to be lazy and not work, and uh, were collecting alimony off their wife and child support off their wife for, for a very long time. And I've known women who've been victims of that, so it really happens to both genders. It happens to men more often, but it it definitely happens to women as well. And I can understand all that. And, of course, the divorce itself can be very expensive if it drags on and the, the lawyers just – the money adds up. Sorry, Eric Benzamokin, but you're not a divorce attorney, so I can say that. And But it really does add up, the legal expenses. And then if you're a poker player, the problem is establishing what your income is. And that can be very tough. Because how well you did one year doesn't mean you'll do that well the next year. In fact, you could lose the next year. So it's very hard to establish alimony and child support for what he said accurately is a variable income. Now, you could somewhat protect yourself by a prenuptial agreement, which may sound very unromantic and may seem like it's something that would be offensive, but it's something that really will protect you and you need to do. And if the 
person you're marrying has a regular job, it will protect them as well. Because if you start losing and then get a divorce, you could be entitled to their salary. And they won't like that either, nor do I think you should be. So I think it's smart to protect both people, both the one with a regular job and the one who has the poker playing job from screwing each other in the case of a divorce, depending on who's doing better at the moment. That shouldn't really have to do with it. So that's an important thing to have in place. And uh, child support, there's really not much you can do about other than just make an agreement with your ex-spouse without having to have the courts decide, but that you can't do a prenuptial agreement about that. But you should protect yourself, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he really did get screwed in his divorce. I'm not sure what year it was, but I know he did get a divorce, and it uh, may have come at a very inopportune time when it appeared he had a lot of income. The, the What I'm not understanding is he's claiming that for the last eight years he hasn't had much money. So how does – shouldn't he have been able to show that in court? Like, I don't care what I'm cashing. I'm I'm taking home very little. Like, did the judge not believe him? I, I don't know what. I, I, there's probably some piece missing here. Then he, he talks about the scammer who ripped him off. I mean, it's good he grew from that in learning not to just blindly trust people and to protect yourself and not leave yourself vulnerable financially to anyone unless you really, 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 really know him well. But I don't like when people walk away with that and say, okay, well, it wasn't that negative of an experience for me because I grew from it. Well, okay, it's good you grew from it, but you've got to try to get at the scammer too. You should be exposing them. You should be taking whatever legal action is possible if there is any. At the very least, expose the story so others won't be falling victim like you were, and it hurts the scammer. It it accomplishes two things. Number one, a much-deserved revenge, and number two, it protects others. It's good in two ways to expose the scammer. So if he really was the victim of a scam by someone he trusted, which I believe he was, I don't think he's making it up, then he should be exposing who that is. Um, so those three things like combined to just like, yeah, devastate, uh, my financial situation. So again, I'm super grateful to, um, a couple of close friends of mine for, um, helping and backing me when I needed them, but I've been eyeing an opportunity to kind of go out on my own, um, for a while. And, you know, I, I ran good in a tournament in Florida and finally got a bit of money to be able to do it. Um, so I did. This was in August? Yeah. Okay. So we're uh, three questions down the, uh, the, the list here. <laughs> I guess. Okay, so you can listen to the rest of this if you want. I'm not going to play anymore. But, yeah, it, it sounds like he's back, he's back at square one, though. It sounds like he lost the money back from August. At least I think he did. He's kind of jumping all over the place with that. But whether he did or he didn't, he definitely doesn't have the money that you thought he did prior to this interview. And it really pulls back the curtain somewhat on all of these high-stakes tournament players that one can be easily jealous of. Even I have had moments where I see the sums that some of these guys are pulling down and some of these scores, and I think to myself, wow, I'm, I'm kind of jealous I'm not doing that myself. I'm kind of jealous I didn't have a win like that. I'm kind of jealous I don't keep hitting million-dollar scores. And, and I start to imagine how much money they must have, and then I stop myself and go, wait a minute, I, that may not be true. They may have less money than I do. They may have much less money than I do. And I, I think to myself, you know what? These, we don't have the full story. There's many things we don't know when these poker players seemingly win so much money, especially in tournaments. 
and you keep finding out about these guys who you think are so rich, and then it turns out that they're not only broke now, they've been broke for a long time. And it is nice that he comes out here and explains all this, and he's so candid about it, and I, I think I believe like all or most of what he's saying. And I will say that in this podcast, I don't know who this other guy is interviewing him, but in this podcast, he, he comes off down to earth. He doesn't come off arrogant. He comes off introspective. He comes off very likable. This is by far the most likable I've ever seen Olivier Bousquet. I mean, by a very wide margin. If I only heard this of him, I'd say he sounds like a great guy. One who made a lot of mistakes, but but uh, like personal mistakes. Not so much as screwing anyone else, but just you know, a lot of mistakes in his own life. But he looks like he's grown, he's matured, he's owned up to them. He's, he's trying to uh, move forward. Seems very uh, realistic about the situation. Seems uh, not arrogant about the success he had. So, wow, very different guy on here than I've seen on social media. Sometimes the worst in people comes out in social media, though. I'll say that. Sometimes you see someone on social media and they seem like a jerk. And then you meet them in real life or you talk to them on the phone or you hear them on a podcast. And you go, oh, you know what? They're not that bad. You can like them a lot better when you get them in a setting that is off of social media. I thought that of Andrew Barber, by the way. That's just one who comes to mind like that. Like Andrew Barber... I really didn't care for him much on social media. I thought he was an annoying social justice warrior, and I found his Twitter to be obnoxious. And then we we had him on this show, and both Calwad and I were astounded that we actually got to like the guy. And since then, I've personally liked him, even though I agree with very little of what he writes on Twitter. But uh, personally, I like him, and and when I see him in uh, in card rooms, I'm always friendly to him. He's friendly to me, and we get along. And uh, and I even tweeted to him when he was doing well in a World Series event this past year, I think it was a millionaire maker, I told him I hope he wins. And I said, I'm serious. We don't get, we don't agree politically, but, uh, you know, I, I hope you win. And then he said, yeah, well, I, I think we both have mutual respect for each other, even though we don't agree on a lot of things. So it was him coming on this show that kind of changed my mind about this. Just from getting to know his personality, I liked him a whole lot better than the version of him I saw on Twitter. So maybe that's the case with Olivier Bousquet, too. I, as I said, I can't comment on the version of him at the World Series main event because he was just kind of – he was kind of like the quiet short stack. We've all been the quiet short stack. You know, when it's just – it's just kind of – it's coming towards the end. You kind of wish you had more chips, especially deep in a tournament. You just – you really wish you could be part of the whole thing, but you're just kind of waiting for the inevitable moment. You get it in and either double or lose, and that's kind of where he was when he came to the table. And he did not double, so that was the end of him. He still cashed like 43K. He did well in the event overall. But uh, at the moment he was at my table, he was not doing well. So I didn't get to learn much about his personality there, but listen to the whole thing. It's called Two Lives with Olivier Bousquet. And if you like the stuff I played, you'll probably like the rest of it. He always came across very positive to me before that Daniel Coleman stuff. Just I saw, I think I heard him on a few podcasts and, um, and just kind of announcing a couple of tournaments, you know, being part of the team. I forgot what they called him. Okay. You know what? Maybe, maybe Daniel Coleman was a bad influence because I, I never, I, think so. I never heard him on any of that stuff. This is the first time I've actually heard him talking. I've only seen him on social media and seen that whole Daniel Coleman thing with the Poker Stars final table and none of that made him look good. And I even saw some interactions he had on Twitter recently that kind of were you know, irritating to me, but, and nothing that bad, just kind of just irritating. But 
this wasn't at all. This was the opposite of that. I thought he came off very well in this. Anyway, um, it is possible he was under the influence of, of Daniel Coleman, who uh, made him seem like a jerk when he really wasn't. Okay, so uh, let's move on here. Almost at midnight here, 11.58 p.m. Pacific Time, in our very last show of 2019. 2020 will be the ninth calendar year of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We started in early 2012. We'll soon be on our eighth anniversary of this show. It's been around a long time. By far the longest running show I've ever been part of and by far the uh, longest running site at all I've been part of, Poker Fraud Alert, which I also happen to own. So I want to talk about someone else who's broke, but uh, a much different type of story. This is about an addicted gambler who is suing Caesars Windsor for $342,000 plus another 500k punitive damages because he lost that amount there and feels they should not have let him play in the first place. This is a story out of Canada, and it's similar to a story that came out of the U.S. in 2007 on a greater scale involving a guy named Terence Watanabe, who I will tell you about again. I've talked to him about him before on this show. But uh, this is about uh, a current situation in Canada, and then I'll tell you about the Watanabe situation from 12 years ago and its similarities. Tarwinder Shokar is, by his own admission, a Canadian alcoholic and gambling addict. And he was banned from many casinos in Canada. He lost his entire fortune at Casino Branchford in Ontario, and he decided that was it. He decided, as he was walking away from Casino Branchford, that he was just a loser, and he just wanted to end it all. He saw a truck speeding down the road and actually stepped out in front of that truck on purpose to get hit and killed. But he lived. He got hit. He got seriously injured. He did not die. He somehow then got a large insurance payout from the, I don't know if it's the trucker's insurance, it probably was. I don't know how he managed that when he intentionally stepped in front of the truck, but somehow he got a large insurance payout. And uh, this gave him over $300,000 of a bankroll again. And he probably thought, oh, my luck's turning around now. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. So... He took the 300-something thousand dollars, and he wanted to go gamble. The problem was he was banned from a lot of casinos around him in Ontario for either drinking too much or for having a gambling problem. And as in the U.S., the casinos are supposed to not allow people to play who are too inebriated, or if you cause too much of a too much trouble there when drunk, then you will get banned, or... If you seem to have a gambling problem, they're supposed to ban you, though often they don't because they want your money. But he was banned from a lot of places. So he actually went to a travel agency and said, hey, can you find me other casinos? And a travel agency found him casino uh, to the uh, Windsor Casino, Caesars Windsor. Caesars Windsor is in Ontario. It is the only Caesars property that has a casino 
outside of the U.S. There are other Caesars properties outside the U.S., but uh, they're not casino properties. The only casino Caesars outside the U.S. is Caesars Windsor, but it's very close to the U.S. It's right by Detroit, directly across the river. And it's in uh, southwest Ontario. Much of its customer base comes from the, the Detroit area, but Detroit does have other casinos. Others do travel from areas in Ontario to go to Caesars Windsor, but uh, there are other casinos in Ontario, so it's, that's not the only option. I've been to Caesars Windsor. It is one of three Caesars properties that have casinos in the world, the other two being in Vegas and Atlantic City, which I've been to as well. My trip to Caesars Windsor was in 2014. It was a fairly nice property. It was uh, not as large as Caesars Las Vegas or Caesars Atlantic City, but it was a decent-sized casino. The entire town of Windsor seemed to revolve around it. It had a really nice view of downtown Detroit at night. At, at nighttime, you could look across the river, see a, a really nice skyline of Detroit with with you know, in front of a river. It was really picturesque to walk there, surprisingly. You wouldn't think of Detroit as picturesque, but it actually was at, at night. You can only see the buildings and the lights. Um the uh, something interesting about Caesar's Windsor was that uh it was one of these properties where kids could not access most of the restaurants there because they were part of the casino and kids are not allowed to walk through the casino in Ontario like they are in Las Vegas. In Vegas the law in all of Nevada the law is that kids are allowed in gambling areas as long as they are moving. You are allowed to have kids there as long as they are accompanied by an adult, and the kids are constantly moving. They cannot stand. But as long as they're en route somewhere, then they can walk. One time, laughably, I think it was actually in Lake Tahoe, um, I had Benjamin standing with me while Ben's mom was getting a total rewards card made, and the security gave me a hard time. And I said, well, the mom's, the mom's right there. We're just waiting. He's like, no, you can't stand there. I was like, well, the law is we had to walk, right? He said, yeah. I said, well, can I walk around in circles? He said, yeah, I guess. So Ben and I were just walking around at a small circle over and over again until his mom was done. And that was actually legal. But uh, back to this story. He went to casino to the Caesars Windsor. And he uh, lost $342,000 in just two short visits in October 2013. So you can imagine... Uh, he was a huge degenerate. He made very large bets. He probably didn't know what he was doing. He was probably drinking a lot. And the money was all gone. That was all the money he had left from the insurance payment was the uh, the 342000 So two visits to Caesars Windsor, gone. So he has filed suit against both Caesars Windsor and the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Commission for letting him play at all. And he's claiming that Caesars Windsor overserved him alcohol and continued to let him play when he was in a severely impaired state, both of which are gaming violations, if true. So Caesars Windsor, they, they haven't had that much comment on this, but they, they have said that uh, through their attorney that he chose to do this. The, the attorney of Caesars uh, said, any losses Mr. Shokar may have suffered are not recoverable in law. 
Uh, as an admitted problem gambler, Mr. Shokar was also negligent in coming to Caesar's Windsor in the first place. And then uh, Shokar's lawyer, in response to that, say said, uh, they're making it sound so straightforward. <laughs> well, it kind of is. Now, I can see both sides of this somewhat, where since it is the law that they can't serve these these problem gamblers, if they're aware someone's a problem gambler, then they're not supposed to let them play. And if somebody is sloshed out drunk, they're not supposed to play either, even if they're not, not a problem gambler, and that he claims both were occurring. And it's possible it's true. You have to understand, when these guys come and are willing to shoot off this type of money, that the casinos get so excited, especially the hosts handling them, that they a lot of times they throw the law at the window. And uh, so apparently... He brought uh, a $55,000 bank draft on October 17, 2013 to Caesars Windsor. And he was given, quote, the red carpet treatment. He had an executive host, and the host was uh, constantly following him around, kissing his ass. He bought 25000 in chips and played roulette for about an hour and then said he was hungry. The host originally then ran him over to uh, Nero's Steakhouse, which is the steakhouse on property, gave him a comp meal. Uh-oh. It sounds like we're losing Trader Ruski here. Bad connection, it says. So he got the comp meal at Nero's. You know, pretty standard stuff. Then after the meal was over, they brought him back to the gambling floor, where he then withdrew another 25000 over a 16-minute period. I wonder if he lost the first 25000 before eating the Nero Steakhouse meal. Then he took a, uh, a taxi home, oddly, even though he checked into the hotel. I don't know why he went home. But then he, uh, he came back the next morning and lost $92,000. And then a few days later, that uh, he was returning back to uh, Caesars Windsor with a bank draft for 100000 and he lost that money, another 50000 another 50000 and uh, then he was there for his uh, final uh, $75,000 uh, for a $250,000 loss that day. His lawyer said the Caesars Windsor had paid about $800 worth of taxi rides between his home and uh, the casino for those times he wanted to go home. And that when he was coming back from home the first time, they had opened a special table for him that was waiting for him as soon as he returned. His lawyer said they did everything they could for him to gamble as much as possible. Well, I believe that. See, once they think they have a live one there, and, and these hosts get commissioned, by the way, for this. If they say they don't, they're lying to you. They get commissioned for this. So the hosts, they, they see dollar signs in their eyes when they get a guy like this who just bets large amounts of money, may not even be good at the games he's playing, Roulette, you can't really be good or bad. It's just a game of chance, but uh, the odds are against you. And if you're betting large amounts of money without the bankroll to cover it, you're going to go bust. So that's what he did. And, of course, they were opening special tables for him and paying for taxi rides and everything else. They just they wanted him to be there and lose as much as possible. So the question is, is this his responsibility – 
for doing this, for coming back there and gambling his own money away, knowingly going to these casinos, knowing he has a gambling problem? Or is this a sick individual that the casinos took advantage of, or both? Also, how much should Caesars Windsor have known about his history, that he was banned elsewhere? Should there have been some notification about him? Is it possible Caesars Windsor knew and chose not to ban him, and chose to just let him lose all his money? These are questions which will have to be answered in court, but it makes it not so simple. You you may... The initial thing one would say when they hear this is, come on, suing the casino, you go to gamble and lose, and you sue the casino, that's a sore loser. Also, what if he had won? Obviously, uh, he wouldn't be handing them the money back, so that would be kind of a free roll if he could just go there, play. If he loses, sue them for the money back. Plus, well, he'll never walk away, though, Jeff. That's true. He, he won't. So, I mean, so he's not, what's he gonna, what, what number is he gonna make? He's like, oh, I'm good. That's true. But he could play he, golf now. He could bring it somewhere else. That that could happen. I agree. I agree. He's destined to be broke, but uh, it, it didn't have to be there. But I, I agree. Once he's kind of like used to going there, it's probably just going to keep like returning, returning until he's bust. I mean, the, I think even if he ran it up to like six million dollars, he would have chunked it all back off. I think if he ran it up to like ten million dollars or twenty million, I bet he would have chunked it all back off. Like with some of these guys, yeah, it's exactly. Just, it's just it's just they're destined like the to go to zero. Guy from Caesars didn't the guy run it up to like. A few million, and then he pissed it all away. That was an old story. Um, and blackjack. I'm trying to uh, maybe there's somebody. I, 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 so many of these I forget. We're going to talk about another story involving Caesars, though. So this is has a, it has a similarity to the Terrence Watanabe case in 2007 at Caesars Las Vegas, and that's on a much bigger scale. The Terrence Watanabe story. Terrence Watanabe was the biggest whale of all time. He was the son of the guy who invented the Oriental Trading Company, which was a mail-order merchandise stuff. You can buy little gifts and crafts from them, and it it did very well. In fact, I I remember the 90s, we got catalogs from them all the time. But it it went back further than the 90s. His his dad started this really from scratch and, and made a fortune on this thing. And so... Terrence Watanabe, who inherited the money from his dad, and he had uh, other relatives too, but I think he inherited like uh, at least half of it. And then he sold the company and, and made a lot of money. So he had a lot of money to his name, and he had a gambling and drinking problem, much like this guy. Much like this Tarwinder show car, but on a greater scale. Terrence Watanabe was also not very good at the games he played, and this is a lethal combination of being... Awful at the games you're playing, and betting extremely high stakes at negative expectation games in the first place. He actually got kicked out of the win in 2006 because Steve Wynn determined that Watanabe was a problem gambler. He met with Watanabe and talked to him and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ban you from my property, even though I could make a lot of money off of you because I think you're a problem gambler. Whether Steve Wynn did this because he felt bad for Watanabe or because he was afraid of his casino's license getting revoked for continuing to serve a problem gambler at high stakes, I don't know. But uh, um, that's what he did, and you have to give him some credit there. However, Caesars in Las Vegas didn't have such reservations, and they scooped him up, and he started to play. And apparently Caesars, at least the hosts working for them, did some things they should not have done. They just 
served him unlimited drinks even when he was way, way, way past the point that he should still be drinking and playing. Just kept serving him drinks after drink after drink. He was making dumber and dumber decisions at the table. Some people described him as uh, uh, one of the worst uh, blackjack players of all time. And he was betting insane amounts of money. And they also even got him pain pills to take that he also liked taking because, uh, and that's totally illegal, of course, but they acquired that for him because he expressed the desire for that. Uh, believe it or not, uh, they did not get him hookers. They, they, women were not part of the deal here. And that's because he was gay. But I, I don't think they got him gay hookers either. Uh, prior to all this, he was actually a, uh, a philanthropist and had donated a lot of money to AIDS causes. He did not have AIDS himself, or HIV, but he was, uh, being gay, he felt uh, a connection to the whole AIDS uh, issue, of course, and uh, donated a lot of money to uh, to AIDS research. And uh, anyway, he lost all of his money at Caesars in 2007. He actually was like, I think, 6% of all their earnings of the entire company, not just Caesars Las Vegas. That's that's how much he lost. At one point, he demanded that seven stars was not good enough for him, that he wanted a special level of total rewards just for him. So they made one called Chairman. So there, there was a level above seven stars called Chairman. He was the only one who was Chairman. And as soon as uh, he lost all his money and then sued them, which I'll get to in a second, then the Chairman was retired. So there's never been another Chairman, and that level doesn't exist anymore. But that was above seven stars. I don't know what the perks of chairman was. I think it was just symbolic. I don't think they ever defined the exact perks of chairman. The funny thing is there's chairman now at other casinos, which I don't know if it's based on that or if they just happen to be using that term. But like I think station casinos have chairman as their, as their top uh, level. But Terrence Watanabe sued them eventually, stating that they violated all kinds of gaming laws by keeping him so drunk getting him pain pills and letting him gamble as a problem gambler. Caesars also had a lawsuit against him in that he had taken out markers that he couldn't pay. So when he went broke, he represented he had more money behind that he really didn't have, and I think he shot off like an additional $60 million that he couldn't cover. So they were suing him for that money, and uh, he was suing them. What's those weird noises from Skype? Sounds like I'm on a submarine here. Yeah, I think we're I think we're okay now. So uh, Terence Watanabe and Caesars eventually settled, and the settlement, while not fully disclosed, was believed to be both sides just dropping it. Where Caesars said, "Okay, fine, we won't hold you responsible for the markers that you never that you couldn't cover," which is a lot, like sixty million. But the uh, I think what like two hundred million he lost there. I think maybe even more that he wasn't getting any of that back. So he was dropping his claim against them, they are dropping their claim against him for the markers, and they both walked away. Terrence Watanabe is still alive 12 years later. He wasn't that old when all this happened, but uh, he claims he's suffering from a lot of health problems and cannot even pay his medical bills, which is sadly ironic given all the money he donated over time to uh, research for AIDS and other diseases. But uh, others are helping him, and uh, but yeah, that's uh, the fortune he inherited from the Oriental Trading Company over two hundred million. Where he inherited the company and then uh, sold it, 
was gone. And uh, let's see, I'm looking at the a report about this. Uh, they also offered him at, at uh, Caesars 15% cash back on any losses greater than 500000 Wow. Uh, also, Caesars alleged in their suit against him that he was using marijuana and cocaine and also made sexual advances towards employees, presumably uh, male employees. That kind of would suck if you're working there and some dude's like trying to grab your junk and you're like, what the hell? You're like, Get, throw this guy out of here. And they're like, fuck no, we're not throwing him out of here. He's the biggest whale of all time. I come back over here and let him grab your dick. That, uh, that kind of sucks for the employees that he did this to if he really did. But uh, yeah, it says he's estimated to have lost $204 million. And I, I think the markers he owed were about $60 million. That's pretty bad. That was in 2007. So this is kind of from this is familiar. It's similar, but on a much smaller scale. But it's got a lot of the same allegations. It's in a different venue, so we will see what happens. I don't know exactly what Ontario law has to say about this. I know they have generally the same requirements about not allowing people to gamble under the circumstances. I do want to know how much the casino should have known about his history, and I think that might determine a lot of what he wins or doesn't win. If they should have known and let him play anyway, then he may have a good case. Or if he can prove they let him to play when he was really, really, really drunk and they shouldn't have, that's another reason they should have uh, stopped him. And the question is, what defines problem gambling? And that's the problem is, that's a difficult thing to define. How do you know when someone's a problem gambler or just a high-stakes gambler who's on a bad run? Especially when someone's losing it quickly. If someone is losing it over time, then it's easier to establish their problem gambler. If someone just shows up there and is just firing big on everything and just losing, do you really know if they're a problem gambler? Maybe just uh, the rich guy who likes to gamble or just someone who just gets a hair up his ass and wants to gamble very high? It's really a subjective thing. So it's hard to say the casino should have known you were a problem gambler Unless there's some history they could have pulled up about you and should have pulled up about you that would have said that before you set foot in the door. So we will see. This story's actually been going around a lot. I had so many people text me this story they wanted me to cover it. Including people who don't even follow this stuff that closely. So a lot of people are fascinated by this story, which to me isn't that exciting because it's really paling in comparison to the Terrence Watanabe story, which is so much more interesting and for so much more money. We're talking about 342000 versus $204 million, which is a factor of almost 1000 But, uh, yeah, this happens. This happens all the time. And I don't even... I, I, I'd have to know more about this to say how I would rule. It's not that straightforward to me. Well, let's go from one Canadian story to another, since we're talking about Canada already. I want to talk about the... Canada Revenue Agency, which is equivalent to the IRS, that they've decided to start going after high-stakes poker pros who are possibly dodging taxes. Now, before I get to that, I have to explain to you the way it works in Canada regarding being a poker pro, because it's a lot different there than it is in the U.S. In the U.S., anything you win in poker is very simple. That's considered income. Um, there's some complications because of uh, recent changes in the tax law of what you can deduct from poker winnings 
before you could easily deduct uh, any losses from winnings in the same calendar year. Now it's a little more complicated to do that. I won't get into that whole situation. It has to do with the new tax law that makes it harder to itemize. But we're not going to talk about that here. We're going to talk about Canada here. In Canada, someone who wins in gambling does not owe any taxes. See, anybody who wins gambling in the U.S. owes taxes, whether they're a poker pro or whether they're an amateur. And this is any kind of gambling or even the lottery. Any any form of income you get from any game of chance, you owe taxes on it as if it's income. But in Canada, it's not like that. In Canada, if you're just a, a recreational gambler and you win, you don't pay any taxes. What they call true games of chance are not taxable in Canada. And where it changes, where it becomes different, is that once the games you're playing are a source of professional income, then it becomes taxable. So if you are a pro poker player who is counting on poker to make a living, then whatever you're making there at the poker table is taxable, whereas a fish in the game or a recreational player or even a good player that just plays once once in a while or, or doesn't use that as his main source of income, his winnings are not taxable. And as you can imagine, this is kind of subjective and something that uh, people can try to make claims they're not really pros when they actually are. It's not straightforward in the like in the U.S. where if you win, you owe the taxes. Doesn't matter what you are. So for many years, Canada just hasn't really done very much about this. Of course, there's a lot of pros that have been lying about their status, and they claim that their poker winnings are just simply. Uh, recreational winnings, or they just simply don't report the winnings at all. However, the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, has decided they're going to start going after some of these poker pros. And what they started doing is, in order to determine possible income sources from poker of professional players, they started trying to get complete income records from players who they suspected were poker pros since uh, 2017. However, they've been failing. They've been failing to, to get these. They've, they've tried, but they, they haven't managed to force them to do it. But um, the CRA keeps looking for what they call transaction histories, and... Some of the ways they're doing this is by looking up on these online sites like the Hendon Mob that are uh, that keep records of people's caches, which, of course, doesn't keep track of their buy-ins, but at least they see when these players are caching. And they can uh, at least get an idea of what these players are taking in, and then they can call them in and demand them to uh, you know, put the burden on them to show that they're losing. Otherwise, these players can sometimes just lie about... Uh, whether they've won or lost. Something they've also been doing is they've been looking for what they call lifestyle indicators to where they can tell that somebody is living an expensive lifestyle which would far exceed what they claim that they are making on their tax returns. And, uh, for example, with one player, they sought the contract deals on the lease of a high-end Audi, uh, Audi S5. So they uh, 
what they're trying to do, basically, is figure out who's winning in poker. That is a Canadian citizen. And who is consistently winning as a professional player. And then hit them with all kinds of back taxes and penalties for having uh, not claimed these winnings in the past. Whereas before, they were letting this go. Uh... There are five players for sure that are being investigated in Quebec for uh, winning in poker. And this the, the reason they're all in Quebec is they were actually named by uh, a French-language uh, newspaper in Quebec called the Journal du Montreal that named Sammy Lafleur, Francois Billiard, Vincent Jacques, Pascal Lefrancois, and Marc Etienne McLaughlin. He's the only one who doesn't sound all that French, Marc Etienne McLaughlin. The Marc Etienne is fine, but the McLaughlin you wouldn't expect for a French guy. The rest of them, uh, Samuel Lefleur, Francois Billiard, uh, Vincent uh, Lefrancois. I mean, you know, these guys, and Vincent Jacques, uh, Pascal Lefrancois, like, these guys are like stereotypical French names. Anyway, all of them are being investigated for underreporting or non-reporting of poker income from 2014 through 2016. I don't really know these guys, but uh, apparently they do at the CRA. And uh, apparently they've also been contacting Card Player, the Hendon Mob, and Pocket Fives, attempting to... Uh, acquire information. I guess they don't even have to contact them. They can just simply uh, go on those sites and get that information. Interestingly, the Hendon mob allows players who are based in Europe to opt out of their listings because there are uh, European privacy laws that demand that you can be removed from basically anything online that uh, you don't like. So these uh, data protection laws allow people to remove themselves from the Hended mob and uh, therefore avoid being stalked by their respective tax agencies, which wasn't the intended use of this, but that's what they've been doing. However, Canadians can't do this. You have to be based in the European Union to be able to uh, remove yourself. If you're from Canada and you ask the Hendon mob to remove you, they will not. So so the CRA can easily access that, and there's nothing you can do about it. Interestingly, in the U.S., I have not heard of many cases where the IRS came after anyone who's a poker player, despite the fact that uh, you would think it could be quite lucrative for them to do so in some cases. A lot of poker players are very irresponsible. Some of them never even file a tax return. I've known poker pros who've taken down millions of dollars in winnings and don't even file taxes. And not even so much as some sort of clever tax dodge. They just don't do it because they don't bother. That's the way some poker players are. There's a lot of poker players who, if uh, investigated by the IRS, would be dead to rights. They would... uh, at the very least, be responsible for a ton of back taxes and penalties. Uh, now, as we've covered earlier in the show, many of these players who win a lot of money years ago currently have nothing 
which means the IRS would be trying to squeeze blood from a stone. However, if they were to go after someone, say, uh, shortly after the April 15th deadline, or, uh, or they take a look at their tax return that year and see it doesn't match with what they appear to have won, according to the sites like the Hinden Mob, then they can call them in for an audit and uh, get their money before they chunk it back off in one of many ways. But the IRS has not seemingly been interested in doing this. One reason this hasn't happened, this is my opinion, I haven't consulted with the IRS about this, but uh, one reason this hasn't happened, I think, is because the IRS, uh, they typically like something that there's a paper trail that makes it easy for them to prove their case. So like online poker, it's very tough. Online poker, there's a lot of ways people can cash out. and for, Forget the Bitcoin nowadays. Even back in the net teller days, or, there was a lot of different ways people could get the money that they want online without being much of a paper trail on it. And yes, if they really want to investigate someone, they could figure it out, but it's, it's not an easy thing to do, and it's not even easy to deduce who's receiving it, especially because the IRS mainly counts on reports that they get that don't seem to match up uh, properly. So they're just, they're just not getting... It's one thing to get uh, forms from uh, entities that uh, they won the money from and where they're not paying their taxes. Here they'd have to know who's winning the money, which is not being reported to them in any way. I'm talking about online. And then go after these people and and prove they received it and and figure out the way they received it. It, it, The burden of proof is on them and it can be tough. So I think that's one reason they haven't gone after it. Another reason they're just kind of not all that aware of online poker. They know it's there, but they it's just there's not enough poker pros to where it's worth like putting out a concerted effort to go after them in general. And another reason is because a lot of these poker pros only have the money temporarily and shoot it off. And I think the way they look at this is like it's gambling, and that people win money gambling and lose money gambling, and soon enough all the money's gone, and by the time they take action, the money won't be there to collect anyway. The IRS is, is really out for money. Some people see the IRS as, as a big, scary, like, law enforcement agency. That's not what it is. It's, the IRS is just out for money. That's all they want. And they really only want to go after those they think can get them money or ones where it's, it's simple to get the money out of them. So if, if they detect an error on your return where they think you owe them more money, yeah, the, the computer will fire off a letter to you and hope that you pay it. But as far as audits and all that, they... They really only do that when they think it's worth their time to do. And with poker players, it definitely could be, but they may have thought, well, by the time we audit someone and get them in here and get a ruling done, it's, it's, it's like it'll be too long and the money will be gone anyway. So that may be some of the attitude they have as well. But I just – I haven't heard from – I don't know anyone personally or even – like a friend of a friend, I, I really haven't heard stories in all my years in poker about the IRS coming to a poker player and accusing him of underpaying his taxes. That's not to say if you underpay your taxes on your poker winnings, you're, you're safe. I'm just saying I haven't heard of this when I would expect that I would have. And I know some people who've gotten away with a lot of taxes that they should have paid and did not. And I don't mean underpaying. I mean like just not filing returns. Somebody got away with it. I don't know how. But it's surprising. Surprising, but also not surprising. But you never know. Like the like what's happening with the CRA, they're, they're deciding to do it. They're deciding that they're going to come after them. And that's a different story in Canada. In Canada, they don't do it because 
gambling winnings are not taxable unless you're a pro. So they just all say, hey, I'm not a pro and don't report anything. And the CRA is finally realizing that that's something that people are getting away with. And then can some of them just get a job doing whatever for 20 hours a week and say that's their job so then they can play poker? They can, but if the poker income greatly exceeds that, they can't. Then the majority of their income is coming from poker. So it's still a problem. They have to be... Right, so it says that. Because if it doesn't say that, it would seem to me like they could get a job doing whatever. Yeah, if, if that's the main form supporting you. Now, now, yes, it would be a better cover if you at first if you have a job. And, and you can say, well, I'm just, I have a job and I happen to play poker on the side. I'm doing really well at the moment. But if you continue to win at that rate over many years, then... They'll say, "Look, that, that's not your main form of income is poker, not this little job you have." So that they, they won't buy that either. It's I'm not sure what the exact like if, law. Like if you were in Canada, you could pay yourself a salary through Poker Fraud Alert. Say you run a website, and then you know it, it wouldn't work unless unless I were to somehow funnel the money I made from online poker like through Poker Fraud Alert, but then it would be tax, taxable anyway, so it wouldn't matter. So I like if, if, if yeah. See, that would be the problem, is it would still exceed what Poker Fraud Alert makes, which uh, would be a problem. I, I don't know the exact code on this, but I know it's if – basically, if you're supporting yourself with poker, then uh, – and you're doing this for the long or medium term, then it's considered that you're a poker pro. So I, it's just – the way people get out of it is they just say – since it's objective, though, you know, what is uh, – what is a poker pro? They just say, oh, no, 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 I'm not a poker pro. I just, you know, I've just been playing a lot and doing well. That's all. And that's not going to fly if it's really, if they're, if these people's feet are really held to the fire, I don't think it's going to fly, but they've been trying all this time. And it's hard because it's of this weird subjective thing of when taxes are due versus when they're not due. I think, and I've always thought there just shouldn't be taxes on gambling winnings. Because it's, it's a, a net, way below zero for everybody combined. So far more people are losing and far more money is being lost than won. So for those that win, it's kind of BS you have to pay taxes, especially in the U.S. where it's even amateur players who win uh, have to pay taxes on it. But even the professional, I I just don't think that's something that should be taxed. I think it's it's a totally different matter. It's just... uh, It's not the same type of income because it's, uh, it's not a net win for all the players. And because it can be very temporary too. Because when you've won, it's not necessarily at the moment because you're the best player, the most skilled player. But that's the way it is. It's not going to change in the U.S. anytime soon. So that's what's happening there. I'll let you guys know if there's any update to that story, if any Canadians get popped with this further or have to pay big fines. If I get more information, I will let you guys know. 775-FRAUD-55 is the number to call or text. 775-FRAUD-55. Here's a story about Nevada rather than just uh, about Vegas. It's a Nevada story that I found interesting enough to report on uh, the show. The Black Rock Desert might be known to you through... uh, the fact that it's where Burning Man takes place. And I don't know if you guys have been there. I've never been to Burning Man. Trader Ruski, have you ever been to Burning Man? (coughs) 
Can't hear you. Oh, I got I got off mute and back on. Um, I have not. I have friends that go there every year. Okay, I've never been there either. I've known people who went there also. Uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt's <laughs> older brother, Dan Levitt, was a uh, like a fire eater. Of, uh, he had some kind of fire show he did there. He was very very big into the whole Burning Man scene. Uh, he, he died of a drug overdose some years ago, but he he actually contacted me. Shortly after I won my bracelet, I guess he had some fascination with poker in, in those days. And then when I looked looked up what he was doing, I saw he was doing all that stuff. But uh, anyway, Bernie... Did you know him or something? I knew him, yes. I knew him back in BBS days. I knew days. he grew up in the Valley. Yes, I knew him back in the BBS days. I knew him from a BBS uh, back in the early 90s. And I even knew uh, his brother a little bit, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who became very famous. Uh, I, I doubt his brother remembers me by this point because he was like 10 years old when I knew him, but uh, I did know him. Anyway, well. the Black Rock Desert is really not used at all during the winter. It's a big, big expanse of land that's very, very flat. It's one of the biggest flat lands you're going to find in the U.S. It's known that you can go to the Black Rock Desert and see nothing but flat land in every direction. You'll see nothing but flat, which is hard to find. Try, try to find somewhere you can go where you can stand and just see nothing but flat desert with nothing else around. No mountains, no hills, no buildings, no roads, nothing in every direction. Very hard to find. It's a 200-square-mile desert which is uh, barren with uh, really no vegetation or anything like that. There are hills and mountains surrounding it, but you, you, you get deep enough in, it's just all flat. It's actually one of the largest and flattest areas on Earth. That's why they, they have uh, Burning Man there. In the summer, when they have Burning Man, it's, yeah, it, it's the grounds of, of sand, but it's very solid. Because it doesn't rain much there in the summer. But in the winter, it's a different story. A lot of rain comes down, even gets snow there. If you want to know where it is in Nevada, it's nowhere near Vegas. It's uh, east of Reno, but a good deal east of Reno, in the middle of nowhere. So it's, it gets cold there. It gets cold, It's uh, it gets rain. And what do you think happens to all the dirt there? Well, it becomes mud. Uh, it's actually northeast. I'm looking at it on a map right now. It's actually northeast of Reno. Uh, to get there, you would go northeast on I-80 towards Winnemucca and then uh, go northwest on a little road off of the 80 to get up there. But uh, yeah, you could also, you know, what you could actually get off on actually Fernley's where you'd get off. Not even in, uh, you'd be going north in the 447 from Fernley's where you'd go. Fernley's a little bit east of Reno, but overall, it's not that close to Reno. It is not that far from the Oregon border. It's not super close to it, but it's not. It's in that direction of the Oregon-Nevada border. Or, so, uh, it's way out in the middle of nowhere. There's no big cities next to it. Fernley's the closest town of any consequence, and that's not that big either. So it's very isolated, and people started to uh, 
go there in the winter as kind of a, an off-roading challenge. When there'd be mud, people would uh, take their 4x4s down there and basically try to get across it in the mud. And it's kind of like a, a challenge. Can you do it? Well, as you might imagine, what happens is that sometimes these 4x4s get stuck. And they, they have ways they can get themselves out of being stuck, and a lot of these guys are very experienced. But um, they also know not to go there when the conditions are really, really bad. So when it's super muddy, when you're not going to get much traction at all, when you're eventually going to just get completely stuck and your truck's going to sink in, then you don't go. And people know that. But uh, a situation occurred where somebody went there and tried to go through the Black Rock Desert despite recent heavy rains in the area and recent super thick and heavy mud and got himself stuck. He took a Toyota 4Runner. Uh, this guy was Canadian. This might, a lot of Canadian talk on this show this time. But uh, this guy is Canadian, and maybe he wasn't that familiar with the area. But his name is George Sukhanov. And on December 21st, he decided he's going to try to get all the way across the Black Rock Desert, which was once a lake bed. And he tried to get across it, and predictably, he got stuck. He tried and tried and tried to get his forerunner out, but it was absolutely stuck all the way up to its axles. If you Google George Sukhanov, that's S-U-K-H-A-N-O-V, Black Rock Desert, you will see pictures of what his forerunner looked like stuck in the mud, and it looks like a very bad situation. I mean, you you can see. Uh, Trade Risky, you can see my screen, right? Now I, now I can. Okay, yeah, so you, see, you see the picture here? Uh-huh. Yeah, that uh, looks pretty big. Can you picture that truck getting wow. out of that? It's, it's really bad because it's, uh, it, it's like deep in the mud, and there's like a trail following the truck, which is like water and mud. You just can't picture it picking up any traction. You, you picture that he, uh, he guns the gas and the thing just spins, 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 spins. So he tried and tried to get it out. Fortunately, his cell phone had reception, which is pretty amazing over there, but it did. He's lucky. Yes, he would have been really screwed if he... He did have some water and food with him, but only enough for a few days. But he he did have cell phone reception. At first, he called the local sheriff's office, and they said, okay, you want us to come out there and help you? He said, no. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but... He said he didn't want to be rescued. Some of these guys don't want to be rescued because it's like they feel like they're being a burden. They feel like it's uh, that's the, the ultimate defeat that not only couldn't you do it, but someone has to come out and rescue you. So instead, after he couldn't get out of there, instead of calling back the police with his tail between his legs and saying, eh, you know what, I need you guys to rescue me, he went on Facebook and he was a member of some groups that uh, that do this type of stuff. And he asked if anyone could help him. So on one of the groups, people started 
talking with each other about how to get him out of this. Now, what he, he posted on Facebook a picture of the truck being stuck where it was and posted his exact coordinates of where he was and said, can anyone get out of here? This is what he posted on December 21st at 7 p.m. Stuck at Playa Black Rock Desert. Need help. Like 100 meters or more or less from ground, from firm ground. Uh, then he gave his, his coordinates. Update. Still stuck here. Someone tried to reach me last night from Gerlach site. Got stuck there. Not sure if they're out now, but they did not seem keen to continue towards me. Yeah, you think someone tried to go rescue him and got stuck themselves. <laughs> so they weren't keen to continue. So I'm still in need of rescue. This is after you know, someone had said they are going to come get him. Uh, given the remoteness of the location, it goes without saying that I'll be keen to cover at least gas expenses to get me out. Oh, really? Like, you should do more than that. Come on, come get me. You know, possibly get your own truck stuck and uh, spend all this time to get out of here. I'll pay for your gas. I'll be. I'll, I'll do that. I'll be a good guy. You should pay them a lot more than that. Access to the spot I'm at is feasible from Black Rock Springs side only, north end of the playa. From what I can see, the entire playa south, east, and west of my location looks the same as the spot I'm at. Impassable. That's great. So he's saying basically you have to come from the north, otherwise there's no way you'll get in. That the the rest of it looks as bad as where he is. I drove in from Daniel Junction about two hours, some muddy sections too, so heavier vehicles might run into problems even earlier. Having said that, I'm no expert in local trails, just observations. To me, it seems like there are two ways to get me out, either a vehicle to the north uh, side with with a lot of winch line 100 feet or more, or a bunch of traction boards plus a high lift jack. Digging here is problematic, so lifting the vehicle and putting boards under might work. I do have enough food, water, gas for at least another day. It is miserable here. Mostly because of the mud, but I'm in no immediate danger. I think he's saying gas because he probably turns the vehicle on at night to create heat in there. Because otherwise I think he'd freeze because it gets cold there. Um, I might need another jerry of gas to make it back to, to Neo Junction, though. I do realize the situation I'm in is purely a result of, my, of horrible decision-making on my side, so I don't get offended by a bit of calling me out of my own stupidity. Still, would very much appreciate the rescue. Thanks, everyone. So they discussed this rescue, and people were really getting into this, and this went somewhat viral. Then, in fact, the local news station covered it. There were two Facebook groups, Nevada 4x4 Rescue Group and 775 Off-Road and Recovery Public Page. 775 is referring to the area code over there, by the way. The comments on both of them were showing a lot of different people like forming strategies on how to rescue him and people volunteering. Well... Eventually, they got it done. Eventually, they uh, they got over there and got him, but the forerunner was stuck so badly that they could not get it out of the mud. So they were able to get to the point. They were able to get him, and they tried to pull the car out there. Everything they tried, they could not get that forerunner out of the mud. So they said, okay, well, forget your car. Come with us, and maybe this can be recovered later. Maybe it can't, but obviously getting you is the most important here. Apparently, the rescuers came very close to losing one of their own Jeeps in the rescue, but they were able to get that out. But uh, while trying to get his forerunner out, they almost lost one of their Jeeps, and they gave up. On uh, December 22nd at 7 p.m., they uh, posted... 
uh, someone named Joseph Pickett posted in one of the Facebook groups, George is in Reno. His car isn't. Thieves, don't bother. Seriously, you'll get stuck and the icy water it's in is miserable. (laughs) You know what? He shouldn't have advised that to the thieves. He should have let the thieves go out there and find the I know. It would have been like the Roach Motel. (laughs) It is like the Roach Motel. That would be a perfect sting. Thieves go out there and they get stuck and the people are like, "Uh, so what are you doing there? Uh, We came to rescue him. But but he was out. Oh, well, we didn't know. Yeah, sure. Okay, good luck with that. Uh, it went on to write, I'm working with leadership from other clubs to have a plan. And, of course, George, this isn't a come and watch party. It's real bad out there. And a nicely built rig had to be pulled by two, pulled out by two others, referring to the Jeep that almost got stuck. Alas, the Toyota is still with the fishes. More important to get everyone home safe than keep going at the car in conditions that kept getting worse. And they actually had a, a PayPal for donations to this that the guy then promoted. And this is the timeline. At uh, 8 a.m. on pavement, more to come. Uh, 4.30 at uh, 4.30. Uh, this is, oh, I see. It's, it's, it's backwards. All right. There, I won't read all this. Anyway, he said, planning to head out to the rescue in Black Rock Desert, PM to join the group rescue track. Tra- I think this is backwards. Okay. That's kind of weird. Uh, anyway, there's a picture of him actually being out, but it's just him. He's standing in front of his car, but uh, that's the car they couldn't they couldn't get the forerunner out. He's standing in front of it, but it's still on the scene where it happened, so it was stuck there. However... They were eventually able to release the, uh, or they were able to get to the Forerunner and pull it free. They made a new Facebook group co- called the George's Playa Rescue Facebook Group. And uh, between that and a number of people who put money into this whole thing, uh, they actually set off three rigs from the uh, Reno Tahoe Airport. And uh, they drove, uh, in in addition, driving from the Reno Tahoe Airport, they had to go 40 miles on maintained dirt road and 12 miles in uh, that uh, desert in what had a lot of hazards. And they were able to get to the rig, and they were able to get to his forerunner and get it loose, but they're still trying to uh, get it back, and that's where it currently stands. Um. I think there's another update that uh, it was actually finally recovered. I think I saw a picture of it that it was back on dry land. But uh, anyway, w- whether it's back or not, it will be shortly. So it looks like the car is recovered too. So that is the story of the Black Rock Desert and the forerunner that was stuck and the viral effort to return it. And it's, it's amazing how people will get together on social media sometimes for good. They'll actually do something nice because this guy, uh, he just asked for help and they gave it to him. Here's, here's another picture of it. Uh, I have up here. That's even, looks even worse. It's really deeply buried into the mud. The black rock desert. Well, I see a call. Is there a call coming in? There is a call. Put the call on. Call. You're on the air. 
Park Desert. Caller, hello. Hey, Todd. This is a Tyrone Chan from from Vegas. Yes, hi, Tyrone. I haven't heard from you in a while. Oh yeah, it's just it's sometimes just difficult to call in. That's all. So what's going on? Oh, what I what I wanted to talk about is the the the, the old guy that died, Johnny. Oh, Oklahoma Hale. Johnny Hale. Okay, just one second. Let me, yeah. let me let me finish this topic here. Then we'll then we'll then I'll take your comments about. It. You can just hang on here. So anyway, oh, yeah. so anyway, yeah. the the Black yeah, Rock sure. Desert. Uh, that's a place now. I kind of want to visit. Not during this time of year, of course, but uh, I kind of want to go see it during the summer. Not during Burning Man, but just kind of want to go there and just see nothing from all directions. It seems kind of cool. It is kind of out of the way, though. Especially I'm, I'm not in Reno all that often. But it, it does seem like and Druff, how much how much was the guy's GoFundMe page up to? I don't know. I didn't find the GoFundMe page. I just read about it. That's a good question, though. There was a there was a PayPal so, donation address, but I, I don't. I never looked for the GoFundMe page. I should have, but I didn't. Did you see the story of that guy that beat Duke at the buzzer from Stephen uh, from that small college, Stephen something? No. But the guy's car, the guy's family, so he beat Duke, beats Duke at the buzzer, right? Yeah. His family's house was like got torn away by Hurricane Dorian. And his family, his, his dad was like a, a reverend in the area. It was at $3,000. It's up to, it's over 150 grand now. Oh yeah, these go crazy. I mean, there was, that's what led to yeah, that whole scam that. in New Jersey with that, with that supposed bum who, Lent the money to these, uh, or gave the money to these people who were stuck at the gas station, and then they ran a fundraiser for him. They ran what a fundraiser a for him, and the whole thing was set up that the, they uh, they approached him with the idea. And if they hadn't, if they hadn't fucked that guy, they probably would have gotten away with it. Right? They they just decided they could rip him off, and he wasn't going to say anything because he committed the so crime too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then so they, the whole thing fell apart. But yeah, that's the these these GoFundMe things that that come up on social media, and everyone thinks it's a feel good thing to donate to. The truth is that there's people who are worthy of being donated money everywhere. There, there's so many people out there who need money for, for something worthy. And, and just because it's not currently uh, uh, something that's being promoted all over social media doesn't mean that that person is more worthy than, than someone who, who isn't well-known at all. And I would, I would much rather give money to someone that you just kind of personally know that really needs it. Than, than give it to someone like someone like that. They go, oh, look at this bum who, who gave me some gas at the gas at the gas station. Money for gas at the gas station. Like you don't know if that's legitimate. And why why does that person deserve money over like every other bum out there that's struggling? I mean, yeah, the guy supposedly gave his last twenty dollars, but who knows if he really did? And 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 once he once he's gotten three hundred thousand dollars, how much more does he need? <laughs> but people exactly. people just want to feel good that they're giving. It just makes them feel good. They read a story. Oh, I, I gave to this too. They don't bother to think about. Okay, maybe it's excessive at this point for what this person should get. Maybe time to go find somebody else to give to if you really want, really want to give. Anyway, uh, Tyrone, uh, what's going on? You want to talk about Oklahoma Johnny? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but let, let me finish that. I will not never give a sense to this stupid guy. Go go there in the desert. Uh, that's that's stupid. <laughs> that's stupid. <laughs> you, you wouldn't you, know? g- you wouldn't give a you wouldn't give a red cent to that guy. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think you will either. No, I, I, I wouldn't either. No, when someone gets themselves in, in these situations, it's, it's their own fault. Uh, anyway, 
I basically say that, you know, I'm old myself, but compared to, uh, you know, Johnny is that he's belonged to a class of people that uh, what we call, because we live in the age, that the information age, that it double almost every two or three years the knowledge we have, the modern learning. So most of old, not all, some of the old people are experiencing future shock. When you when you get get into a future shock, you want you you just want to cross up. You just think about how was the in the past is how good old time is. Is that you want to go to think about good old time of the old day and that uh, you refuse to change. You still live in the past. And uh, and uh, the truth is, yeah, the average American live better than the king and queen of Egypt, uh, the average American, because they, they have all the luxury, all the convenience, everything else. And, uh, and most people just want... Uh, not most, some of the old people who live in the past, they refuse to change. They say, oh, the good old day is so good, everything else. You know, actually, you know, I think that we live in the age that, uh, that uh, in, in the United States, we live in the golden age. I don't know whether you agree or not. Well, okay, uh, I, I understand what you're saying here. And... uh and it is true that uh, the older the person is, the harder they can have, the harder time they can have relating to the way things currently are in the world in many ways. And uh, um, and that's also part of what contributes to them not always integrating with current society very well or, or being stubborn about things because yeah, everything can seem kind of overwhelming and confusing to them. I, I will say that not everything over time improves. And I, I've observed many things myself over time that I feel were better in the past, and, and even times I, I even times I say if if I wonder if I would yeah how I would feel like would I be any happier if I were this age say in the 1980s rather than right now? But then I think about things I would not have if I was living in the 1980s versus right now. The uh, medical technology is worse. I wouldn't have a smartphone. The computers I would have, but they're much worse, much less powerful. There's no going on the Internet. You could call BBSs like I did back then, but it wasn't the same. Uh, getting information on anything, that's that's a huge thing you can do now with Google. So many things you can look up so easily. Uh, back then, couldn't do that. Uh, couldn't do online shopping. Can't just go on Amazon and buy things, especially obscure things. There's like these obscure things I find myself that I need, and I go, oh, good. I can just go on Amazon and buy it. You couldn't do that in those days. So there's a lot of things that uh, that I would want to do, even, even simple things like making a long-distance call. It was expensive then. You could do it, but it would be a lot of money. There are a lot of things then that uh, were a lot tougher than, than they are now. Some things are just inconvenience, some things which, are, which you just couldn't do at all. And the things that have gotten worse, I, I wouldn't think it would be a, a worthy trade to where I'd be happier living in those times. And, uh, but, but there are some things that I think, uh, were better at some points in the past. You are less stressful. You are less stressful because, uh, you, sometimes you don't know, uh, you don't know better that life is simpler. 
life is simple in the old day. Well, that's true. You don't true. have to worry about data security. Well, for example, you you get zip from Bitcoin. This is uh, 20 or 30 years, 40 years ago. That never had going to happen to yeah, you. You yeah, don't the, get stressful over that. That's true. That hundred dollars. There, there are more things that that can right. get you stressed out. And in fact, I I saw in in, in uh, 1993, I visited a a small village on the equator in uh, in Indonesia, and they were really backward. They had nothing as far as uh, forget technology. They just uh, they didn't even have refrigerators. I think there was like one refrigerator in the whole town. So mostly you, you couldn't. You, your drinks were all warm, uh, which which kind of sucks. If you you kind of Forget how much it sucks with no refrigerator until you don't have one. I bet one. you you're much more. I bet you they are much more happier. Yeah, well, so, right. So, 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 so they didn't have. There was so many things they didn't have there. They were really living uh, uh, way in the past as far as uh, any any conveniences they have. Nobody had cars there. Everything was was way 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 back in the past. Uh, they, they weren't like uh, like the stereotypical primitive savages. They they but at the same time they were. They really had very little over there, even for 1993. But yet, as you said, everybody looked happy. And I'm not saying there was no problems, but a lot of things that uh, – because they didn't see anything else. They didn't see people have more than them. They didn't see what people had that they don't have. There was a lot of they, – they didn't realize they didn't have there. So everyone just grew up being used to the way it was. And the weather was terrible there, too. It was, it was 20, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, hot and humid, uh, even at night. On the equator, as you, as, mm-hmm. as you guess. So a lot of things are very unpleasant about living there. But to them, they grew up that way. Everybody stays there for the most part and doesn't leave. And you get used to it. And it's very simple. And therefore, there's a, a lot less that frustrates you. And a lot of just simple things can make you happy. Where the, the, once you get more and more in life and more and more options over time, then w- one side effect is, yes, that you there's a lot more you can find to stress you out and, and, and can become difficult for you. So, so yeah, it's it's a balance, and uh, I, I think with Oklahoma Johnny Hale, with him, it was more. I mean, yes, a lot of this had to do with him just kind of being old and not understanding about a lot of this stuff. Uh, I think some of it also was just I think he did lose some of his uh, mental faculties over time, and I also think that he was just uh, you know he was an old guy who originally hailed from Oklahoma, kind of just one of these like I um, I trust you at your word sort of person. Good old simple life used to be right. There used to be just uh, black and white, right? Right, right. So he the thinks if, he thinks okay. Well, you're starting a tournament. Uh, the, I'm starting the Super Seniors event at, at, at Caesars. Okay, it's my tournament. What? It's not my tournament anymore. What the hell? How this happened? You ripped me off. Like he doesn't understand. I think he didn't understand fully the way all this works. That once you start this at Caesars. That it's their tournament; they can do what they want with it. So, like, they, they, that's the type of stuff he doesn't understand. And then when it happens that when something happens involving it that makes him upset, then and then he fe- he has no power to do anything about it, it. It really gets him pissed off. So that's that's what happened to him here. It appears, and but, but yeah, it's, it's not unusual at all for someone who's older, especially much older, to have difficulty adjusting to the changing world. I even see some things myself. Like I see kids posting on instagram and and uh and i don't understand instagram i i understand how to use it but i don't understand the appeal of it I, i've asked what's the point of instagram people say well to post pictures they say well i can post pictures on facebook well yeah but it's just about posting pictures they go well wait you can post pictures with no comments no you can post pictures and then there's comments they go well it sounds just like facebook to me why don't i just use facebook 
And they go, you don't understand. I go, I don't. I, I'm old. I guess I don't understand it. I, I don't understand. And I, I guess what I've come to understand is it kind of revolves around pictures rather than Facebook where pictures are just a part of it. But 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 it is something that just still doesn't appeal to me and appeals much more to, to the younger generation, the people in their teens and 20s. And, and I've seen a lot of things yeah, but, like that. Yeah, Todd, but just, just remember, you are in the forefront of te- that technology, you understand how to use all the software, everything else, and uh, and uh, you understand quite a bit of how to develop everything else, and uh, and you fall from the technology. Yet you still ha- you have uh, you still have problem understand the kid that, uh, today. For you made a good example, Instagram. Uh, I don't. I have Facebook. I don't. You Instagram. I don't understand that. <laughs> I, so, I don't. So you don't understand, understand it either. Okay. I, I'm just like you. I don't understand that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, but my home is my home. You know, everything else uh, depend on internet. Me and my wife could not never do. Uh, one day without internet. You know, I had to understand everything about the internet. Everything else, but uh, m- most Americans would not understand any of those technology. Yeah, you know, well, it's, it's very it's difficult in this age of every two year the amount of knowledge is double. It double. Just just think about it. Just think about it. Double. Yeah, How there's can anybody understand all this thing? You know, just like you put in poker. A computer paid better poker than we do. Yeah, uh, that's there, there's there's a lot that changes, yeah. and, and there's and a lot you don't understand over time, just or just can't relate to. It's more just can't relate to. Like I can understand all this from a, a technical standpoint, and, and fortunately, because I was always uh, interested in technology, even from a young age in, in the early '80s, uh, the that I've been able to keep up with, and even as as I think as I get very old, I'll still be able to. But I. I, I do see things I just can't relate to from from younger people of things they do, uh, of things that even they, they do online. A lot of it, a lot of the, the type of language they use, a lot of it, it just it, it seems foreign to me. And and I I wondered back in the eighties. I remember when I was a teenager in the eighties. I thought it's so hard for me to picture that I'll be the old guy one day who doesn't understand the teenagers. And and now I am. Now now I really am. But it's the funny thing is that it actually happened. <laughs> and, and and now yeah. I see now I see how it happened. <laughs> but, uh, you see. I have a master's degree in computer science and a master's degree in mathematics. I just totally relate to you because uh, I have problems to keep up all the stuff today. I just go beyond me, you know, because uh, because of the because of the, uh, because of the lots of even usage of of of, of iPhone or those. Uh, uh, for example, you you think sky and you know, all those all those things. It's very difficult knowledge. You have to learn everything. You, you sometimes you you take a PhD user of all those technology. Yeah, you know. So <laughs> I'm just complaining about uh, complaining about. It. But that that's why I don't blame most people. Say the good old age. Good old America in the past is much better because their minds shut down. They went through a future shock. 
Yeah, that that does happen. And it it does happen and they just uh they don't understand a lot of what they're seeing, they can't relate to it and they just kind of they just kind of stick to what they're used to as much as they can and and that that's that's what can happen. So it's uh and it's it's also going to be tough because when when you get to be old yourself, then the people who were little kids when you were like middle-aged are now the ones mm-hmm. who are middle, they're middle-aged themselves and they're they're controlling a lot of the world at this point they're controlling a lot of the businesses and then now they're talking to you and and you got you're listening to them and they're talking down to you and they're saying no you don't understand you're feeling like what's this kid telling me here even if they're, they're like 45 you can look down at them and go you know <laughs> but i remember you know 30 years ago you were 15 even if i didn't know you then you were you were a little 15 year old then that's all i see you now even though you're 45 year old like it's, it can be hard to have someone of that age talking to you that way uh, even even if they are into middle age, just because you know how much older you are than they are, and, and it just it just feels strange, and that can be hard for them too. It can be hard for them to have. It's, it can be hard for uh, people who are very old to have their kids telling them what they should do or what they can't do anymore because they're too old. Because they remember when they were, it was the reverse, and they were in charge of their kids, and now it can feel like their their kids are, are bossing them around. So that's why I, that's why I. Love to listen to you. You're very knowledgeable about it, quite a bit everything. What you don't know, sometimes you find it interesting. You do research. You talk about on the show. That's why I, you, I, I never miss your show. Well, thank you. you uh, I never, uh, never miss your show. I always, uh, most of the time, I talk uh, on the podcast. But thank you, thank you for having this show. Yeah, well, thank you. Okay. For call- thank you for calling in, Tyro. <laughs> It's been a while since we heard Bye. from you. So thank you. Bye. You know, I hadn't. I, I had actually thought of Tyrone a few days ago, and I thought to myself, "What happened to him?" We. I, I, was, I was hoping Tyrone uh, hadn't gone away, but I thought he he seemed to like the show enough. I could just see him stop listening, but I was wondering if if we'd hear from him again. So I'm glad we did. Okay, so moving on to a topic back to gambling. The Venetian is at it again with doing something that's player-unfriendly. I know it's been a, a frequent topic here on this show. The Venetian has installed, or at least in the process of installing, or has installed, a triple-zero roulette machine. Now, this is not the same segment as we did a while ago about Venetian bringing in triple-zero roulette tables, which they did. Triple zero roulette, for those of you that don't know roulette well, I'm going to give you a quick background on roulette. It's a very, very bad odds version of roulette. In roulette, the number of zeros on the wheel are what determines how bad your odds are. Now, if a wheel existed with no zeros, which they don't, but if they did, if there was just 1 through 36 on, on there with no zeros, then the game would actually be even expectation. The house would have no edge on any bet because you would be paid the exact amount of what your odds were of hitting that number or that color. So, for example, if you bet on red, your chance of hitting red would be even, and you'd be paid even money. So in the long run, you would break exactly even. Now, the way the house has an edge is by putting a zero on there. And when they add the zero, that adds one more spot that can hit, but they don't change the odds on anything you do hit, which means if the zero hits, every bet but zero doesn't pay. And you lose. And that's where they make the money. But if they add a second zero, 
which is known as a double zero. So there's a zero and a double zero, and that's very common now. That's what you find on most wheels these days in Vegas. Now the house edge has doubled because they've added two spots like that. Again, without increasing the odds for the what you get paid out for the other spots. So first roulette started out with a single zero. Then they added a double zero. And double zero became pretty standard. And occasionally a casino will advertise they have single zero roulette in order to try to get people in there. But what we hadn't seen for a long time until the Venetian tried it was a triple zero roulette. Triple zero roulette has a exactly as it sounds, triple zero on the wheel as well. So the wheel has numbers 1 through 36, then a sing, a, a zero, a double zero, and a triple zero. So there's 39 spots instead of 36. Well, <laughs> that gets really bad. The odds on roulette on a triple zero are three times as bad as the odds as a single zero, and 50% worse than if there's a double zero. So that is very, very bad. But what has been realized over time is that people don't realize this. People just go play roulette because it seems fun. It seems easy. There's no strategy to it. There really is no roulette strategy. No matter what you think you're doing, it's uh, at, at the same wheel, everybody has the same odds to win. Some people have more variance than others, depending on what they put down, but uh, everybody has the same odds to win. It's the same expected value of uh, the edge is uh, like a 2 point uh, something percent, around 2.7 percent. The the odds, the edge of a double zero is uh, almost double. 5.26% 5.26% for the house edge, and the the odd the edge for the triple zero is 7.69%. So it's not exactly triple, but it's close. Triple would be uh, 8.1%, so this is 7.69. So they're really killing the, uh, the players' odds there, which already are, of course, in the house's favor every time they add a zero. So with double zero being common and standard... The Venetian tried a triple zero on a table thinking, hey, you know, players just don't know. This isn't like the old days in Vegas where it was mainly gamblers visiting. Now it's just recreational people who are just coming into Vegas for fun, coming in for entertainment, coming in for a family vacation, whatever. They go down, they want to take a shot at roulette. They'll put money on red or black. They'll put money on a number. They'll put money on a few numbers. They're not looking at how many zeros. They just care if they get lucky. They, they don't want a table with good odds. They want a table that's lucky for them. And that's all they care about. And that's true of most gamblers these days, unfortunately. So whereas a triple zero roulette wheel would have been laughed out of Vegas even, say, 25 years ago, today they theorized it would do fine, and lo and behold, it did. In fact, it was observed by somebody at the Venetian that the triple zero game was mobbed and the double zero game was empty. Not because the triple zero game was preferred, but just because it was so not looked at by people in the Venetian that they just happened to all be at the one that had the triple zero and no one knew the difference. No one knew you just take a few steps over, you have much better odds at the double zero. No one knew. They all played the triple zero just because that's where everyone was. So the Venetian realized, hey, we also have video roulette 
Why should we have double zero there when we can have triple zero on video roulette too? Now, we don't need triple zero. I mean, the video roulette, it's much cheaper to run. We don't have to pay a dealer. It doesn't take up much floor space. It's it's a much easier and cheaper thing to run. But we could put triple zero, and I bet we get away with it. Well, they did. Someone on Twitter posted a picture of the triple zero video roulette in the process of being installed. I don't know if it's completed now, but it was in the process of being installed. It was pretty obnoxious. <laughs> so that shows you the direction Vegas is going. Vegas is going. This is from Herbie XX, who's a radio listener at Herbie XX on Twitter. Currently installing Triple Zero Video Roulette Venetian. I guess Sheldon is trying to squeeze every last penny from the sucker tourist before keeling over. But a five percent edge isn't really good enough when you when you already when you're not paying a single bloody dealer. And he has a picture of it. It's it's a game called Roulette Dynasty. Dynasty Roulette. It said waiting for configuration in this picture, so I wasn't ready, but probably is now. This tweet was posted on December 19th. This is just showing you. I mean, this isn't any worse than the triple zero live table, but it's a little more obnoxious because, as he said, they're not paying a, a single roulette dealer, so the overhead's less. They, the least they could do is keep it double. But they, the, the truth is the casinos have realized that they're not looking for the gambler who knows what they're doing anymore. They're just looking for the clueless gambler who's pretty much a sure thing to beat. And if that's the majority of gamblers there, they don't worry about driving away the small percentage of gamblers who still know what they're doing. It sucks. But that's business, and they analyze things, and they, they figure it out. All righty, so moving on, I want to give some tips on New Year's Eve in Las Vegas. First tip is don't play triple zero roulette. That's tip number one. But there's a little bit more than that. I moved to Vegas at the end of 2004, and I was there for the 2005 New Year's. And I've been there for many New Year's since. And Vegas has become a popular destination in the western U.S. for New Year's. Some have said it's similar to Times Square in New York, except in the west. Well, it's not quite that. It's not quite Times Square. It's uh, much less of a big deal. There is a nice fireworks display. There is a large crowd of people on the streets. And they do, they do shut the streets down at about 6 p.m. on December 31st. But that's about where the similarities end. I, I guess they're both big destinations for people on New Year's, but Times Square is still much of a bigger deal. I've kind of always wanted to go to Times Square for New Year's, but I've also kind of like felt it would be a disaster. Like, super expensive and super crowded and super cold and... I don't know. I just feel like if I were to do it right, it would be really expensive. And if I were to do it not expensive, it, it wouldn't be doing it right. So I just haven't done it. Even though I, I, when I was five years old, I said I was going to do it. I saw it on TV when I was five years old in 1977. And I, I said to my mom, I'm going to go there when I'm an adult. And I have not. I've gone to New York, but I have not gone during New Year's. Anyway, let's get back to Vegas New Year's. I'm going to give you some tips on how to be happier... In Vegas on New Year's, how to get it cheaper, how not to get ripped off, and how to do the actual moment correctly, if you can. First of all, be aware Vegas can easily be cold on New Year's. Last year's 
New Year, the January 1st, 2019, was especially cold. It was below freezing and windy. So it felt really cold out there. But even during a typical year, it can easily be in the 30s and windy as the New Year hits. Some people think, oh, Vegas is so hot during the summer, they picture it's going to be like going to Miami in December. It's not. It's uh, Vegas actually gets cool in the winter. It's not cold like New York. It's not cold like Chicago, for sure. But there are some years where Vegas's New Year's is actually colder than New York's New Year's, if it's a little warmer than usual in New York and cooler in, than usual in Vegas. It's not that unusual to happen. So be aware that it's very likely... On a given year, I haven't looked at the weather this year, but it's very likely on a given year that it will be in the 30s with some wind in Vegas if you're outside for New Year's. So dress warm. Pretend like you're going to New York. Dress like you're going to to Times Square, and you'll be happy. It's very unlikely to be warm. It's very unlikely you're going to dress in warm clothes and go, oh, I want to take this off. I'm so warm. It's not going to be like that. It, It would have to be a very unusual night to be that warm on December 31st in Vegas. That's actually historically one of the coldest days in Vegas. If you take an average of all the days of the year, that's one of the coldest days in Vegas, just by the calendar anyway. Number two. Let's uh, talk a bit about prices for the moment. As you might guess, the prices are jacked way up for New Year's, especially the 30th and 31st. Once you get to the night of the first, then everybody's leaving, so the prices are way down. And and also the nights before that tend to be cheaper, especially if you get more than a few days before that. But definitely the 30th and the 31st are very expensive. They usually won't even let you check in on the 31st. Most hotels will make you check in on the 30th and stay for a minimum of two nights. Now, there's no way around it being expensive but there's some ways that you can bring the price down somewhat. And you also have to look for value. That's very important. Everywhere in town is going to jack up its prices, from the crappiest motels all the way up to the nicest hotels. So not only should you find something that's within your budget, but you need to find something that makes sense. So if a decent hotel is $300 on the 30th and 31st, and a total crap motel is $200 on the 30th and 31st, don't get the crap motel unless you absolutely can't afford more than the $200 a night. Trust me, you do not want to slum it in a crappy motel. It's not just the motel itself that will be lousy to be at, but it'll be the people you're with there. When I say with, I mean the other people in the room that will be making... The other rooms, they'll be making noise, and you may have... uh, a bad element there, just doing drugs in the room, or who knows what they're... You just... You don't want it. You don't want to feel like you're in a crack house. So... And you may say, oh, for $200 a night, I bet people won't be there like that. No, you will, because you'll be getting the people who can't afford anything else in town. So you don't want to be with the people who can't afford anything else in town. And that's not to put down people who don't have much money. I'm just saying that uh, typically you're going to have the most problems in the hotels, or the motels, shall I say, where people are, they couldn't afford anything else in town. That's just a fact. So try to look for value, not what's the very, very cheapest in town. Number two, do not, do not, do not make one of these reservations which you get some kind of discount up front where you can't cancel it. Don't do that. And try to avoid using any kind of third-party service to make the 
reservation, like orbits or anything else. You want something that's easy to cancel or modify that you make directly through the property. And the reason for this, and, and again, you don't want one that you can't cancel. The reason for this is that the price will sometimes drop because what happens is the hotels aren't stupid. They know that New Year's is going to be a very popular time. And they try to set a rate for New Year's that they think people are going to pay. And they know some people are going to book way in advance. They know people will book in April and March. and They know they'll get people like that. So they, they don't want to give these people a, a massive bark. And they want to give people but – they, but they don't want to jack the price up too high to drive them away. They want to put something they think will still bring in people to book at that point. But they're not trying to give them a bargain. Uh, in, you would think – Oh, if I book 10 months early, I'm going to get a, a supreme bargain because it won't be close to the time that they're uh, selling out. So I'll be able to get a good price. Well, the, the hotels aren't that stupid. They know it's going to sell out on New Year's. So they're not going to give you a good price. So what you need to do is you need to book with a reservation you can cancel with no penalty and then keep checking throughout the year. And I know today's December 28th now. We just passed midnight. But that doesn't mean you can't keep checking, even if you booked it yesterday. Uh, usually you have like a 48-hour window to cancel. So we're not there yet. We're almost there, but we're not there. So so go look at the price. If you've booked something, go go right now. Go on the website right now. Open up an incognito version of your browser so it doesn't recognize you. That's important, too, because sometimes it will recognize you and give you a different price. Open up an incognito version of your browser, incognito mode, private mode, whatever you want to do, and then... Go look at the price, and if the price is lower than what you're booked for, for the time you're booked overall, it may have gone up on some days and down on some other days, but for your entire trip, if you could book it less today than you could than you did originally, call up and have them change it. They will re-rate it for you. At the very worst, they'll cancel it and rebook for you. Definitely do that. That's This applies to all types of of travel to all types of places. This isn't just for Vegas and New Year's, but especially Vegas and New Year's because the price is so variable. And the reason the price is so variable is because they don't know on a given year how popular it's going to be. So if people are all over going to Vegas that year and it demands higher than expected, the price is going to trend more expensive. And then you just sit on the reservation you already have and you're safe from that. But sometimes demand is not what they think it was. And then they drop the price, especially as it gets closer to New Year's and they're not selling out. The last thing they want is have empty rooms on a very high-profile night like, like New Year's. So you want to check, especially the last few nights, like right now, that they haven't dropped the price. And if they have, call to get it re-rated. And they will do it. And if they don't, then just cancel and rebook. But you can almost always talk them into re-rating it. At no matter which hotel you're staying at. So that's important to do. Another Jew tip to save money in Vegas on New Year's. Do not, do not, do not go to a restaurant that serves you a set menu. What I mean by set menu is one where you pay a flat amount of money and they give you a menu that they have set up in advance. Or you can't uh, say, oh, I want to order this, this, and this, where they just give you a, a fixed menu. Now, they promote these fixed menus as something special. Oh, this is our special New Year's Eve dinner. Uh, our five-course New Year's Eve dinner or tasting menu or whatever they want to call it. The truth is you're getting ripped off. What you're really doing in most of these cases is you're getting the same food for about double the price. And you don't have any choice. 
and it's being made in such mass quantities that there's probably not much attention paid to it. You you you, you don't have as much ability to customize anything. Um, there's a lot of reasons not to do this. You don't want something that's cooked in mass for everybody, just quality-wise. But but even price-wise, you're not getting good value. You're getting terrible value. Usually they're, they're charging you double what the same meal would cost on any other day. And you may say, well, it's December 31st. I'm paying more for the hotel. Of course I have to pay more for the food. No, you don't. That's not how restaurants work. Restaurants do not upcharge, should not upcharge for busier days. They don't. They shouldn't. Some do on New Year's. In Vegas, a lot do on New Year's. But ones can be found that serve their regular menu on New Year's. And you need to look for that. Because you'll be getting a terrible deal. It probably won't be that good. And you can't customize anything. You can't say, oh, I don't like this dish. Or I don't care for this that much. I'd rather have this. Nope. Can't do it. It's fixed. And usually these are like 150 bucks a person. And it really adds up fast. Especially you add tax and tip. And if you order drinks on top of it, can you imagine how expensive it gets? There's, there's no reason for it. It's one thing to go to a nice dinner and, and pay a premium for a nice place, but at least you're paying the normal prices. Here you're paying greatly inflated prices to get a mass-produced meal. You don't want it. So say no to any restaurant that forces you to have a fixed meal. Now, you may say, well, in Vegas, I keep finding so many of them have that. Well, call around. You'll find some that don't. Or... Um, you, you can always drive off strip. Now, it is true, keep in mind, they do close parts of the strip from 6 p.m. to 12 a.m. So if you don't want to eat before 6, or be done eating before 6, which I understand, you probably do have to walk somewhere or stay within your hotel. But you can still probably find a decent meal that you can get to that does not have a fixed menu. One place that I was going, I'm not going to be there this year because I'm not going to be in Vegas this year for New Year's but uh, one thing you can that, that I've gone to in the past was Nobu. Nobu and Caesars Palace while expensive is charging their normal prices. I think they also have a fixed menu but you don't have to have it. You can have their normal food. You could have any other day of the, of the year for the exact same price. So that's why I would go there. But I, I from what I recall the steakhouse in uh, Planet Hollywood, I don't know if they've changed it. It's been years since I've been there but they didn't have a fixed menu on New Year's there's a, if you call around, you will find at various properties on the strip that you can walk to that they don't always have a fixed menu. And you should really avoid that if you can. Do not delude yourself into believing that the fixed menu is uh, going to be better. It's expensive, but it'll be great. No, it won't be. You're going to be very disappointed with the food you get. You're going to be paying double. You don't have to. Don't do it. Next. The... New Year's Eve parties they have in Vegas that always have an entry fee, unless you're getting comp them in some way. Beware of those. Now, if you know what they are and enjoy them and want to pay for them, that's fine. But a lot of hotels have some New Year's party package where you you pay, uh, again, something pretty expensive and they serve you dinner and they give you champagne and they give you, like, a a hat and a blower to blow at New Year's. And uh, so you stay there through the New Year's and there's a band that plays. and You can do it, but it, to me it's kind of like a poor man's wedding. That's kind of the atmosphere it has there. To me it's not very exciting to be with a whole bunch of strangers at, at a casino in a, in a party that you're paying a lot of money for. 
And and also you're not seeing the fireworks. You're you're stuck indoors. So just keep in mind what you're getting when you go for one of these New Year's parties. I I've always found it better to just be with who you came with, whether it's friends or family, and and go to a good place to watch the fireworks, and and you know go to dinner with them, and uh, maybe bring something back to to eat in the room, like some kind of dessert to eat in the room or bring drinks to the room, whatever. And uh, that that's a much better way to do it than paying for, quote, a New Year's party. Now I want to talk about the fireworks in Vegas and where to see them. The streets in Vegas, or specifically the Las Vegas Strip, it's a zoo. There's a ton of people wall to wall. And it's going to be a pain in the ass getting out of there once the fireworks are over, because everyone's trying to leave at the same time, and it can take half an hour or more to even start moving. It can be cold out there. And also, people can cram together really tightly where it can start to feel claustrophobic, even if you don't have claustrophobia. I found a better way to view the fireworks, but this is not an option for everybody. If you have a room that faces the fireworks, or you can ask the hotel to give you one, which, if you're a diamond or seven stars, by the way, at a Caesars property or something equivalent at another property, you can usually talk them into giving you a room with a view of the fireworks. And the fireworks shoot off from, like, four or five different locations on the Strip. So you don't have to just face one particular direction. You just have to face one of the fireworks and and see it well. So provided you face the fireworks and have a good view of them, and just ask the hotel to be honest. Do I really have a good view from here? And you need to, like, it, it, well, I just see it off of the side. We'll have a really direct view. You need, you need to ask them to be honest with you. Not just, give me a fireworks view room, please, because they'll give you some crap in the corner that can technically see it, but not a good view of it. But if you have a good straight-on view of the fireworks, then you will really enjoy the experience without having to be out there with the mob. And I can't tell you how much better that is. And I've done it both ways. I have done it both ways. And and I so much more prefer being in the room, warm, and just enjoying the fireworks with the people I came with. And you can still, it's very loud, you can still hear the popping of the fireworks and everything. And as long as you have a good view of them, in fact, you can sometimes see them better from being elevated in a hotel than you would be on the ground. And then when it's over, you don't have to fight a crowd of people to get back to your hotel. So it's much better to do it that way if you can. Now, if you can't, if you can't get one of those type of rooms for whatever reason, let's say you don't have the status of that hotel or it's just too expensive, they're all sold out, you can't get one, whatever, then you have to find a place to view it. At that point, you have to be creative. Uh, Are there any parking garages you might be able to go to the top of to view? That, that might be facing that direction. People don't think of parking garages, but most parking garages in Vegas have a roof. You go to the top of the garage and face where the fireworks are, you can see it. You may say, where is the fireworks? Well, if you look down the strip, then you're probably facing the fireworks. As long as you can just look down the strip. That's all you need to do. If, 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 parking lot, if you can stand on top of the parking lot facing that way, then you'll have a pretty good view of the fireworks. And you may think, well, there's probably a ton of people up there. No, there isn't. Believe it or not, most people don't think of this. I know this because I did it last year. I went on top of a parking lot last year to view the fireworks. The first year I had to actually do it outside in a long time. And 
it was very cold because the night was very cold and windy. I wished I was inside, but as far as uh, where I was, I was happy to be there as opposed to outside of the crowds. So yes, you can go on top of a parking structure. Look for where, wherever you are. Look, look for the parking structures that seem to face the strip, and go to the top of one. There will be a few other people who have your idea, but not many. It's one of these things that you would picture a lot of people doing, but they don't. Or find anywhere else that isn't obvious, that isn't super obvious to go, that's elevated away from the crowd and go there. I don't have anything on the top of my head right now but other uh, than the parking structure, but anything like that. To, try to avoid just being down there with the crowd. It, it can be very unpleasant. And especially with, if everyone really crowds around you and you can barely move and you can't get out and you've got the feeling like you might get trampled if anything happens there, like... Uh, uh, there's a lot of reasons not to want to be there. It's just much more pleasant to be in a either indoors or like on top of a parking structure where it's wide open and you're not fighting crowds. Next, I want to talk about things you can do besides traditional Vegas stuff. If you like the snow, you can drive to Mount Charleston provided the roads are open. And see that, especially if you have... Now, you'll, you'll want to have like snow gear with you, and you may not. But uh, if you don't have snow gear, then you can still go up and see the snow, but it's not quite as fun. But if you do, you can go up there. You can even you can even stop by like a Big Five or something in Vegas and buy a toboggan for 20 bucks, and you can take the kids there. A lot of people don't think of that in Vegas. They, they don't think of snow and things you can do there. There's even skiing there at Mount Charleston. Uh, that's, that's definitely something you can do. Um... As far as uh, other things in Vegas, you know, Vegas has so many different other types of uh, activities associated with these uh, casinos. Just keep in mind a lot of them are going to be crowded. Keep in mind anything you try to do or see is going to be crowded. Shows, restaurants, uh, whatever. Everything's going to be crowded. So you may want to keep that in mind for when you are in Vegas. Uh, there are some little hikes in the area you can look up. You can take those. If, as long as the weather's nice, that can be good. It's, at least it's not hot. It won't be hot for sure. Uh, traffic. If you're driving back to L.A., the traffic going back to L.A. is, is kind of misleading because you won't encounter it as soon as you leave. You'll encounter it about 40 miles in at the state line, and at that point you kind of feel like uh, you're stuck. You don't want to go all the way back to Vegas. So what you want to do is you want to look on your smartphone at the traffic and just not leave if the traffic's bad. Most people are going to leave on January 1st. So you may want to think about leaving January 2nd, especially because January 1st, uh, the hotel is going to be pretty cheap. So you may want to just stay another night. Uh, if you are going to leave January 1st, then look carefully at the traffic before you go. Don't just go and hope for the best. I've heard horror stories of like seven and a half hour drives to L.A. of people who just kind of shrugged their shoulders and drove off. So be careful about that. As far as lines go, remember to always use your status cards like a Diamond or whatever else you may have at whatever casino you're at to skip lines. Don't be shy about that. There are going to be very, very bad lines all over Vegas. You can use those also to get yourself into hotels, or not hotels, into to restaurants that are associated with casino hotels where you have that status. So even if they say they're full, you can say, well, can you get me in? I'm a Diamond. Can you get me in? I'm a Seven Star. And sometimes they will be able to squeeze you in. Don't be shy to ask about that. And uh, just also try to go things that uh, at off hours. Don't don't check out exactly at the checkout time. 
Either check out before or after. After is even better. Let me give you a tip. Most hotels do not enforce their checkout time very hard, especially large hotels. So you can check out an hour after the scheduled checkout time and no one says anything. I do it all the time, so don't think I'm just guessing at this. I so often check out an hour or more after I'm supposed to. I've never been charged once. The worst that ever happens is they they start calling or knocking on the door or asking when you're going to leave and uh, you say, oh, I'm packing up, I'll leave soon. And then if they're pressuring you, you leave faster than if they're not pressuring you. But uh, they, they typically don't care. Why? Because the only reason for the checkout time being when it is is just so they have enough time to clean all the rooms. And since most people dutifully go down and check out at checkout time or before, enough rooms are empty to where they can start cleaning those and not worried about the few who are checking out later. Also keep in mind you will have a later checkout if you have a Diamond or Seven Stars card at Caesars property, so definitely take advantage of that. Ask them when their late checkout is. It varies from property to property. But make sure you take full advantage of that. And then you can stay some extra time beyond that. And as I said, they, they will never charge you. At worst, they'll just put pressure on you to try to leave. If you find anything that was wrong with the room or something that was an inconvenience, you can ask for an extra late checkout or you can even that use that as an excuse. I've had it where uh, uh, the neighbors were noisy and I had complained a few times. I check out two hours late the next day and tell them I did that because I had a hard time sleeping. I had to sleep extra. They'll, they'll never charge you for that. Never. So keep that in mind, not just to say an extra hour, but because uh, this will avoid some of the crowds of checking out, especially if you don't have one of the uh, higher status cards to go in the special room for higher status members to check out. Otherwise, it's going to be a tremendous checkout line. I know you can also check out through the, uh, the TV and just leave the key card in a box and that, and that's fine you can do that but just make sure the charges are all correct there's a lot of erroneous charges at hotels make sure they're all right before you do that uh, and also keep in mind there's not a lot of people coming in on january 1st so they're not really chomping at the bit to get these rooms cleaned as they would be on a more high profile day like december 30th wouldn't be a good day to try to stretch the checkout as much as you can because they need to there's a lot of people coming in on the 30th but on January 1st, there are not. So those are some tips for Las Vegas on New Year's. And the fireworks are very nice. I recommend seeing them. And uh, I'm not there this year. I'm just kind of sick of Vegas and New Year's. I've, I've been there so many times. Just uh, not going this year. And I don't have the guaranteed comp rooms at Caesars anymore. I used to get a great room. It wasn't a suite, but I got a great room as far as the view in the Augustus Tower and I'd get it on one of the upper floors and I'd be facing right down the strip and it was an incredible view of both the Bellagio fountains and the fireworks and it it was so nice I'd take pictures of it and people would be jealous and I I could get this every year just by virtue of being a 7 stars now this wasn't an automatic 7 stars benefit but I, I could always talk them into it and every year I got that room and then some years I could get a second room for my parents. And their view didn't matter as much, but then I did come in my room. And uh, so we, we did that like a lot of different years, but finally uh, this year it's not happening. Last year I didn't have it either. That's why I had to go on top of a parking structure. Things change. I'm not broke like Olivier Bosquet, though. I just uh, wasn't getting the comps I used to get. All right, we're going to do a little exercise here. 
Trader Risky, you still here? No, I don't. Do, I don't think I see him. Who, who's on with me then? I'm like on Skype, but I don't. It's showing just like just me. Am I, am I really just on Skype with myself? Is that what's going on here? I don't see Trader Risky. Oh yeah, he left. He messaged me and said, "I have to sign off, Druff. Talk to you next week." So, I, this shows you how terrible Skype is. I was really on a Skype call with myself. I didn't know that was possible for the last 21 minutes. You, you can probably hear a different sound. Like there, now, there's much less of a background sound than there was when Trader Risky was here. You probably heard like a faintly in the background before. Now it probably sounds like no background sound at all. It's because uh, I was on a Skype call with myself. Something again, I never thought possible until uh, the wonders of Skype by Microsoft. They just never cease. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to play you guys a sound. And I want to know if you can hear it. Here's the history with the sound, which is, to be honest, 30, not 30, 13 years old. The reason I said 30 is it has to do with 30-year-olds. It was found in uh, 2006 that a sound could be created that people could only hear if they were younger. And... Older people either couldn't hear it or couldn't hear it very well. And this was actually commercialized, would you believe? This was commercialized into a device called the Mosquito, which was sold to play in places that they want to drive away teenagers, because this sound was audible to kids, animals, babies, teenagers, and young adults, but people over 30 couldn't hear much of it, or any of it at all. And it was said to be bothersome to teenagers and not bothersome to kids and babies. I don't know why, but that's what they claim. And that uh, to teens, it would be the way it would be audible. It would be most bothersome to them. So they, pl- if you blasted this, it wouldn't bother anybody else except for the teenagers, and they'd leave if they're loitering. So this was called the mosquito, and it was sold in the mid two thousands. I don't know how well it did, but that's that's the background on it. Now, this I got a copy of the sound of the mosquito. And I'll tell you why I became interested in this now, 13 years later. Benjamin heard something that uh, nobody else in the house could hear. And it was something that was high-pitched. And it made me think about the fact that, oh, yeah, I had heard something about how high-pitched sounds are heard best by people who are very young. And that as you get older, your ability to hear very high-pitched sounds disappears. That's basically your high-pitched hearing is the first thing to go. Of course, you know that very, very old people often lose their hearing and need hearing aids, but you don't think of people who are middle-aged typically as having hearing problems. But you do have a hearing problem. You just don't realize it because you can hear very, very high-pitched tones if you're over 30, and you just don't know because most sounds that you want to hear are not high-pitched like that, so you're not missing out on anything. But what I'm going to do to you, I'm going to do for you, I should say to you also, depending on your age, I'm going to play this sound, and I'm going to play it at different volumes, because I tried this this experiment with a mosquito myself. I don't have the device, but I have the sound. So I played it on my computer, and I brought my nine-year-old son, Benjamin, in the room with me, and I said, we're going to do an experiment. So I played it on its loudest setting, and I could hear it. It wasn't super loud to me. It was kind of soft and faint, but I could hear kind of a high-pitched squeal. And I said, can you hear that? He said, yes. I said, I can hear it too. Is it loud or soft to you? He said, it's pretty loud. I said, well, to me, it's kind of soft. 
Then I lowered it somewhat further, and I could hear kind of a softer medium tone. It went from to ooh, kind of like that. And again, it was it was pretty soft as far as the volume to me. I asked Benjamin. He still heard a high-pitched sound, not that medium tone I was hearing. And to him, the volume wasn't quite as loud, but it was still fairly loud to him. I lowered it further, and I couldn't hear anything. I said, Benjamin, can you hear it? He said, yes. I said, what is it? It's still the high-pitched sound. Is it as loud? No, but I can still hear it. It's, it's not all that soft yet. And as I kept lowering the volume more and more, he could hear it and hear it hear it. Even at very low volumes, he could hear it. To me, nothing. I brought Benjamin's mom to try this, and she had pretty much the exact same listening experience as I did. She's very close to my age. So that makes sense. I posted this on Poker Fraud Alert, and a few people responded. Mr. Tickle, who's a listener to this show, who's 25 years old, said he could hear it clearly at all volumes, so his hearing has not deteriorated yet. BCR, who's a few years older than me, said he can hear it... uh, from about 50% volume and up, but it's never loud. That was pretty much my experience, too. I'm going to play it to you guys. Uh, you can bring your kids in for this one. Nothing inappropriate is going to be said during this segment. I can't promise anything about the last segment, but uh, last meaning the one following this, which will be our final segment of the night. But this one, I'm just going to play this sound, and you can see what your kids can hear. I bet they can hear a lot better, and they'll hear a different thing than you hear. I'm going to play at different volumes here. And I'll tell you also what I hear as I play it. So this is kind of like medium volume. I'm hearing a very soft tone. It kind of sounds like, sounds like, it kind of sounds like a few soft tones at once of kind of like a, a medium pitch, medium high pitch. I'll do it again. Okay, now now I'm going to raise the volume. One second here. I just raised the volume somewhat. This should make you be able to hear it better. You should be able to hear some of the louder, the higher pitch tones better now. I can hear both the higher and medium pitch tones here if I raise it further. See, if I raise it even further, I can hear more of the high pitch squeal. Make it really loud here. Yeah. So it's kind of a combination of medium and high pitch when I play over the radio. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to lower the volume. This is kind of a low to medium volume with my computer. Vo- my computer volume is at about half, and the player volume is at about uh, a quarter. So it's very faint, and all I can. I can't hear the high pitch anymore, and it's very faint. I can hear kind of the medium pitch. Now I'm going to lower it even further. Now I don't think I can hear anything. I can't hear anything. Maybe super, super faint, but I mean, for the most part, I can't hear anything. Um, let's see if I lower it even further with a computer volume. Yeah, I definitely can't hear anything now. 
I mean, maybe it's hard to know if I'm just imagining I'm hearing it or if I am hearing. Maybe I'm hearing it super faint, but I, to, to me, I'm just really hearing nothing. To be honest, it just kind of like when it stopped, I didn't even notice the difference. And we'll make it a little louder again. Now I can hear a little bit. And I'll make it louder again. So see what you can hear. See what your kids can hear. If you want to play with it, you can also go to the Flying Stupidity thread called Can You Hear This Tone? What if you turn it up or down the volume? It's on Poker Throttler on the Flying Stupidity forum. You can check this out. And see for yourself by playing with your computer volume and the volume of whatever you're using to play it. And have your kids in the room and see what they'll come up with. You'll, you'll see that your kids can hear this much better than you. It's very interesting to me. Because I don't think of myself as hard of hearing. I don't think of myself having hearing issues. Yet what Benjamin hears when I play this is very different than what I hear. I wish there were more people in the chat. I should have done this at the beginning of the show. The chat room's like abandoned. I should have done it at the beginning of the show. Then we could have had some comments from those in the chat. But there's not many remaining. In fact, both people remaining in the chat room besides me are a good deal older than me. So I bet they really can't hear it. All right. We go to our last topic. And then we will shut down. This is a topic of just general interest. I guess it can have a little bit of association with poker or gambling, because if you're losing you may need to take one of these, but I wouldn't recommend it for gambling purposes and that is a payday loan. Are payday loans something that is good to have in society or bad? I don't mean the fact that you have to take one and I, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not asking is it good financial practice to take a payday loan? The answer anyone sensible would give you would be a big no. But that's not what I'm saying here. I'm asking about payday loans themselves. Should they exist or should they not? Now, Andrew Yang, Democratic presidential candidate, wrote this on December 26th. I will do everything in my power to end predatory lending practices by payday lenders. Gouging Americans who are up against a financial wall with extortionate rates is not a legit way to build a business. Well, Andrew Barber, who I mentioned earlier who is on the left, but a little bit sometimes on the libertarian left, but kind of more uh, just left. He wrote, I used to be opposed to payday lending until I studied it. And then from there broke out a debate between me, him, and some other people about whether or not payday loans are things that should exist in this country. And again, we're not debating whether it's smart to take a payday loan, we're discussing whether it should be available to be done in the manner that they are offered today. Now, to give a bit of background, payday loans are one of the few forms of loans that are legally allowed in the U.S. at usurious interest rates, to where people pay insane rates for payday loans. And the rates that are charged vary by state. Each state has its own regulations, and the basically whoever, which whichever state is uh, 
whatever the maximum allowed is typically what is charged by the payday lenders in each state. Uh, the loans, the payday loans can range from an interest rate of like 17%, which of course is reasonable for a short-term loan, up to something like 400%. So as you can imagine, actually it can be more than 400%. It can be uh, 459% in California, for example. I, those, those are the ones that I saw. And as you can imagine, interest accumulates on these loans very fast. For example, at this 459% rate in California, $17.65 of interest would rack up in just two weeks on a $100 loan. That's a lot of interest in a short time. Different states have different regulations on this. In fact, in a few states, it's actually not even legal. But in most of the U.S., it is. And uh, there are some that uh, that and so of these uh, of all the states, there's 31 out of the 50 states: Alabama, Alaska, California, Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, Nevada, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Tennessee. Texas, Utah, Virginia, Washington, Wisconsin, Wyoming, all these states allow high-cost payday lending, like I just described in California. Then there's uh, Maine and Oregon and New Mexico, which allow uh, lower-cost payday lending, but still uh, fairly high. And then uh, the rest of the states have a more reasonable interest rate ranging from 17% to 75%. But there's not that many states. Of course, the 31 to the 50 allow the very high rates. Well, who takes these loans? Who would take a loan for uh, 459% interest? Well, people who are very desperate, poor people, people who need the money to pay rent, people who need the money for food, people who need the money for something else urgent. Maybe they have... uh, They have to get dental work done or something else that they need right now. They need the money right now and they don't have it. They don't know anybody else that can lend it to them or don't feel like asking. On the surface, these would seem like these are businesses which give poor people a way to get instant money if they really need it. After all, let's say you really need money at the moment and your life will really be disrupted if you don't get the money. Then wouldn't you say a payday loan even at a high rate, would be worth it. So say they get a loan for $500. Yeah, sure, after the two-week period when it comes due that they're going to have to pay uh, close to $90 in interest, but if they needed the 500 that badly, maybe it's worth it. And how else are they going to get the money? So on the surface, it would appear that uh, these are good things to have around as long as they're not used too often. The problem is they are used too often. And the problem is that uh, these are uh, used in a way that wasn't intended by poor people who end up getting themselves in a vicious cycle. Now, I'm not one who usually believes in the government protecting people from themselves. There's a lot of areas I feel that the government needs to butt out and just let adults do what they're going to do. And... uh 
if the people don't make the right decision and suffer for it, that's just the cost of their bad decision making. But at the same time, the I do believe the government does have a duty to prevent uh, predatory business practices. And when the businesses are preying upon very poor people, that's when predatory business practices are the worst because that's uh, picking on those who can least afford to be taken advantage of. And I think it's especially reprehensible. Now, let's take a look at this here. Let me tell you the problem that comes from payday loans. And as you can already tell from the way I'm talking about them, I'm against them. And I will soon give you a real-life example of someone I know who got involved with these payday loans and what was happening. So you go to a payday loan place and you say, I need a payday loan. And they'll give you several hundred dollars. And it will be that you have to present them a pay stub or something to prove that you're currently employed and will be able to pay them back. And uh, you have to show them a bank account, and you have to show them your ID. You have to show them enough information to where they feel they know who you are, they know where to find you, and that you have a job, and that they can, at worst, get the money by suing you and garnishing your wages, which they can. So that's what they're doing to protect themselves. So you get the money, and then in two weeks, the money is due, typically. There are some states which don't have it to where it's due in two weeks. Some that they, they, they you can you're, you're supposed to pay over a period of time in four equal payments. But let's just for the simplicity here, and because most of them do it this way, it's typically due two weeks after the loan at this crazy high rate. Where after the two weeks, you're going to owe back whatever you borrowed plus like another seventeen point something percent, which which is pretty insane. So. You take the loan, but remember, you're taking this loan because you couldn't, you didn't have the money in the first place. So you're going to have to pay back that money that you just borrowed and presumably had to spend because you needed it, plus the interest. So how is someone poor going to come up with that? Even if they have a job. If you have to borrow $500 from one of these payday loan places and then spend it on whatever you need to spend it, whatever, you know, maybe that uh, for some reason, you, you fell short on rent. For some reason, uh, you, know, you need to get your car fixed. Uh, you, you need dental work. Whatever the immediate need is. You have to send it to a family member who needs it desperately. Whatever it might be. Now you owe them, in two weeks, about 580 bucks, which you have probably spent. Where are you going to get that? You can say, well, you're working for the next two weeks. Okay, but then you're working for the next two weeks in order to make money for what you need to spend on, such as next month's rent, such as this month's food, such as whatever else you're spending on in your life. So it's not like you it's not like you're just gonna take this that one time and in two weeks you're gonna get a windfall of money and you can pay it back. This is a matter where this is going to start a cycle where you're constantly behind. So what happens with a lot of these people is in two weeks it comes due and you have to, if you don't go back there, now you've defaulted on the loan and they they can sue you for it and and garnish your paycheck. So you go back there and you say to them, okay, can I please re-borrow it? And they'll let you do that. So what you're basically doing 
is uh, you're just paying them the interest, and then they're letting you reborrow the money. So it, it's it's kind of the equivalent of okay, uh, it's as if I'm paying you guys uh, your 580 back, but I'm reborrowing 500. So how about I just pay you the 80, and I just uh, the, the the 500 I'll still owe you with another 80 due uh, in two weeks. Okay. Well, people get trapped in the cycle. They can never quite get the principal back. So they're constantly reborrowing, reborrowing, reborrowing. And then sometimes when they can't keep up with the interest, because remember every two weeks they owe another 80 bucks on this $500, then they start going to other payday loan places. But remember, there's, there's more than one. So they go to other payday loan places and take other payday loans. They're actually borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And then they really get themselves in a mess because then there's interest from those loans. And they get stuck in this in this big cycle of of taking loans out that they have to pay back at these crazy interest rates, and they never quite get out of it. Now you may say, "I'm just exaggerating here." I mean, sure, this happens, but it it couldn't be the main form of this happening. This couldn't be what happens often. Well, that's not true. This actually happens very often. And there, there have been studies on this. So what was found was that a quarter of the people who take payday loans, this is in a study they, they made of payday loans, a quarter of the people who took them reborrowed the loan or refinanced the loan in some way, such as like just paying the interest and still owing the principal and then owing more interest, over nine times per loan. So someone would come take a payday loan and it would take nine or more times to finally get it paid off. Can you imagine how much interest was collected on that single loan to these people who can't afford it? That's crazy. A quarter of the people run into this situation, according to a study. Um, it, it was also found that uh, people end up in what, what's known as a, a debt trap, in that they uh, they end up uh, reborrowing it again within a month. So even if they don't do it right then. More than 80% of the people who take these payday loans reborrow within a month. More than 80%. So forget the 25% who reborrow nine times or more. 80% within a month of taking their first loan reborrow another one of these payday loans. More than 80%. And this was reported not by some uh, anti-payday loan uh, website that's, that's trying to manipulate data. This was reported by consumerfinance.gov, a government site that was studying this. The consumerfinance.gov reported that more than 80% of the people who took payday loans take them again, reborrow within a month. Is that a problem? So what happens with these payday loans is what you'd like to picture, that someone just has an immediate need for money that they'll be able to pay off in two weeks in full plus interest, but they just can't wait the two weeks. They have to pay it now, such as uh, for rent. And 
they do it on a one-time basis. They pay back the entire principal and the interest, and that's it. And they're only out 80 bucks in the whole thing, like on a $500 loan. And they had this financial safety net there for them whenever they needed it. On the surface, that sounds great, but that's not what's been happening. 80% or more are reborrowing within a month. 25% are reborrowing nine times on the same loan, paying full interest again each time. And this is really a disaster. What happens here is that people are getting themselves into a medium or long-term debt problem in order to try to solve a short-term problem. And sometimes it's better to just let the short-term problem get them than get into this cycle. Think of how much money these people are out. Let's look at the nine times thing. Let's say someone borrowed $500 and reborrowed nine times. That would mean they lost $800 in interest. Borrowed 500 paid 800 in interest. Is that a good deal on, on a short-term loan? Borrow 500 pay 800 in interest over a sh- period of months? That's insane. So you have to look at what are these people really avoiding here by getting these short-term loans? Sometimes they're avoiding embarrassment. They don't want to come to their relatives or friends and ask for money. It's easier to go to one of these places that doesn't judge you. Or they are avoiding a late fee at uh, from their rent. Not really thinking about how the interest is going to be more than their late fee. Or maybe they're avoiding pissing off their landlord and getting frustrated, getting hassling them. Where's your rent? Maybe they're avoiding something more serious, like getting evicted. Like if you don't pay your rent, simply can't come up with the money. Yes, the landlord has a right to give you a three-day pay-or-quit notice. And then if you don't pay in those three days, they can file an eviction against you. Even if you come up with the money, it's too late, and they can evict you. You end up with an eviction on your record. But you know what? If you can't afford to live there, sometimes it is better to move and then move out and go somewhere that is uh, more within what you can afford. Now, if you really can take a payday loan and only do it one time and pay it off in full and not reborrow, then yeah, it's not a bad thing. And yes, I understand these companies doing the payday loans are taking a risk themselves and let a lot of people default on them. For example, if someone were to take a payday loan and then quit their job or switch jobs and not tell the uh, old employer where they've moved to, then the payday loan company is going to have a hard time collecting from them. Even if the payday loan company wins a court case against them, they won't be able to collect very easily from someone who never has any money in their bank account and is hiding where they work. So this can be very difficult. Not impossible, but difficult and sometimes not worth the trouble for these payday loans to go after those who default on them. Some of them are more aggressive than others to try to collect money from those who stiff them. So I understand they get stiffed and they have to kind of work that into the rates they charge. But the bottom line is these payday loans are getting poor people into a cycle of debt over a particular short-term need. And in many cases, they could come up with the money if really pressed to do so. They could come up with it from a family member or a friend or a variety of family members and friends. Is this pleasant? No. 
Is it guaranteed they can do this? No, but in many cases they can. In many people, in many cases, the way they people go into this is feeling that it's worth going in and taking a payday loan and paying the interest rates that are being charged. It's worth doing that than going to your parents and having them lecture you about how irresponsible you are, or your brother and having him lecture you how irresponsible you are, or going to your friend and admitting to, pretty much admitting to your friend that, that you're a failure and you can't even pay your rent. Uh, you don't want people knowing this. You, you, you don't want anyone in your life knowing you're, you're needing to borrow money for basic needs. So you take a payday loan and it's your secret. Well, that's nice and all, but the problem is this ends up starting you in a cycle of never-ending debt. As I said, the debt trap. So it really is better in these cases that, yeah, you suffer the humiliation. Yeah, that your mom and dad give you a hard time. Your brother gives you a hard time. Your friend gives you a hard time. Whatever. Now, not everybody has someone they can borrow from. But more people do than you think. More people have someone in their life or some people together. It doesn't have to all come from one person. That can loan them money. That care about them enough. That will do it on occasion. Now, if someone's constantly coming to borrow money from you, you're going to get sick of it and say no and cut them off. But if somebody's borrowing money from you every once in a while when they run into bad news about something or bad situation, if you care about them and if they seem to make an effort to pay you back, you'll do it. Most people will do it. And most people have someone or several people in their lives who will do this for them. And if you are making too much of a habit of always borrowing money, then you especially shouldn't be using payday loans anyway. So I think payday loans have become too easy to fall back on for people only thinking in the short term, wanting to avoid a short-term embarrassment and not thinking about the long-term consequences. And this gets them into a cycle that they can't break out of. I got to see this in action. You can say, oh, this sounds like you can talk about this in theory, but maybe this doesn't happen too often. Or maybe the number of people helped by this exceed the number of people who end up in these debt traps. Well, no. First of all, think of the statistics I just quoted you. 25% end up borrowing nine times or more. 80 plus percent borrow, reborrow one time or more within a month. Ken Scaler, he calls into this show, longtime friend of mine. I've known him now for almost 30 years. He's always been bad with money. I've given him a number of loans over time. He's one of the few people I loan money to. I, I really don't loan money to many people because, uh, well, for several reasons. One, I can't trust people to pay me back. The many times when I've been nice and loaned money to people, they've stiffed me even with uh, very, very sincere-sounding claims they would never do so. And then when I try to get the money back, they treat me like a jerk. They say, well, you don't need it. I do. Look, look how little I have. Look how much you have. I, I can't pay you right now, and uh, I'm treated like the jerk for asking the money back. So I, I just stopped loaning people money. But Ken, he's always been good about it. He doesn't lay a guilt trip on me if I want the money back, and he's not being fast enough, and uh, and he always pays me. Sometimes a little slower than I want, but but I eventually get paid. I always eventually get paid. So that's why I continue to loan him the money. Not every time he asks for it, but uh, if I think he, uh, if I think it's a good enough reason, I'll do it. And I have. And, uh, and he pays me back. 
But um, about five years ago, four or five years ago, I forget which one, but he, he, he called me up and kept asking me for loans of like $80, $120, and over and over and over again kept asking me for those loans. And it kept increasing slightly. So first he says, you know, can you give me $80? I'll pay you by the end of the week. Okay, fine. Here's $80. I send him $80. And sure enough, like five days later, he pays me $80 back. A few days later, oh, I need $120 now. Give me $120 now. Okay, send him $120. I'll pay you in five days. Five days later, he pays me back. Three days later, another $120, please. I really need another $120. I, I kept getting these weird, like, $80 to $120 loan requests where as soon as he'd pay back, he'd reborrow from me days later. So I said, first of all, Ken, you're not, you're really not paying me back if you just keep reborrowing the money days later. Like me holding the money for three days before you borrow it back, it's not really my money then. You're just taking it right back. So that's the first problem. Second, what the hell's going on? So he didn't want to tell me at first. Uh, finally, I got it out of him. He, he, he got into the payday loan debt trap. Exactly as I described. He took payday loans and they had this interest rate. And he didn't worry about it too much, but then when it came time to pay, he would reborrow. But basically, what he was doing for me was borrowing the interest. <laughs> and and uh, then he started. He was actually going to two different payday loan companies because he he wasn't able to keep up. He had to borrow more to pay back the first one, and even what I was giving him wasn't enough. So basically, he was borrowing from me the very minimum he could to pay off the interest to just keep these two going, so he could keep reborrowing. So this was an endless cycle with two different payday loans for about 500 each that he was paying off the interest constantly and reborrowing to both of them. And I said, this is insane, Ken. You're just, you're just tossing away like, like 160 bucks every two weeks this way. And he says, oh, I know, I know. I'm trying to get out of it. I just can't quite get enough money to pay them all back. This is the only way I can do it. And that's why I was borrowing from you. And I just wish I never got into this. And, there's either, maybe there were three of them. There's at least two. It may have been three. Whatever it was, he, he, he was really borrowing from Peter to pay Paul and then borrowing from me to pay Peter and Paul. And I said, oh my God, what a freaking mess. So I sat and thought about it for a second and I said, okay, well, wait a minute. This one's not that hard to solve. Um, this can be solved by money, obviously. We'll just put a stop to this. I said, number one, you had to promise me you're never going to take a payday loan again. And number two, if you can honestly promise this to me, I will pay off your payday loans in full, and that'll end the whole thing. There'll be no more cycle, no more debt cycle where the, you have to keep reborrowing and accumulating more and more interest. I'll just pay it off, stop it cold in the tracks, and then you'll owe me with zero interest exactly what you borrowed from me. So he said, okay, we did. He paid me back over time, and that was that. Well, oh, that was almost that. Um, one of them he hadn't paid back yet. And he, I, I think that's what, it, I think one of them, uh, there was some reason he didn't pay one of them back. I think the timing of the whole thing. I don't remember the whole story, but uh, he asked, uh, what if I stiff them? Do you think I should stiff them? I said, you know what? F them. They've, how much interest have they made? They, they made so much money off of him interest wise. And I said, you know, I have no sympathy for these companies. They, they're victimizing people like you who uh, who keep borrowing over and over, reborrowing at these crazy interest rates of 459%. And uh, F them. Just don't pay, and if they get it out of you somehow, they get it, but uh, F them. 
So I said, if you don't want to pay it, I'm, I, I don't have any problem with that. So he didn't pay it, but they aggressively came after him and they sued him. He didn't, he said he didn't bother to go to court. I said he should have taken a shot in court. I know legally they were in the right, but, uh, he could have tried to say that they were taking advantage of him, predatory lending practices and reloaning him the money over and over. And maybe the judge would take him sympathy on him, but, uh, he just didn't show up, lost by default. And then they garnished his paycheck, which had he told me that they somehow I had believed they didn't have his full work information, or maybe I thought it was going to be harder to serve him than it was. Some for some reason I thought maybe he could get away with it, but uh, in reality he couldn't. And they garnished his paycheck and they got it all back. And I said, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> uh, interesting how aggressively they came after him, though. And uh, you know, this was just something that. I saw and I said, if I wasn't here to bail him out of this, and to his credit, he hasn't taken any more payday loans to my knowledge. But if I wasn't there to put a stop to this and just whip out the lump sum from my Jew wallet and pay it off, then he probably would still be stuck in this cycle today, maybe with five payday loan places. And this is what happens to people who take these loans, not just Ken. You can say, well, Ken, he, he's he's always messed up. He's always doing stupid things. Well, that's true, but a lot of poor people get stuck in this trap. And the last thing you want to saddle poor people with is something like this. They're, they're having a hard enough time to to have to saddle them with this type of debt and to where if they don't pay off these usurious loans that they get their salaries garnished, or in some cases, uh, the money gets sucked right out of their bank account if they have anything in there. It's just, it's just not a good cycle to allow them to get into. The temptation's too great. And it's, it's the same reason you don't allow crack dealers to just sit on the side of the road and say, okay, who wants to buy some crack? Here's some good crack. It's fun. Who wants crack? Yeah, you could say any adult can make the decision if they want to smoke crack. But there's laws against that for a reason. And this is kind of like financial crack. And this this is different than a financial opportunity, which just isn't smart. This is something specifically taking advantage of poor people who need money in the short term and are willing to sacrifice the medium and long term to do it and don't even realize to the full extent of what they're doing when they start. And I just don't think that should be legal. Or if it's going to be legal, there would need to be some restrictions on it, such as some sort of registry of of people taking these payday loans within a certain uh, within the state, and that uh, you can only take X number of loans per per month or per two months or per quarter. Something that would limit the amount of loans that could be taken. But then you still have the problem is these people just go into default. The problem is they're borrowing money they simply can't pay back. And then there's consequences. And in an attempt to stave off the consequences, they get themselves even further and further into the hole. Maybe if they keep the interest rates lower, like some of these states are requiring 36% maximum, maybe those are okay. 
But I don't know if the businesses giving these loans can really be viable because of how many times these people default on them. It may not be viable to have such a business with a 30%, 36% interest rate. I don't think they would be viable that way. So I think these are just a bad idea. I just don't think these are a good idea. How come the only people who are allowed to take 459% APR loans are poor people who need immediate money? I, a bank can't lend me at that rate, even if we agree they can't lend me at 459%. But poor people can borrow at 459%. It's not right. And sometimes it's better for people to have short-term pain to prevent long-term pain. Sometimes it's better that someone suffers in the short-term for a result of bad decisions. So sometimes what they're borrowing for, it's may even be better for them long term if they can't get the money and something has to change. Or maybe it's better that if someone has to borrow, they do have to deal with the embarrassment of having to borrow from someone that they know and love and that will be disappointed in them rather than just a faceless payday loan center that just treats you as a number with no judgment. Maybe it is better that any of those who borrow money do have some judgment, then it'll make them less inclined to want to do it. Sometimes it is good to have temporary short-term negative reinforcement to negative behavior that will help you in the long term. So, uh, think of... uh, For example, eating unhealthy food. If every time you ate unhealthy food, if you had tremendous stomach pain from it afterwards, would you eat it? No. You'd you'd do it once, you'd feel the tremendous stomach pain, you'd say, I'm never doing that again, I'm eating healthy from now on. But the fact that you can eat healthy food and not feel pain from it, and that the unhealthy food causes long-term damage from eating too much of it over time, that allows humans to do it because by the time they feel the consequence they've done it for so long it's irreversible at that point for the most part and while they were doing it they weren't feeling the negative consequences so humans and all animals if they don't feel immediate negative short-term consequences for a mistake they're making will often keep doing the same thing even if they know deep down it's negative And that's just human nature. So we sometimes have to protect the most vulnerable people in our society from being taken advantage of by those who know that's human nature, who know that people who are desperate for short-term money will enter themselves into a terrible long-term situation. Um, I've seen people so desperate for money before that they offer insane terms. I've had insane terms offered to me, and it's possible that people wouldn't have kept to them. I I wouldn't accept these terms. But I've had people say, and these are not scammers. These are people who don't have a history of anything like that. But people, you know, I I need $1,000 so badly. If you could just give me $1,000 today, I promise next month I'll give you $2,000. And I say, no, no, I'm not doing that for a few reasons. (laughs) So... Uh, had I done it, would they pay me the $2,000? I don't know. But 
sometimes when people feel they need money immediately, they will do that. Uh, I, I skipped a big reason people could be taking these loans too, drugs. People will sometimes take these payday loans because they need money for drugs. Again, something that's better that they can't come up with the money for. I don't know why I didn't say that yet, but that's that's a big one. That is a big one. So again, people getting access to short-term cash in the form of a loan with very high rates, sometimes it's better that they can't get access to that cash. And sometimes it's better that those giving them the cash can evaluate their need for it. The payday loan place doesn't care why you're borrowing it, nor do they ask. A family or friend, they may say to you, okay, why do you need it? And then they will evaluate. If they think you have a drug problem, they may not loan it to you. So these are all reasons where I don't I don't think payday loans should be allowed. And I agree with Andrew Yang. Donald Trump actually relaxed some of the restrictions on payday loans. That's something he did I don't agree with. So this is one of the rare cases where I agree with Andrew Yang. Now, keep in mind, all Democrats don't feel like Yang does, and all Republicans don't feel like Trump did on this. Uh, It's kind of mixed along party lines. This is not one that's a clear partisan issue. There's Republicans like myself who think that payday loans are predatory and just simply shouldn't be allowed. There's Republicans who feel that uh, it's, it's a legitimate business model and that it provides short-term cash to people who need it, and there's nothing wrong with that, and that the government shouldn't be getting involved in policing things like this. There's Democrats who feel that it's hurting poor people and predatory against poor people, and then there's Democrats who feel, no, look, these poor people, they they need cash sometimes. They need short-term access to cash, and if not, payday loans who? So it's all over the place. But I'm against them. I, I watched what happened to Ken Scaler. He'd still be in that cycle today, years later, if I didn't break it. He had no clue how to get out of it. His idea to get out of it was to, buy, to take more payday loans. Maybe I can find another place. Maybe I can find another place. I said, no, 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 no. I will pay it. You pay me. And I want you paying me as fast as you can and not wasting money on bullshit in the meantime. But I will get you out of it for now. And I did. And he paid me back. But as I said, without my help, who knows where he would have been with that. And not all of the people who get stuck in this cycle of debt have friends or family members who are willing to just jump in and stop this. And sometimes people are embarrassed to say they are involved in that whole thing, much like Ken was afraid to tell me for a while and just kept taking small loans. Well, that's it for the year 2019 on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We are done. I want to thank everybody who has stuck with this show, people who came back to the show after its hiatus in the months of uh, August through November of last year when I had my issues with LPR and with anxiety and depression. And I'm glad... A lot of you came back and found the show again. I'm glad to still be doing the show. Glad we got all the way through 2019 without those same issues recurring. I have 
little signs of it here and there. But for the most part, it's gone. And for the most part, I live normally as I was before it all happened. And Poker Fraud Alert Radio will return in 2020. I'm going to tell you of a few things that I'm changing, though. Some things I'm changing, some things I considered, but I'm not doing. I've decided I'm going to make more of an effort for this show to be findable by those just searching for poker podcasts. Because I found something unfortunate last night. I was searching for just poker podcasts to see where Poker Fraud Alert would come if I were to search that. And unfortunately, it was not showing up. It wasn't showing up in immediate Google results. Like Google displays like a podcast list of poker shows. We were not in there. I don't even know where that's drawing it from. Um, there were these blogs that were listing poker podcasts. I saw the Dat Poker podcast was very well covered, but we were not mentioned at all. Uh, it took all the way to down. I, I kept scrolling down, trying different articles. Nothing was mentioning Poker Fraud Alert. And then finally, there was a list of like 38 poker podcasts that mentioned Poker Fraud Alert there, kind of like halfway down the list. And that was it. Then even more disturbing, I went to TuneIn and I typed in just poker and this show was not found. I went to Stitcher. I typed in poker. This show was not found. I went to both and typed in fraud. This show was not found. What if I type Poker Fraud Alert, all one word, it was found. I said, well, crap, no one's going to find this show on Stitcher or TuneIn if they're just searching for poker shows. They just type in poker, we don't come up. It's a big problem. So I think the reason for this is, and I I made a change, and hopefully this will fix it, and if it doesn't, I'm going to contact support of both of these apps. I think it's because Poker Fraud Alert is one word. So I separated it. Now it's going to be called Poker Space Fraud Space Alert Radio. Only for the reason of showing up in these searches better. I think that's what's been screwing me here. I call it Poker Fraud Alert all one word because that's the URL of the site. It's just PokerFraudAlert.com. Poker Fraud Alert is supposed to be one word, not Poker Space Fraud Space Alert. I've seen it referred to that way in the media before, but that's fine. But I always saw it as like just Poker Fraud Alert. Like one word. But unfortunately, that's not good for searches because it doesn't pull out the poker part when you're searching and the searches fail and they don't come up with this site, which means a lot of people just searching for poker podcasts aren't finding it. That's a big problem. Uh, related, I'm going to also just try to see what I can do on get to get myself on some of these lists that third party sites are publishing. I don't know how you get on them. I'm not going to pay any money for it, but if I can contact some of them that are showing up on Google and say, Hey, can you include me? Maybe they will. Uh, I'm going to, in 2020, perhaps look for some sponsors. I've gone a long time without sponsors here. Um, Eric Benzamokin, by the way, I didn't play his ad this time, but he does uh, arbitration and mediation. He's a friend of the show, obviously gave a lot of money over the years and will give a lot of money, actually, in uh, for the first show of 2020 for a nice free roll. Eric at eblawfirm.us. You can reach him. Eric at eblawfirm.us. EB standing for Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. If you have any legal questions, especially if you'd like to hire him to do arbitration or mediation in uh, California or federally, uh, definitely get a hold of him. And if you 
need other legal work done, perhaps he can do that for you. There's a lot of things he can do. And uh, definitely a good friend to the show, good guy. But uh, I'm going to contact some uh, potential sponsors, ones that I've heard sponsoring other shows. I'm not going to try to steal from other shows. I'm not going to say, hey, sponsor this show instead of this other fail show. But I'll say I, I've heard you've been sponsoring poker shows or in some cases even some general sponsors that aren't poker or gambling related that seems to sponsor a lot of podcasts. I'll try to put out some feelers and try to get some sponsors on here just to help pay for everything. I mean, it's it's great that I don't have to do this, but I do put in a lot of work for this stuff, and it would be nice to get a little money from it. And it's never going to compromise or change the way I behave here, and I would never take a sponsor that would ever pressure me to not do things I do on this show. So if I ever had a sponsor say, hey, can you quit doing this, right? Can you quit saying this, or can you cover it us favorably? The answer would be no. In fact, I, I really prefer to take sponsors that I would be unlikely to ever criticize just because of the nature of their business wouldn't be one that I would criticize. So that's uh, why I'm careful about the sponsors I take here, and even the ones I approach, it would be ones that would be unlikely to end up in controversy. But if they did, I would be honest about it. I would never sell out like that. And I would never lead listeners astray. I would never try to lead anyone to a bad or questionable product or service that I wouldn't want to use myself. Some things I've thought about doing but haven't done, and I'm not going to do, but I've had people come to me and say, you know what the problem is here? The problem is here that poker and gambling, it's kind of a niche topic for podcasts. Most people aren't searching for that. Most people aren't looking to hear something like that. You should do more of a general show. Some people say, forget the poker, just do a general gambling show. That'll at least get some bigger audience. Some people say, forget the poker and the gambling. You should do more of a general show about current events, about politics, about uh, consumer issues, th things that people, that, that every person can relate to not just those with an interest in a niche area like poker and gambling. And some people say, I could probably get a much bigger audience if I did that. And I've considered it. I've considered, I've said, you know, how long do I want to go with this poker and gambling thing? I mean, people abandon shows all the time and change things. People don't run things to the very bitter end until they have no audience. They're, people will shut down shows that are... And I'm talking about all types of shows, not just podcasts or radio shows. But people will shut down shows that have kind of run its course. And even though they still have an audience, they'll move on to something bigger and better. And might it be time for me to try to shoot for a large audience of some sort? This show is never going to have a large audience. It has an okay audience, but it's never going to have a giant audience. You know, I look at some of these YouTube stars who get... A million views every time they release a video. A million views. Well, I get like about 1,500 listeners here per week. That's better than nothing. It's better than 50. But it's not a million. It's not 100,000. It's not 10,000. And we really have nowhere to go. We're not going to expand. We're not going to get much bigger. Even if I do improve our search results for poker podcasts, I'll improve a little bit, not by leaps and bounds. So I thought to myself, maybe it's time 
to move on. And people who want to follow me to the next thing I do, they can do that and I'll still play poker, but I'm not going to be still taking the role that I was before. I've thought before about doing that. I've thought recently about that. But then I think about it again and I say, look, I've got an audience here. People really like the show. I enjoy covering these type of topics. I enjoy breaking down these topics. I, I especially enjoy when I get to research one of these topics and present my own findings on it rather than just reading information that I found on the web about it. Like the Oklahoma Johnny thing. I, I was, I enjoyed looking into it and kind of piecing together the whole story. Because I know nobody else is covering it. And there's there's many times that stories are out there that nobody covers, nobody figures out, and nobody wants to present to the public. And I'm the only one who will do it or can do it. And I like being that voice, and I like being the one who runs a show and a site that will present all these things to you and will never be afraid to present you with the reality and the truth. And to just step away from that and do something that so many other people are doing like political shows or whatever. I mean, that wouldn't be unique. I wouldn't have much to add that others aren't already doing. And I decide, you know, I'm not going to do that, at least not for right now. I can't guarantee I'll do this show on this topic forever. I've been in the poker community now for almost two decades. I first started playing poker in January 2001. Many people I knew who were really, really into it in those days have moved on to completely different things and barely play or don't play anymore. And I don't have to just stick with it because I haven't completely abandoned it yet. At any point, I could change focus. But I'm not ready to do that. So we'll continue with the way things are for the foreseeable future. But if anything's going to change, I won't just drop it on you abruptly. I would always let you know. I don't really have time to do two different shows. I've even thought, well, maybe I could do two shows. But no, I don't have time for that. Well, that's it. That is all for tonight. That is all for 2019. We will return next week. Check Twitter, twitter.com slash alert As to the date we return, probably on the 3rd or the 4th of January 2020. And now to close the show, something similar but different. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Carol O'Connor. I think by now most of you know the opening theme of All in the Family, but I don't know if many of you have taken much notice of a very nice closing theme we have. And I didn't notice it for a couple of weeks after the beginning of my show, and I did notice it. And I asked my friend Roger Kellaway, who composed the music, if I could have permission to do a lyric to it. And he said, fine. So I wrote the lyric to it, and the title of it is Remembering You... And it's our pleasure, Rogers and mine, to do this words and music for you tonight. The day will be long and blue 
Tomorrow I'll be crying Remembering you There's a faraway look in your eye When you try to pretend to me That everything is the same as it used to be I see It's all over now All over now we're through And tomorrow I can start in Remembering you There's a faraway look in your eye When you try to pretend to me That everything is the same as it used to be I see it's all over now All over now with you And tomorrow I can start in Remembering Sad because we're parting Okay, we'll be back on July 3rd or 4th, everybody. Check twitter.com slash poker fraud alert. Happy New Year, everybody. Good night. <laughs>